Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like this Um... <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. You pop crazy youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hands right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and standing firm with me today are Neil Kulkarna and Taylor Parks. Hello. Team ATV Land once again all up in the area, if you will. <laughs> Indeed. So, boys, <laughs> the pop things... The interesting things. Gizm. Yeah, nothing pop and interesting. I got a bollocking from the doctors, so I've had to eliminate chocolate and crisps from my already joyless existence. Oh, no. Oh, no, man. What am I going to do? You're made of about 70% crisps, <laughs> aren't you? I don't know what's going to happen to me. Because um, healthy alternatives, no, they're not going to hit the spot. So I've just had to eliminate them in a, in a Catholic sense. Um, so, yeah, somewhat joyless at the moment. I've had a bit of work on, a bit of interviewing, been employed unbelievably as an expert advisor to a museum. Ooh. Yeah, it's bizarre. So South Asian Music Museum in Manchester, um, they sent me all their ah. exhibits and asked for my expert advice as if I know what the fuck I'm doing. Um, but that was interesting. But to be honest with you, the, the pop and interesting has been displaced by the sheer pornographic joy of watching the fall of Boris Johnson. Um, mm. And, you know, I mean, round here, the sudden online rise of, of Binley Megachippy to international prominence. Yes. Which was... Is that any good? No. No, it's, it's mediocre no, chippy at um, uh, best. The Marina Fish Bar in Willenall, about a mile down the road, or the Poseidon that serves the pig people of Charlesmore, are both much better. Mm. But yeah, that was seriously fucking mad. I mean, you know, City of Culture, which we've had for the past year, yeah. had no impact whatsoever. No. <laughs> shifting public perceptions of Coventry. Binley Mega Chippy, biggest global sensation we've done since since Wheelie Bin Cat Lady, really. Um, Lord. So, you know, people seem freaked out and delighted that we have a neighbourhood called Binley. Mm. I mean, thank Christ they didn't find out about Mount Nod or Spon End <laughs> or Paradise or any of these other weird neighbourhoods in Coventry. But yeah, popping interesting stuff. Thin on the ground, to be honest with you, for me. No. Taylor. Well... Graham Greene said that success is more dangerous than failure, uh, which is easy for him to say after all those hits with the goodies. <laughs> but if it's true, then all I can say is few. So <laughs> I've been mostly at home, you know, finally filling in the gaps in my cultural education. Uh, so I've been watching some game for a laugh. Right. <laughs> And let me tell you, they shot the wrong Kennedy. <laughs> and also, I thought it was finally time to tackle one of the great long works. Uh, I'm not getting any younger. Uh, well, I am, but not temporarily. So I thought, okay, 
now's the time. And so it was between A la Recherche du Temps Perdu, uh, La Mort d'Arthur, Joseph and His Brothers by Thomas Mann, and Triangle, the ill-fated early 80s yes! BBC soap opera. Yes, Sailor. Passenger Ferry. So I tossed two coins and um, <laughs> spent the last month or so really trying to savour the nuance of Triangle. Mm. It's a series that's become a kind of one-joke aside in shit-lazy TV programmes about shit-lazy TV programmes. And I thought, well, there must be more to it than this. So I watched the whole of Series 1, which was 26 wow. episodes. Uh, now on to Series wow. 2 of three of this uh, nautical odyssey um, mm. and basically it's everything you'd expect from a program shot on video aboard a ferry that sails between Felixstowe Gothenburg and Amsterdam over and over again <laughs> you got uh, non-actors shouting over the sound of the ship's engines <laughs> curtains drawn against the glaring grey void outside uh, mm. high drama in parked estate cars on rainy wet dockside concrete in <laughs> Suffolk all shot like an Aventis management training video or or the yeah. dialogue scenes in a learn French programme that went out at 7.40am on a Sunday but presented as primetime entertainment like practically every scene starts off like uh, hello Mr Exposition hello Mr Infodump <laughs> so what's been going on then it's amazing after 35 episodes of this um just nothing in the universe seems to matter anymore except this <laughs> no. uh, life on the low seas knock it all you want taylor but no triangle no el dorado and where would we be as a nation it's oh. true it's true i mean people are familiar with triangles an easy gag right like mm. everybody knows like the first episode starts with kate o'mara super milf mm. um mm. seven years younger than i am no. now i think oh. uh, it would practically really? be cradle snatching <laughs> taylor fairclough <laughs> <laughs> sunbathing in a bikini on deck which obviously sounded great in a production meeting but of course mm. they're shooting in the middle of the picturesque north sea in late autumn <laughs> and they still had to go through with it it all became a running joke for terry wogan and all this sort of stuff but it's like yes. once you get past that you discover the deeper truths concealed within like the archaeologists sifting through the roman rubbish dump you know you you get that true insight into this world of blue blazers and grey slacks you know where uh where a, mm. a, a lettuce and radish salad with thickly buttered white bread <laughs> and a glass of just juice is health food you know and your lunchtime routine might be uh light ale bacon rolls and a game of squash it's britain trying to soup itself up you know away from the mm. the shabby egalitarian 70s and into uh, an exciting euro american future but finding that it had nowhere to go it was always for me let down by the actual boat itself that show yeah because kate omara undeniably glamorous but the boat just looked like a herring trawler or something yeah it didn't look in any way kind of somewhere you'd want to be on. yeah and it's a shame because as a kid i loved cross channel ferries mm, mm. like the, the loved is too weak a word they were magical to me it because it was mm. a rupture in everyday life 
getting on one of those things. Yes. Right? Especially if mm. you're from Kidderminster, which is like virtually the furthest point in Britain from the sea. But you'd get on one of those things and set sail. It was like going into space. This this boat might as well have been Apollo 11. You know what I mean? If Apollo 11 had had a track and field machine. Um, it's like your entire experience of the world just changed the moment you stepped yeah. aboard into this alternative universe mm. yeah I, I would have liked a bit more of that spirit in triangle to be honest really you know but anyway yeah. it'll all be in my forthcoming book triangle the unfolding text uh but having <laughs> basically having now absorbed close to 35 hours of triangle i can say with some measure of authority that they should have called this program ship of cunts <laughs> Or possibly the boat that sucked. Um, it's just never go back. Never, never go back. But it's mm. no, no, I know. Because do you remember that thrill of standing on deck and the North Sea wind was blowing so hard you could just lean into it and it would keep you upright. Mm. Oh, beautiful. Just the happier, simpler times, you know, the pleasure you could take mm. from simple things like 30 tonnes of floating metal with triple yeah. controllable mm. pitch propellers, uh, three Solzer ZA40s, and an inaccessible club class lounge sloping towards Boulogne. It's still absolutely uh, pristine in my memory is being on a ferry off the coast of Scotland and seeing the proud prow of this boat completely bisect a uh, jellyfish in the water. Oh, what a delightful <laughs> sight that was. <laughs> It was so satisfying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'll tell you what, though. Series two of Triangle much worse than series one. For a start, Kate O'Mara's not in it. So, like, I mean, what's... What? Yeah, I know. No. What's the point? There's a... They've got a new character, which is, like, a rich old lady. Did she troll up a bat in a bikini? Um, alas, no, but she's got a... Well, what's the point? She's got that? a little yappy dog. <laughs> and the point is that she lives on the boat. She's, like, a permanent passenger. Like, as if it's a cruise line. Right. Imagine being rich and choosing to live on a boat that <laughs> sails between Felixstowe, Gothenburg and Amsterdam. Like, she just loves that bluish-grey half-light. And she's got a thing about sleeping in very narrow beds. <laughs> I don't know why she's got a dog on there as well. She's got this fucking dog running around. Yeah, yeah, bounces ball on deck, bounces over the railings. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, I've got something that's very pop and extremely interesting. In case you've not heard chart music is making its first ever live appearance at the london podcast festival fucking hell uh. we announced it first to the pop craze patreon people and the day after we sold it right out on day one it's mad that. but the good people at king's place have opened up the balconies and tickets are still available so sit tight listen keenly king's place King's Cross, Saturday, September the 17th at 2pm. Ticket price, £12.50 plus 10% booking fee. And it's going to be me and the London contingent of chart music. So that's David, Sarah and Taylor. And yes, we're going to attempt to break down an episode of Top of the Pops in 90 minutes. Because we're fucking stupid. (laughs) I won't mention which one it is yet, but we've looked at it and it's it's doable, isn't it, Taylor? Yeah, thanks back to the early days, we'll have podcast was about an hour and a half long <laughs> yeah what are you going to do about all the uh, 
the sort of bootleg merch shite hawks who are going to be outside, you know, with their, with their split up scarves and stuff. Uh, well, arms are going to be broken, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, we've reanimated Peter Grant. <laughs> He's just going to just stride around in an open neck shirt, <laughs> patting a baseball bat against his open bum. <laughs> yeah, afterwards, because it finishes at about half past three, we can all go to the pub, and if you're really nice, I'll let you have a feel of me Judy Zook satin nice, tour jacket. Lovely. How's that? Pop praise <laughs> youngsters. How can you resist? <laughs> a couple of questions that need to be answered. Yes, we will be recording it and putting it on Patreon. As for a live cast, don't know yet. And uh, yes, we will be attempting to sell merch. Our own merch, official chart music merch. Yeah, none of these t-shirts with the chart music logo over a picture of Stuart McConey and Andrew Collins. <laughs> no. <laughs> As far as tickets go, there's, um, I don't know, let's ask Future Al, shall we? <laughs> Greetings, people of short music slightly past. This is Al of the near future. At present, I can report that there are three seats available in the stage balcony and 37 in the main balcony. So I command you to buy all the remaining tickets before B.A. Robertson and Toya do and they lock balloons full of piss down on us. Oh, an owl of the past. Well done for doing all the merch in the wrong dimensions, meaning I have to spend the entire weekend doing the properly, you thick twat. Anyway, chart music live. Tickets still available. You can do it right now, please. Well, thanks very much, Al of the very near future, and fuck you too. You <laughs> What's the weather like? So, yeah, uh, here's what you need to do right now. Get your arse over to bit.ly slash chartmusiclive and you, yes, you, could be in the same room as some of us for a bit. It's going to be mental because you've got people travelling. I know. A long I, way for this. It's brilliant. I know. And it's frightening. I'm not going to lie to you, mate. I'm shitting myself. <laughs> what happens when they see me? And they've got this image in their head of what I look like and just be totally disappointed. Uh-huh. I'm terrified that the fucking audience are just going to get up after three minutes and go to the bar at the back and ask for Angela. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to look up whilst you're doing it and there's going to be like a sea of phones out there all taking photos and stuff. Yeah, I want to say that now. Don't hold your phones up all the way through it, please. Yeah. Just live in the moment. <laughs> but yeah, it's something we've we've put off. I've put off for fucking ages. But you know what, sod it. Let's just... just do the fucking thing and yes Neil the next one we do will be in the provinces and yes you and Simon will get you go so oh, fab mm. great oh the other pop and interesting thing of late is that I have treated myself to my first bike since 1981 and I'm fucking loving the shit out of it it's great brilliant yeah I, j- I just got bored of being a fat cunt sat at a fucking desk looking at a computer like I'm doing right now mm-hmm. and I wanted to lose a bit of weight but you know me I'd rather go to a scat club for the elderly than go to the gym. (laughs) And one of my biggest regrets of lockdown was that, why didn't I get a bike and claim the empty streets of Nottingham for myself? (laughs) You can say it's my midlife crisis, but instead of arsing around in a sports car Mm. and trying to relive the 20s that I didn't have and want what anyway, Mm. no, I want to be fucking nine again, man. I I just want to go out and just bomb around the streets all day long. What sort of bike is it out? Is it like, well, chunky? Or is it like, well, racer-like? How many gears? It got on all that. It's an e-bike, of course. Oh, 
<laughs> you still have to pedal, yeah, yeah. but you can touch a button and you can get up hills without <laughs> having to get off your bike and push it up and have people laugh at you. So you've got like uh, eight massive long wing mirrors on each side coming out. No, <laughs> no, no, not yet. <laughs> now, obviously, because it's been so fucking long and the roads are so fucking dangerous, mm-hmm. I've been very nervous to go out. I'm not going to be one of these cunts who ride on the pavement because mm. I fucking hate them, mm-hmm. but I've been really worried about going out on the road and been casting about for advice. And what better pool of experts are there to teach me the ways of two wheels than the Radio 1 DJs of the mid-80s? <laughs> <laughs> Chaps, I'm going to send you something right now. Okay. Say what you see. <laughs> the Radio 1 Guide to Pedal power. <laughs> a poster which was issued by the Department of Transport, which was sponsored by Motorcraft Ford, illustrated by Sandy James of Tiger, with the real Johnny Cougar's face at the bottom, and packed with tips on bicycle safety from some of the Radio 1 DJs mm. of the era, who um, happen to appear as ghostly disembodied heads who float over main <laughs> roads, which I think is a bit dangerous, but mm. let's go through it, shall we? So, Kid Jensen, the modicum of common sense as always tells us to keep that bike in proper shape you know check the chain and the spokes and the lights and the tires and uh, (laughs) accompanied by an image of what looks like billy dane sorting his bike out which Mm -hmm. is nice mike reads in his reactor light repeat phase here isn't it yeah yeah telling kids to read the highway code mike smith what's he saying to the youth don't risk it the typical mike smith message isn't it just don't risk it whatever it is <laughs> no chances instead of moving to the center of a busy road to turn right uh, it's often safer to stop on the left hand side and cower on the pavement like a bitch <laughs> essentially <laughs> which is completely wrong now apparently i think the highway code encourages to go in the middle of the road yeah i think no i think you're right there mike smith also says uh, remember uh, a helicopter is actually a safer way of yes. <laughs> uh. or on to the next image oh why is Peter Powell in full woo hey mode isn't he yeah very much so. he's delighted isn't he practice cuts out all sorts of wobblies basically telling kids to just fuck about on the playground get off the fucking road and out of my way <laughs> essentially uh, I saw Peter Powell in a 1983 top of the pops the other day he didn't half look middle age fast it's like yeah because really? you know like he's all sort of bubbly and curly in the late 70s ones so mm. one from 1983 he looks like grant shaps oh he's always had a bit of grant shaps about him which is, which is weird actually because grant shaps also looks like anthea turner yeah on to the next panel why it's steve wright telling us to dress up and get crazy with fluorescent <laughs> or bright clothing oh. and of, of course who else but pig wanker general that's a really disturbing image isn't yeah, it yeah yeah why uh, am I wrong? Uh, I've not seen him without glasses on before. That, that, I'm not mm. used to that look at all. No. Ugh. He almost looks like he's leering. He's telling the youth, let's have lots of good, clear signals telling others exactly what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't fucking matter to the driver behind the bike because he's looking at the terrifying sight of <laughs> Simon Bates's massive head just veering for him, man. Yeah, he does not suit not wearing spectacles, that man. No. It, that should never no. happen again. On to the next one. Andy Peebles tells us to watch your backs. Yeah. Does. Check behind. That's essential. Whenever you start or make
make a turn or move out to overtake. Watch your back. Yeah. <laughs> Andy Peebles here looking like a pornographer. Yes. <laughs> Very seedy picture of Andy Peebles. He's always looked seedy, hasn't he, Peebles? Yeah. Mm. And finally... Who else but John Peel, who tells us that the others may be crazy, but there's no need for you to be. Get yourself fully trained to ride a bike properly. And that's accompanied by an image of what looks like a really satanic-looking Dracula in a Volvo, yeah. about to plough into poor old Billy Dane. Yeah, it's like a small-scale um, sort of remake of Spielberg's Jewel going on. Yes, <laughs> yes, without the tarantulas. <laughs> Dracula's like Volvo's <laughs> Department of Transport, Motorcraft Ford, Johnny Cougar, and Radio One. Putting the youth right. It's interesting to note who isn't on that. I'm putting this at about 1984, 1985, don't right. you think? Yeah, yeah. No Travis. Yeah. He fucking hates cyclists, obviously. <laughs> no Janice either. No, yeah. no, no. Because what would she say? Get some nice pink tassels on your handlebars <laughs> and boys will like you, no doubt. <laughs> Do you think any of the people in this poster have actually ridden a bike since they got out of short trousers? I don't know if any of them have ever ridden the bike at all. Mm. The important advice for bike riders at that age and at that time is how to avoid the saddle hitting your head when you come over the crossbars and stuff like that. There's none of that here. No. Can you do wheelies on your bike, Al? I wouldn't dare try. It's become a a sort of male right now. Mm. It's just a thing boys do. They just ride around with a constant wheelie. It's like priapism in bike form. Yes. I think bikes are designed to do that, whereas, I don't know, hefting a grifter wheel off the ground. Oh, no. If you weren't Jeff Capes, you couldn't do that. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Notes and corrections from the previous episode. We mentioned, when we talked about the Inspiral Carpets, how they were in the dance charts, and we cast aspersions and scoffed at it. Well, yeah, obviously (laughs) it was a remix of This Is How It Feels, isn't it? And if it's the one that I've heard, it's fucking cat shit. Really? Yeah. It's just some (laughs) generic biff boff. And you have to listen for about five and a half minutes before um, Tom Hingley comes in and does a bit of singing. That sounds all right. Yeah. And secondly, when we covered New Kids on the Block, we assumed that that T-shirt that Ken out of New Kids on the Block was wearing was South Today as a tribute to the BBC regional show. No, 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 no. <laughs> saying it wasn't. It was actually, and thanks to an unknown pop-crazed youngster who chipped in when he was given us a five-star review, which you can also do, pop-crazed youngsters, it's Youth of Today, the, oh. uh, the, the hardcore <laughs> band of the late 80s, early 90s. One of the forerunners of the straight edge movement. Oh, I thought you meant it was a, a promotional T-shirt for the musical youth single. <laughs> it's a judgment time, sang bong, 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 ayo. <laughs> anyway, it's time, as always, to give thanks and praise to the true heroes of chart music, the new batch of pop craze Patreons. And in the $5 section this week, we have Leighton Crook. Bongo Inferno, Matthew Trash, Baxter, Michael Murphy, Peter Moore, Pete Boardman, and Phil Robinson. Thank you, babies. Cheers, lovely people. Mm, and in the three dollar section, we have Matt D, Hannah Wood, Simon Banner, Jeff Lloyd, Duncan Conde, Two Meter Wingspan, <laughs> Jim Tomlinson, Mark Colclough, and Matthew. Evans, oh, you you are the wind beneath our wings. <laughs> oh, 
and Gavin Montgomery, Denise King, Kat and Clive Parry just jacked it right up this month. Oh, oh bless their hearts. You get special treatment. <laughs> mm. And, of course... One thing that all Patreon members get to do that you cheapskates out there can't is jig and a rig and a reconfig the brand new chart music top ten. Shall we, boys? Yeah. Hit the fucking music! We've said goodbye to mini whores, the worst-dressed homosexual in the Castro. He big cunt and semiotic trousers, which means two up, four down, four new entries and a brand new number one. Whoa, bloody hell. The former number one drops seven places from number three to number ten. Two Ronnies, one cup. (laughs) New entry at number nine for arse to mouth. (laughs) Down two places from number six to number eight. Rock expert David Stubbs. It's a three-place drop from number four to number seven for Bummer Doc. But it's a three-place jump for this week's number six, the bent cunts who aren't fucking real. Into the top five, and they're up three places from number eight to number five. Here comes Jism. Tenacious. A new entry straight in at number four for Cliffy White Boy and DJ Mr. Bronson. <laughs> top three time, and it's a one-place drop for That Dog's Dead Now. Straight in at number two, my fucking car, <laughs> which means... Britain's number one. The highest new entrance, straight in at number one, the Airbnb 52s. Oh, my <laughs> days, boys. What a chance. What a time to be alive. Exciting movement up at the top, now. Let's just go through those new entries, shall we? Arse to mouth, and the, that's a Roman two, of course. Like soul to soul, but a bit fistier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Cliffy White Boy in DJ Mr. Bronson proves once again that there's always been a dance element to the chart music mm. top ten. Mm. Yeah. My fucking car <laughs> is obviously a nineties indie landfill. <laughs> And the Airbnb 52 speaks for itself, really, doesn't it? It does. So, Pop Craze youngsters, if you're still holding back on dobbing in your subs to chart music, now is the time to get things right. Now is the time to see the light. You get them fingers, you set them upon the keyboard, you mash, 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 patreon.com slash chart music, and, hang on, let me demonstrate, you get that money, hear it? (laughs) You pull open this G-string right here, uh-huh. and you hear that? I'm jingling, baby. Just- I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. 
Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. It's for you. So, <laughs> this episode, Pop Craze Youngsters, really should have been the last episode, but it didn't cross my mind until it was too late due to me being a big, thick bell end of a man. Because this time, we're going all the way back to June the 9th, 1977. Yes, Pop Craze Youngsters, Jubilee Week. Proper Jubilee Week. Because when you say the Jubilee, you always mean the Silver Jubilee. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like the war is the war, that Jubilee is the Jubilee. Yeah. And it wasn't this fucking shitty recent one that got in the way of everything. Indeed, indeed. So how did you spend shaking Jubilee, chaps? Because <laughs> you didn't mention it in the pop and interesting things. Can't imagine why. Uh, just tramadol, I think. Yeah, I mean, the uh, difference is, with this, uh, with the platy jubes... Oh, you, you, that word's banned. <laughs> That phrase is banned, Neil. Okay, okay. I don't recall anybody calling it the Silby Jubes in 1977 because we're a proper people and not cunts. A country of adults. Yes. Like fucking thick adults, but adults nonetheless. I mean, the thing is, of course, with, with the Platinum Jubilee, you could ignore it. Yes. And, and yeah. only let it percolate in for you to take the piss out mm. of it. Whereas when you were a kid, it wasn't quite so simple. No. I mean, what I caught, you know, is, as usual, you know this myth that we have in this country Oh, we do pageantry well. Yeah. It's the old myth. We don't, actually. We do it fairly poorly. Mm. We do it in a way that reflects our national character, really, kind of half-assed and totally embarrassing. Yes. And, and, and what kind of disgusted me about the bits that I did see was the blending in of all that bloody wokeness. Yes. Kids pretending to be a river with flags emblazoned with their worries about climate change. <sighs> I mean, for fuck's sake, I would rather have had, yeah, a, a sort of North Korean-style statement of mass fealty to the crown, mm. really. Perhaps a procession past the Queen and, and King Tampax and Prince nonce with, with kids crawling <laughs> on their knees. Andrew. Yeah, nonce Andrew. And it was just way too touchy-feely and, and the only genuinely moving moment was was Boris Johnson getting booed. Yes. Um, oh, that made me proud. That was sweet. But you know, I mean, during the original coronation in 52, mm. when the cameramen and the presenters went on lunch that day, they didn't bother putting anything on. They just had a shot of the Union Jack flapping for an hour in total silence. <laughs> um, part of me would have slightly preferred that uh, mm. or something similar. You know, like just just a flag just for three days on BBC One yeah. with a faint face-on shot of the Queen looking like a miserable carabag as normal mm-hmm. with, but with infinitesimal slowness yeah. um, it going from the centre of the flag right up to her eyeballs um, with, that would have been much better than this sort of mawkish cringe-worthy weekend of national shame but hey ho yeah I avoided it because you could but 1977 oh no 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 yeah. proper jubilee went on all fucking year and and this is the absolute pinnacle of the cap doffin isn't it we're two days removed from the official day of celebration and the street parties and the non-stop ramming of the royal scepter up the arse of the nation mm. I mean I was nine years old when all this went down and it was the first time in my life where patriotism had raised it's ugly head mm. seeing union jacks everywhere seemed like an absolute novelty as opposed to nowadays where the union jacks just a fucking logo on a bag of carrots <laughs> you know what i mean yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 
it wasn't the idea so much that, oh, we're a great country and all this kind of stuff. It was like, oh, it's the mid-70s. Let's have some kind of a celebration. Let's do something. Mm, mm. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's like when Argentina used to win the World Cup and everyone was cheering. Yes. They were going like, but aren't you worried? The dictatorship use it as propaganda and all that. And they're like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's our football team just won the World Cup. Yeah. People are able to separate that a bit more. I'm not sure if you can do that in Britain now, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, it doesn't seem possible to do, you know. No. no. And that flag has just become completely corrupted by BMP, yeah. NF, Farage, whoever's been waving mm. it. Um, you yeah. Know, razor light included. <laughs> it's funny, though, isn't it? Like, a few years ago, it seemed like it had become old hat and almost embarrassing mm. to talk about how appalling the royal family are as a institution and as a reality because mm, mm. it was pretty much taken as red yeah but you know, you know yet another consequence of the upper middle class colonization of culture that's gone out of the window now you know and the people mm. can't see it for what it is which is basically the kind of uncivilized illogical idolatry the existence of which in other countries the British used as justification for conquering half the world to yeah. civilise them out of these uh, backwards ways. But who will civilise the civilisers? It's, uh, yeah. I wish I could say that it astonished me that we're still having conversations like this. You know what mm, I mean? I but what can you do? I mean, what's that quote? You can tell a lot about a country which has a royal mint and a national debt. Um, <laughs> you'd think people would catch on. But it doesn't really surprise me because it's part of the erasure of class consciousness or class awareness. Mm. And people now seem genuinely unaware of the fact that the purpose of the royal family is to enshrine and personify the British class system mm, and to mm, nail the entire country by the bollocks to the Church of England, yeah. you know, which is a, an appropriately made-up religion which only exists in the first place for the convenience of a narcissist psychopath serial killer <laughs> who's also one of the great icons of our nation and it's just another thing you're expected to pledge loyalty to as if it were real and people wonder why post-truth politics caught on so quickly in this country when the the basics have been embedded in the national psyche for centuries you know this solemn faith in things that are self-evidently not true like the inherent superiority of what are clearly some of the worst people in the country mm. you know? it's like you know how in most countries where fascism took off, it was effectively the political arm of the Catholic Church um, mm. because fascism needs a, a mystical glue to hold it together, to persuade people to participate in their own degradation. And it has to be something that's already wedged deep into the national psyche, right? Something mm. pre-existing. And the quasi-mystical blind faith aspects of catholicism work for that in latin countries and in germany they use like blood and soil myths and ancient yeah. germanic horseshit well if you listen to followers of mosley in this country the old buf people mm. there's a great radio documentary called um potter is fascists about uh, mosley supporters in stoke-on-trent and they went and interviewed a lot of old geezers who were uh, you know 
And the one thing they all said was, oh, he was a gentleman, Sir Oswald. He wasn't like us. We had faith in him because he was a gentleman. Mm. Because the British equivalent of these fascist enabling myths is the class system. Yeah. And it never ends, you know. It never ends. Mm. Because even in times of mass cynicism, the royal family is the one institution about which the media is just expected to lie. It's not optional. Like, Michael Fagan broke into the Queen's bedroom, and for years we're told that she was amazing. And she was... <laughs> so brave. So utterly calm and composed. So ruddy, bloody brave. She just talked him down, and... Oh, and, and, yeah, it's just like how Kim Jong-il got a hole in one the first time he played <laughs> golf. It's just, all, all those ancient Eastern rulers where, like, historians say, well, all we know about him from the historical record is that he was nine feet tall and he once ripped a tiger apart with his bare hands you know it's like maybe not and i feel embarrassed to say this stuff because for people of my generation it's so fucking obvious but it's barely said these days Mm. and this perception persists of the royals as purely a ceremonial thing as well with no power Mm. you know Or, or like even a bulwark against extreme politics taking hold yeah. in this country which you know Ooh, would you want a president blair then <laughs> yeah whereas of course anyone who knows anything about history could tell you exactly what would have happened if uh, the fascists had taken hold in this country i don't think the royal family would have been a bulwark against them mm. as far as i can see the only extreme viewpoint against which the monarchy is a bulwark is the viewpoint that we should abolish the monarchy mm. and of course you know when you actually look at it it's not purely ceremonial there's countless examples Examples down the years of the royals abusing Queen's consent, you know, where she has to wave through every law that goes through Parliament mm. to secure exceptions for themselves, especially to equality and diversity laws. Anybody who yes. was not white was not employed by the palace yeah. in any role in which the royals themselves had to see them until surprisingly recently. And they tampered with the uh, 2010 Equality Act along those lines as well, which was also something barely reported in the the papers mm. you know and that's before you even get to a fucking jug-eared half-wit of a son with his <laughs> with his henry root level letters you know leaning mm. on various public bodies about architecture and the, the value of homeopathy you know because of course like all pampered celebrities they're enthralled to quacks and too fucking stupid to read a book mm. Mm. is another consequence partly of the upper middle class colonization of culture yeah this idea that it's a harmless lark or something to be proud of in some unspecified sense mm. you know like recently all the the posh kid pubs and cafes around where i live in london all had the union jack bunting up you know mm. here it is fucking bunting um, <laughs> And it's like wannabe cool kids, you know, like yeah. celebrating the platy jubes. My life, fucking! I oh, did Leslie Crowther die for this? Oh, you, hey, Taylor, stop that! First public warning. <laughs> I do think there is a class split in this, though, Taylor, because like you were saying about the sort of middle class kids, you know, unironically waving Union Jackson stuff. I do think for a whole load of kids at the moment, it is a protection racket set up around the nonce. That that is the way that they think about the royal family. They right. think about Andrew. I think and that Andrew thing has cut through a bit yeah. uh, on social media quite a lot. So I think that to an awful lot of kids, but the idea of not having a royal family just does not occur. 
um, at yeah. the same time. Do you know what I mean? It's well, just they do so much for business and tourism, don't they? <laughs> because no one ever goes to fucking Cairo or Paris anymore since they got rid of their royal family. Yeah. And people go on about that. Oh, they do so much for tourism. And it's like, what? So do they stand in the fucking arrivals lounge at Heathrow Airport giving out fucking lemonade and a sticky bun singing, here we are again, like the cast of IDI? <laughs> no, fuck off. You'd get more tourists if they weren't about because it could stop the night in Buckingham Palace. Yeah. Yeah, I tell you what I was watching the other day. Uh, do you remember that thing? Monarchy, the nation decides. It was oh, yes. a big mm-hmm. studio debate on ITV in uh, 1997, probably the peak of the of the unpopularity of the monarchy. So they have a big studio debate and a phone-in vote whether you should have a monarchy or not. And the people of Britain voted in that, yeah, you should have a monarchy. But it was only like 60-something percent. It was, right, right. I think, yeah. a lot closer than it would be now. And as uh, something in the papers at the time pointed out, yeah, look at what was on the other side, food and drink, Brookside, and uh, Harry Enfield show or something. So there's probably not that many people watching Mm -hmm. it. But it was famously a complete debacle. (laughs) I mean, people should watch this to be reminded that social media makes things worse and more visible but it doesn't change what britain has always been like which is full of angry loud people who don't know what they're on about so there's this massive out of control studio audience on this program all bellowing and making animal noises like from both sides all of them just waiting for the internet to be invented so they don't have to leave their homes anymore and it's all in this 90s nuclear brightness as well sort of like terry venable's sports jacket eye assault you know brash (laughs) new britain and it's all exactly what you would expect from a fucking pantomime like this right like Mm. there's people like frederick forsyth you know just lecturing and barking at the mob like literally just pointing at the audience and shouting at them you know like people like peter hitchens and bernard ingham trying to be a a blunt overbearing yorkshire patriarch but he's just too squeaky and he's got a big muppet foam face you know Uh, and then on the other side you've got like sort of a few sort of beard and tie socialists you know like some like lunatics shouting and there's this guy he's like captain tom og you know what i mean like because after the war that he met with some russians and they explained it all to him you know uh, Jesus. it's just horrible max clifford turns up to add a bit of gravitas you know and or gravitas <laughs> jeffrey archer comes on right trying to do the Mm. boris johnson bit but with no charisma right it's like a dry run for johnson he's doing this ah you you boring gray republicans you all hate fun off with your heads you know but while looking like the least fun mammal on earth (laughs) it keeps coming up on screen ring this number for yes and this number for no you know it's Mm. like i'm not saying they're trying to destroy all nuance for a sensationalistic tv experience but it might as well have been you know which is better red or blue (laughs) call or text now 19 pound a second um and it's just yeah it's just burke's screaming right and as you can imagine all the pro royal ones are completely unhinged <laughs> but it's to the point is you watch it you see these absolute lunatics screaming and you think okay mm-hmm. a lot of these people are now dead but if you restage this today <laughs> it'd be exactly the same but just with these people replaced by a load of old 
punks and new romantics you know it's like even after all these years people still act like the next generation yeah, is yeah, going to yeah, be yeah. the one that saves the world and puts everything right you know as the old fools die off yeah how's that been working for the last hundred years mm. anyway the final result of this is like yeah we mm. we should have a royal family it's been decided and the way they big it up and they've got newspaper editors coming on live links telling you what the front page <laughs> is going to be the next day like as if it's legally binding yes. as if it had gone the other way the queen was going well it is with great respect <laughs> that we bow to the wishes of the I TV viewers. <laughs> but the right always set up the debate like that, that, that they have a joy for life and the left mm. hate life. Yeah, it's it, the whole thing. It's exactly the same as what happens now. It's just in those days, everyone involved was a little less sophisticated at being a cunt. <laughs> And, of course, it's going to get sticky when the Queen dies, because... Oh, man, the psychological blow to this country is going to be fucking immense. (laughs) You know them posts that people share on Facebook where people take the dogs out to the beach and then feed them a massive Flintstone-sized steak with all the trimmings before they go off and put the dog down? Uh. That's what the Platinum Jubilee was like. You know what I mean? It, it was. She's going now. This is the last chance. And she didn't even turn up either. No, couldn't even be asked. But I don't blame her. Yeah, but it's, yeah, it's going to be really tricky because, despite all the racist remarks and the paedophilia and the the fact that the Queen is shortly to receive tens of millions of pounds from the public purse, even in the middle of the current uh, cost of living crisis, because of a law that David Cameron made that said the Queen's income cannot decrease. Rec- regardless of the economic state of the nation. Just delightful things like that. But despite all of this, there's still this idea that the Queen, at least, is somehow fundamentally a good person. Yeah, right? yeah she's mm. the good one, yeah. Yeah, you hear people saying yeah. this, I don't like the rules, but I do respect the Queen. Just based on thin air, right? It used to happen with the mm. Queen Mother, like a yes. viciously anti-Semitic quasi-fascist mm. with a sincere belief in bloodlines as the measure of human worth. I think, oh, isn't she lovely, though? <laughs> that lovely old lady. And this still goes on with the Queen, you know. Do you remember after Brexit, you heard, like, liberals and... and saying oh maybe the queen will step in to save the country from this oh she actually wore a blue and yellow hat no it's the same queen who oversees the extra private education given to young royals and young people marrying into the family where they have to go and sit in a room with these specially brought in hand-picked very right-wing historians Mm. to tell them imperialist lies about royal history and the importance of the crown in the greatness of the nation. Something I only found out recently, during the miners' strike, wives of striking miners petitioned the Queen because they just assumed that she would be on their side because of their perception of her fundamental belief in fair play and decency. We wonder why we live in a country that's infantilised at every level. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So we live in a country where people respond to their sports team winning by pulling a face like someone's just shot their nan and they're yes. out for revenge. It's just a weird place, isn't it? Yeah. And I think the royal family's got a big part to play in this. I say, bring back the days when these fuckers died at 31 from eating a surfeit of lampreys. <laughs> yeah. But we, we have one chance. We fucking blew it. Fucking yeah. Cromwell, isn't it? Like, oh, thanks for that. Yeah, let's cancel Christmas and outlaw fun. 
really make people think Republic's great. Yeah, it's a shame that, isn't it? It's such a shame. Fucking wart-encrusted lunatic. <laughs> Still, the music's all right in this episode, isn't it? <laughs> well, some of it. It's a proper mixed bag, isn't it? A proper grab bag, yeah. A lot of stuff on this episode's not even in the charts yet, and, and some of it won't be. Can't understand that. It's a really weird episode of Top of the Pops, and mm. I kind of think the, the producer sensed that you know jubilee fatigue was perhaps setting in yes. especially among young people yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah they sort of swerve it a little bit include it a little bit and consequently a very very odd mix of music yeah as tonight's host said in a daily mail interview a couple of years ago the best thing about top of the pops was you couldn't get on it if you weren't in the charts mm. hmm. onward news this week. The train siege outside the village of De Punt in Holland by South Moluccan nationalists is in its 18th day, ending two days later with a counter-terrorist attack which kills two hostages and six hijackers. Idi Amin has threatened to gate-crash the Commonwealth Conference, which is taking place this week in London, with the Home Office declaring he'll be detained at whatever airport he arrives at and sent back on the next plane. After he tries to get a crog on President Mobutu of Zaire's plane and is turned down, he gives up and crashes round Colonel Gaddafi's house instead. A group of six form girls in Leicester who were caught drinking in a pub have protested against sexual inequality by writing a letter to the County Education Board which accused their headmaster of contravening the Sex Discrimination Act by not caning them like he did to their male counterparts. (laughs) An estimated 10,000 Scotland fans go mental after they beat England 2-1 in the home international at Wembley ripping down the goalposts and causing £18,000 worth of damage to the pitch. Fucking hell, that was the most punk thing I ever saw in 1977. Great days, great days. (laughs) Meanwhile, England have gone straight on to their summer tour of South America without manager Don Reeve, who has gone to Helsinki to see Finland lose 3-0 to Italy. But while England hold Brazil to a goalless draw, he secretly nipped off to Dubai to take a big fat check off the United Arab Emirates to manage their national team. A Led Zeppelin gig in Tampa is cancelled after 11 minutes due to torrential rain, and when it was announced that the band wouldn't be returning, an estimated 4,000 fans storm the stage and go all Scotland on it. <laughs> George Harrison and Patty Boyd have got divorced today. Kevin Keegan has been transferred to Hamburger SV for half a million pounds. Agneta and Bjorn of Abba have announced that they're having a second baby. But the big news this week is that the country has gone jubilee mad. (laughs) Chefs at the Jester Hotel in Leeds have made a record-breaking Yorkshire pudding measuring 16 foot by 3 and 3 quarter foot, which has been dyed into a (laughs) Union Jack. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) There's something grotesque about that. That ain't right. A Mr. and Mrs. Lee have named their daughter Juby. (laughs) Spelled J-U-B-I. It'll never date. The winner of a competition Petition for the best way to commemorate the year in Nationwide has suggested that we tow massive chunks of Great Britain out to sea and terraform the country into the shape of the Queen's head. (laughs) 
Bonfires are going off all across the land. The Sunday Mirror has started a campaign to reward the European Cup winners by renaming them Royal Liverpool FC. (laughs) Of all the fucking clubs. And even the Queen's gone a bit mad by deciding to make Derby a city for a laugh. (laughs) Royal Liverpool FC. Good Lord. Because Man U, that, that year's cup final, they went out with with Jubilee, didn't they, on their shirts, I seem to recall. Did they? Yeah, just below the Man U logo on their shirts for the 77 cup final. It said, yeah, it had like they'd sewn in some silver Jubilee emblem. Sycophants. Yeah, no doubt under immense pressure from the uh, equally royal crazy people of Manchester. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. But yeah, this is it. This is the absolute pinnacle of all the Jubilee nonsense. Mm. And we've been fortunate enough to have a taste of that trifle, if you will, haven't we? <laughs> oh, we have. Oh, yes. <laughs> we went on the dark web and we pulled out the nationwide Jubilee fair. So good, isn't it? A remarkable document of those times. Broadcast two days previously, just before all the royal balcony waving shit. Uh, Let's go through it. It's mad. It's mad. The moment I started watching it, I mean, I did get that familiar feeling of looking for an exit, you know, wondering how long this was going to last, the pool to see that it's like 90 minutes of this shit. But I started finding it strangely compelling. It's a different country, isn't it? Sort of. It is. And not just because steadily I found myself totally seduced and falling in love with Valerie Singleton for the first time, but Mm. partly because of the juxtaposition of the show. You know, it's got these strained studio pieces. Big chunk of pride time with so many audience members milling about. But I started enjoying it for when it went to the streets Mm. and just spoke to these glassy-eyed flag-shagging pricks. It was actually strangely reassuring to see that the great shittest public who celebrate these things, (laughs) they've always been these docile, chirpy kind. Mm. much as they are now so yeah it's it's a mental hour and a half yeah it's got to be one of the finest things ever broadcast during the golden age (laughs) of British television it's a fitting tribute to our bejeweled (laughs) superiors it's yeah it's 90 minutes of it's like a studio full of scum like real bank holiday peasants (laughs) and it's like most celebrations of royal occasions it really ends up being a festival of a certain kind of britishness yeah right? yeah, like yeah plain yeah. cotton underwear curled up white bread corned beef sandwiches and <laughs> coppers who look like graham gooch it's that <laughs> world you know what i mean mm. and they're, so they're, they're all like milling about in the studio and it's like the boys and girls from nationwide are holding it all together mm. yeah it's hosted by frank boff of course mm. who i notice isn't sitting down <laughs> right but he is dressed like brian jones for some reason yeah he is isn't he um, <laughs> but yeah but in this unchanging england he's a reassuring reminder that we do still have progress of a sort because back then frank boff's presence and manner and look were ideal for primetime television but his mm. private life almost finished his career uh whereas nowadays his private life would be celebrated but his yeah, presence yeah, yeah, and yeah. manner and look would get him banned from television <laughs> um so he's in this giant studio full of these flag-waving now-deads um, introducing <laughs> guests. Like, they've got Humphrey Littleton, of mm. all people, in mm. the studio mm. with his band because nothing says monarchy like New Orleans jazz. 
um, yes, Queen's favourite music, I'm sure. Mm. Uh, but it's because, like most patriotic occasions, it's really a nostalgia trip. So that's yeah, there I'm for the, yeah, yeah. that middle-aged generation of woolen pullover-wearing, national service-doing, goon-show-listening, public school homosexuality-dabbling, pre-Beatles <laughs> British men, you know, and mm. God bless Humph, but listening to this, it really is hard work. It's like, uh, <laughs> I remember Louis Armstrong said to me, he said, who do I sign this to? <laughs> and they go around the country, like on like OB stuff to, to meet yeah. the people out. And mm. so there's like some piping fools at Edinburgh Castle. Yeah, it's a proper shortbread tin of an OB, isn't it? That? Yeah, but yeah, and then they go of Wales. Mm. And nobody says in Wales, like, how do you feel about the fact that all the castles of Wales aren't actually Welsh castles? They're fortifications built by the English to uh, <laughs> subjugate <laughs> Wales. And they're so impressive because the English wanted to strike fear into your hearts and remind you of your place in this country. Mm. They don't say that. They go no. to Cardiff Castle and they say to some kids what do you like best about the Queen yeah. uh, to which the answers are she likes dogs and <laughs> yes. uh, I like the way she waves uh. <laughs> I dug the uh, there was total Wickerman vibes when they do go to that castle in Wales a stunning aerial yes. shot of Diane the presenter in the middle of a maypole dance <laughs> You can almost smell the singed pubes and, you know, John Stapleton cutting some capers and using his bladder. The Stapleton of knowledge. (laughs) But the the weird motif as well throughout the show, wherever they go, outside or or, or inside the studio, is they've encouraged audience members to bring in objects that they think summate the last 25 years of British history. And and it's just so bizarre. It's grotesque to see. How many the fucking old dears are perfectly happy to fall into every stereotype of just yes. confused old racist nan? Whether it's a, a woman saying that <laughs> her object is her artificial hips. Do you remember? What yes. the fuck? <laughs> Some daft old cow from Harrow on the Hill talking about Churchill. And then there's that woman who says, you know, quite darkly, she's quite old. She starts saying quite darkly, you know, what a pity some people can't enjoy England. And the presenter senses that she's going to embark on some rant about the darkies. <laughs> so she moves on. That inner Enoch is festering under the surface yes. of a lot of the stuff here. Yeah. I mean, the whole tone is, oh, f- weren't things better then? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Completely. And then there is quite a lot of imperialist bilge as well mm. like there's somebody comes on talking about the commonwealth and they say like as a boast well w- we made all these countries independent yeah well that's one way of looking at it <laughs> did you notice that paul burnett the kind of this lanky gormless knob who looks a bit like prince charles yes at the beginning yeah he gets interviewed keeps his hands in his pockets of course doubtless his fingers don't look like a 10 pack of richmond sausages sizzling and singing <laughs> in a pan so we wanted them hid but yeah oh man some mad moments and 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 they go to edinburgh and wales and 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 cardiff sorry or was it chepstow i can't remember mm. but um you know they, they find, there? No. no of course not there were some great moments featuring people who simply don't exist anymore and i don't just mean that they're dead i mean those sort of people don't yeah, exist yeah. anymore I was particularly struck by Mrs. Duncan, who's introduced in Edinburgh, who has kept a royal scrapbook going for over a hundred (laughs) volumes. And she speaks with this kind of cut glass poshness Mm. that's a really careful construction. Yeah, Yeah, she's well hyacinth, isn't she? Very much so. And you can detect this sense of old fuckers. I 
thinking that the values that, that they were taught, you know, total loyalty to king and country, have absconded in some way. So that's a faint thing to the whole show. Yeah, you, you know, yeah. It's very telling that, you know, they look back at the 50s and they look back at the 60s with fondness, but there's no sort of, yeah, there, there's this sense that today, right now, things are horrible. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, we need to bring these values back. But fuck me. They should have tried to lighten it a bit. Go, Mrs. Duncan, out of interest, you Rangers or Celtic? <laughs> <laughs> Just raises one eyebrow and looks like. But yeah, lots of um, looking back to the 60s. Maybe this is where it all begins. Maybe the mod revival starts right here on Nationwide Jubilee Fair. Yeah. <laughs> you know, lots of Union Jacks. But, yeah. but look back at the 60s is so, I mean, obviously, look, this isn't a critical piece, uh, uh, this show, but it's so fucking shallow, isn't it? It's like yes. miniskirts, <laughs> the Beatles. There's oh, an yeah. astonishing yep. bit. I think my favourite, well, well not, there's too many favourite bits in this, where two of the presenters, for some reason, they go down this thing called the Tunnel of Love. In yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in the studio and what flashes up I mean well, there's two bizarre things about it firstly it's just a collage of various famous couples from the past 25 years so you got I think you got you got Paul and Linda haven't you and you got Mick and Marianne and then straight yeah. after Mick yeah. and Bianca and, mm. but they, they keep the presenters there as if they're travelling through this journey of love yes. <laughs> they're cuddling up to each other aren't it's they it's just bizarre and, and oh there's too many too many amazing bits um, yeah there's also a chef, um, a French chef, and a comedy French chef. <laughs> French, how dare that? Yeah. yeah. Um, who cooks like, he's cooked these um, ridiculous dishes to one of the queens. <laughs> it reminded me very much, because they're so literal, these dishes. It reminded me very much of an episode of Great British Menu I watched when they had to cook something to mark the 100th anniversary of the end of World War One, and, and all the chef's creations were pretty much, you know, like two spherical mounds of raspberry coulis foam on a bed of chocolate dust representing the, you know... <laughs> the shot off genitals of an infantryman in Verdun or something it was just so fucking literal uh, there's all these bizarre tableaus and the chef oh my god I mean Taylor can you describe the food he makes I don't know yeah well I mean first of all this bloke is like a he-whoring caricature like I was yes, really, really suspicious is. that he's not actually French at all mm. Mm. but he comes on and he's like <laughs> yeah he goes I have made food for the queen and it's like <laughs> it's just repulsive things sealed in aspic yeah. <laughs> which being French he's almost certainly pissed in right mm. <laughs> I mean, you know, we we can think, well, okay, maybe this proud Frenchman is here to celebrate the, the Queen of England, yeah. or maybe he's just done what's come naturally straight into the Salmon Royale. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he's got like a, a glazed ham that that has got brown piping on it. And I've description of much of the audience of this as well. Yeah, he's glazed ham. It just looks like a big sort of football but just covered in like some sort of weird uh, opaque white stuff mm. and brown piping on it that says e2r <laughs> and he's got yeah you've just got this idea that if you eat that you're just gonna instantly vomit it all straight back up again <laughs> but it doesn't matter because in my country that is a great compliment yes. <laughs> um, his best dish that he's got is um duck a l'orange which couldn't even be bothered to do swan a l'orange <laughs> i guess he couldn't get a permission mm. but it is duck a l'orange appears to have an impromptu flanders gravestone sticking out of it <laughs> you know those little like sort of simple little gravestones they put where they don't know where the body is mm, it's one yeah. of those like so reading you know r.i.p duck 
<laughs> R.I.P. Mr. Wadley. Um, but you've never seen such a feast of congealed gloop. In fact, I don't believe he's a chef at all. His accent is obviously fake, and his beard and all that. I think he's a disguised anarchist bomber. <laughs> and any moment, he's just going to rip off his large-nosed mask to reveal a, a little thin moustache and a wide-brimmed hat and a yeah. cape and a stubby, flat, filterless cigarette, and then the duck explodes. Uh, <laughs> but that's well. the thing. That, that, that there's lots of ideas in this show that, that read yeah. on the page might have made sense, but <laughs> maybe a kind of sense. But when they achieve realisation, the result is just... There's, occasionally in this show, there's just genuinely, mind-meltingly surreal moments. They yeah. tie a message to a pigeon... Um, yes, yes, they do. <laughs> the message—it's a three-two-one clue or something. It's just yes, bizarre. It and then it cuts to this guy playing, you know, a sort of fanfare for the Queen with this massive legend on the screen: "Airborne, the tribute nationwide, our affection." And it's just where the how did we get here? <laughs> and that bloke looks just like Fred Quilly bent jockey. <laughs> but yeah, generally. The main thought you have while watching the Nationwide Jubilee Fair is how strange that the most enthusiastic supporters of our national insanity should be actual mad people. <laughs> like, it's always a danger for royal reporters throughout time. Like, wherever you find them, when they're out in the mall or outside the palace of whoever's just died, like, whenever they have to interview the crowds for royal occasions, like, well, let me just speak to this lady and gentleman here. <laughs> oh, dear, they're actually insane. Okay, let's speak to this person over here. Oh no, he's insane too. <laughs> and the artifacts that people have sent in that they've made as well just reveal a national insanity. Oh yeah, the, the load of shit that people have made for, as a gift for the Queen. Yeah. yeah, a tiny little crown and also a massive crown, more befitting, you yes. know, a colossus queen or something. It's just, there's just so much strange shit in it. And a fucking enormous Welsh love spoon. <laughs> yeah. And there's that radio that, that obviously there's loads of companies trying to get a free advert and yeah, they've, yeah. they've done a radio which is just a big silver brick mm. that's worth thousands of pounds. Ugh. Also, I was really disgusted to note that there were a load of really amateurish paintings of the Queen by Henry Mellish Infant School who were the Rodney Bennett to my school's Granger. <gasps> oh, no. You look at them, you go, yeah, your parents have done that and they're still shit. <laughs> <laughs> and one would think in, in, in a show so jam-packed full of insanity that the, the music sections would introduce some normality into proceedings, mm. but, but they no. don't really. No, I mean, no, but beyond don't. anything else, at one point, I think the kids are given woodwind instruments or something, because I swear down, when those, you know that big royal pie gets bought out and Frank Boff yes. has a bit? <laughs> Yeah. They bring out a selection of royal food, don't they? At that point, it sounds like Albert Euler's spiritual unity is playing in the background. <laughs> it's fucking demented. <laughs> they bring out a load of ladies um, mm. dressed up as um, Henry VIII's knockoffs, mm. still with their heads on, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, bringing out things in aspic and just enormous stupid pies. <laughs> I think the goal of all the food sections in this programme was to make you feel a bit more uh, grateful for yeah, yeah. the sausage rolls you were going to get. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Are you buffet this afternoon? Yeah. But yeah, all the way through. I mean, because the musical passages, there, there's a bit where New Edition, the dance troupe. Yeah, um, suddenly not Bobby Brown and his mates. No, unfortunately. Um, dance to some. Jubilee f- Girl! <laughs> you used to run half the world! Yeah, well, they dance to some 50s stuff. They do the twist. Yes. With this really palpable sense of sadness of what's lost. Empire deprivation trauma in full effect mm. going on there. Yeah, and we it's get- like being in a care home, isn't it? It is. Yes, yeah, it, <laughs> it really is. We also have Alan. Are we going to talk about Alan Price's song? Yes, we are. Um, yeah. Alan Price sings a song all about the sixties. Yes, um, it's a kind of proto. We didn't start the fire, isn't it? Yes, um, <laughs> cherry picking certain moments. What what moments does he cherry pick again? I think I, I, uh, he mentions the Beatles. He mentions those two pandas getting it on. Yeah, he does do the Chatterley Band and the Beatles' first album. That's Oh my god! He doesn't mention his appearance in Bob Dylan's "Don't Look Back," drinking vodka and orange by taking a massive swig out of a bottle of vodka, then a massive swig out of a bottle of orange, (laughs) (laughs) and doing the mixing in his mouth. Pretty awful song. Searches are also on. Oh yeah. And actually, you know what? The searches. I mean, look, it's a shit show. I think they're the least shitty in the whole thing because they've got a nice little jangle to them. It's already that thing of the 60s. It was the last time we were any good and we are just declined as a world power now because there's there's a bizarre tableau at the end where, yeah, like Taylor says, all the countries that we supposedly, you know, out of the beneficence of our heart gave them independence. (laughs) Scroll up the screen. The Union Jack gets lowered. It's it's so weird. Mm. Um, but, you know, if I was sending someone something to diagnose the mental illness that is being British, I probably would send them this. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's fucking amazing to watch all these old fools and think, my God, these people won the war. <laughs> because, look, we all spend a lot of time criticising that tedious British self-deprecating sense of humour, you know, that, like, all the endless TikToks of the general public dancing, you Mm. know, Mm. and all those sort of comedy shows where the only joke is that someone who looks awful does a dance dressed up as someone who looks good, and you just laugh. Mm. Just that shit British self-deprecating bollocks, that, that mindset where... It's like to stop people getting above their station, you know, mm. where like, it's that, sort of, oh, well, at least they don't take themselves too seriously. Mm. Oh, who do you think you are? Why don't you join in with the fun? It's this thing that where yeah. they won't be happy until we're all walking around with clown noses on with our trousers mm. around our ankles, right? But I'm never going to criticise that again because watching the Nationwide Jubilee Fair, it dawned on me that if we hadn't had that in our darkest hour, We'd have been bigger Nazis than the Nazis <laughs> and madder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, it ends on a thrilling denouement, doesn't it? Oh, God, yeah. The winner of the Nationwide Jubilee Song Contest. <sighs> what a thing that is. An event of such monumental musical arsenic that we decided <laughs> that we, we just can't toss it away here. Yeah. So we're going to do a very special bonus podcast about it only available on patreon yeah you are not going to want to miss this <laughs> no no so now is the time to get on patreon if you want that fucking hell so on the cover of the enemy this week a massive mushroom cloud <laughs> on the cover of record mirror the Sex Pistols. Fucking hell, first time we've mentioned them. Mm. It's like they've been censored. Yeah. The number one LP in the country is a rival by ABBA. 
Over in America, the US number one is Sir Duke by Stevie Wonder. And the number one LP is, of course, Rumours by Fleetwood Mac. So, boys, what were we doing in June of 1977? Well, I remember it being a reasonably big deal at my school. I'd literally Mm. just started school. It was my first year Mm. of primary school, I think. And Mm. the first two things i remember about school are the local rector came in to give us a talk about god every week (laughs) thankfully hands off (laughs) and then this peculiar assembly for the silver jubilee where we all had to queue up to be presented with a a jubilee coin yes i got one of those yeah me too yeah it's like some base metal medallion you know now worth one pound 79 on ebay <laughs> no doubt just to leave us in no doubt as to our place in the jubilee picture mm. you mm. know mm. um and all the union jacks were up everywhere and hideous potato print portraits of the queen <laughs> done by the slightly older kids you know and at the time it never struck me as odd that both these things the rector and the queen were essentially compulsory and yeah, considered yeah. a valid an important part of a child's education yes. in a free post-war society mm. you had to be there and you weren't allowed to snigger or talk back mm. Mm. and i wonder sometimes whether it was that kind of upbringing that made our generation such piss takers mm. right so mm. yeah so widely atheistic and and cynical about the royals it's like in america you can't mention god in schools at least until the current supreme court get to grips with that but there's there's immense social pressure in a lot of the country to go to church and all that sort of stuff but then they look at britain with when we were growing up compulsory christian prayer Mm, every day and americans are astonished that the result of that is a nation of atheists and apatheists Mm. when in fact that's part of it you know you grow up associating the certainly the church of england with boredom pomposity yeah um the shit experience of school people you don't like droning on at you in (laughs) cold wooden halls um and you see straight through it and you can't get away fast enough it's not some magical thing that exists in your community outside of the imperfect state Mm. you know offering you salvation you can see it for what it is it's part of the apparatus so Maybe it would have been a good thing in the end to, uh, you know, if they'd made us bow down to Her Majesty uh, a little bit more, you know, really rub it in. Might have made it seem less of a jolly lark, you know. Taylor's right. It was sort of mandatory in 77, unlike Mm. now. I mean, there's photographic evidence of what I was doing for the the Silver Jubilee. Mm. You know, I I was sitting in a garden in Oxenden Way, Ernstford Grange Commentary, pretty much appalled by everything I was seeing, hearing and experiencing. (laughs) Mm. I mean, uh, you know... I was only five, probably like ten. I, I think I had a dim awareness of the Jubilee and also mm. an unsureness about it. No. And whether, I mean, the worry, of course, of whether I was expected to be part of anything. I mean, shock horror, that would have been fucking awful. Mm. We were given a big coin. Um, older kids in our school got given Jubilee sweets. What? Um, yeah, a little tin of sweets. Fucking hell. Um, and some were, some were given a leather bookmark Ooh. as well. <laughs> yeah, we, oh, yeah. 
Um, but I do also remember the sort of cowardly likes of the Beano in 77 having special mm. Jubilee covers, you yes. know, plastered in the Union Jack. The newsstands, you wouldn't see that many in Union Jacks until, you know, the rise of Britpop, basically. <laughs> uh, as an adult... Did it have Dennis the Menace on the cover slapping his arse and saying, softies, go home? <laughs> <laughs> um, it should have. But as an adult, you know, you could have avoided it, I guess. Because these things always bring all the cunts out the woodwork. But oh, as yes. a kid, you were plunged into all this nonsense. And like any public event involving that horrible, hateful idea of participation, for a small, mm. shy child, I loathed every moment of it. I've seen the photo of your face now. It just says <sighs> everything. Well, one of my major terrors my it's whole life... It's a fucking LP is... cover waiting to happen, <laughs> One of my major terrors my whole life, as I may have mentioned in the past on Sharp Music, is, is characterful dads. Yes. You know, and, and things like the Jubilee, much like Comet Relief, now it just seemed to be an excuse for all these wannabe sort of new faces cunts wannabe it's and knockout dads to come out the woodwork put on a dress put on some unsuitably ribald entertainment for children and, and as far as i can ascertain from the photographs i have i'm in someone's back garden and there's two characterful dads both bearded because it was after all 1977 oh yeah expecting us kids to watch their pratfalls and be amused and, and, and shockingly it seems most of the kids were i, mm. I was wary of one of those chaps his name was uncle john just like everyone we knew was called uncle something mm. um and he'd always put himself about on special occasions you know what i mean yeah. so at the old people's home when we lived there whenever there'd be like a special day like christmas or something like that he'd be there dressed as something i remember him doing santa i remember him doing drag and jokingly coming on to my dad at a show <laughs> sitting on his lap and flirting with him which everyone in this old people's home found fucking hilarious because my dad was quite straight laced but obviously mm. you know no one needs to see their dad going through that it angered me because <laughs> um, I was just grateful that I didn't have a character were you dad scared that like he, your dad was going to run off with him <laughs> <laughs> not at all but you know you don't want to see your dad get hurt and you don't want to see your no. dad laughed at no and, and, and there's this photo and you also don't me. want to see your dad lamping someone in a dress <laughs> no, no no but there is this photo Al yeah you're right of me sitting in a tent with a plate of jubilee food before me looking as I normally did at occasions whether with family or friends any occasion you know like I just wanted it to end when can I go home please <laughs> well this week really sticks in my mind because on the Saturday before the entire family as we did on a Saturday night round about that time we went out to the Meadows to have a drink in the Queens with me nonna and grandpa and they'd let me and my seven year old little sister sit in the corner or hang about in the doorway which was a fucking massive upgrade from having to sit in the car outside a pub without the radio on like I used to do with my dad but on that night Scotland had just ravaged Wembley that afternoon and Practically every Scottish person in Nottingham had just come out to get absolutely battered. (laughs) And the the, the landlord refused point blank, and rightly so, to let kids witness the carnage that was going to unfold. Uh. But, of course, it didn't stop me dad and grandpa and me nono staying in there and having a drink. Mm. So I remember for hours sitting on the back seat of my dad's car watching some absolutely graphic violence (laughs) like three feet away from me and it got to one point where there's two blokes just practically fighting 
with pint glasses with each other mm. and my mum in her best white trouser suit trying to lean over the back and cover my eyes Aww. and me dodging out the way and anticipating my status as king of the playground when we went back to school yeah. on Wednesday. Were you scared? <laughs> oh, Were you scared? No, because I was in a car and I was with my yeah, parents yeah, so yeah. I thought, oh, nothing could go wrong here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, actual Jubilee Day, like you, I've been given a Jubilee medal mm. but also we got given a Jubilee mug which had the uh, official logo on it and lots of filigree and gold shit all around it. Yeah, yeah. But it also had a massive logo of BBC Radio Nottingham (laughs) and Pork Farms, (laughs) which was a local sausage roll and pork pie factory. Mm -hmm. But the actual day, it had been decided upon pretty early in the day that, to my disgust, no one on our street could be arsed with a street party. And that ruined my fucking VE Day fantasies. Because I was really looking forward to a, a proper street party with, you know, bunting and all that kind of shit. Yeah. So we just put up my grandpa's blue ensign on the garage door right. and some massive swirly red, white and blue banners by the side of the house. And then we went to the Lammies next door and uh, their dad played loads of Boe. My dad played loads of Elvis. And I was just absolutely disgusted that uh, I wasn't having my VE day moment. <laughs> so by the end of it, I can remember lying flat on on the settee it absolutely bored and angry Aww. with a union jack over me pretending to be asleep and just seething while my dad and lammy got pissed up and took turns to say fucking elvis is the fucking king in <laughs> that was the day that i became completely anti-monarchist <laughs> lammy the bloke next door absolute fucking vision rare two weeks before this episode i was around his house being babysat and um, we were watching Liverpool going through the streets holding up the European Cup on the top deck of a bus. And he turned around to me, a nine-year-old boy, and he said, you see that? Two years' time, that's going to be Forest." Wow. Mm. And I looked at him as if he'd fucking gone out, but my God, he was so right. Yeah, an unwise prediction at that point, it has to be said. Mm. This is when Forrest were in the second division. Yeah, just got promoted. Right. I mean, music-wise, I'm still into Show Waddy Waddy and playing the shit out of Elvis and Little Richard and Buddy Ollie on a tape-to-tape player that my dad had liberated from his round as a removal man and not yielding to punk at all because I hadn't heard any yet. You know, the only thing I knew about punk was what I was seeing in the Sunday papers and they all looked very scary and I was just worried about ever seeing one, which I hadn't yet. Um, I would have definitely been on the side of the Teds in the forthcoming King's Road Wars. (laughs) But... You know, Forrester just got promoted. Judge Dredd is fighting Call Me Kenneth in the Robot Rebellion in 2000 AD. The six weeks holiday's coming up. You know, it's all good. There's going to be a lot of Sabutio that's going to be played over the next six weeks or so. But that's all it... When, when you're a kid, that's the thing, though. You're, you don't have any affection towards the royal family. So just one bad day, that's all you need to mm. turn yourself into a committed anti-royalist. Yeah. For me, it wasn't this day. It was um, uh, Charles and Di's wedding. Um, well, I yeah. just got fucking sick of it and decided to hate the monarchy as a result um you know that's what it takes i mean a a few weeks after this episode i actually saw the queen and prince philip and i was standing in the exact same spot where all those scottish people were beating the shit out of each other wow yeah luckily they'd stopped by then yeah yeah (laughs) and my jaw just swinging wide open because it was the first time i'd ever seen a famous person yeah they're the people on my grandpa's tea tray there they are in front of me and I was absolutely awestruck. But to be honest with you, if it had been Rod Hull and Emu, I would have had the same reaction. <laughs> and then, 
you know, afterwards, I'm walking about in a daze, and I thought, hang on, I waved at them, and they didn't wave back at me. Bastard. Yeah. How dare they? That is star power, isn't it? Mm. Um, there's no denying it. I mean, I even felt it once, like in 2010, when <laughs> when Gordon Brown visited where I worked. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, famous people. Oh, I've only seen you on the telly before. Fuck me, you're in real life. There's nothing yeah. between us but air. That's yeah. always a mind-blowing moment, isn't it? Well, chaps, I do believe it's time to retire to the chart music crap room and rip open a box or two and peruse an issue of the music press from this very week. And this time, we've gone for Melody Maker, 11th of June, 1977. Would you come and uh, have a riffle with me? Oh, yeah. yeah, that's yeah, yeah. On the cover. While the enemy get into the party mood with a mushroom cloud and the headline, A Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall, the new musical express consumer's guide to the nuclear age, Melody Maker focus on what's really happening in the world of music this week. The earth-shattering news that Martin Carthy has rejoined Steel Ice Band. <laughs> <laughs> the cover is dominated by a great Barry Plummer shot of Bob Marley from his recent sellout shows at the the rainbow in the news wow unsurprisingly the main story is the sex pistols and their current single god save the queen which is selling like a bastard despite a total nationwide tv and radio ban under the headline pistols beat the censors the maker reports on the blanket ban on the single by the media quote a statement issued jointly by BBC Radio and Television says the corporation has no intention of playing the record because it is in gross bad taste. And they intend sticking to this edict, even if the single gets to number one in the charts. Radio One spokesman James Conway said, We're not pretending the record isn't there. We mention it when announcing our chart listings, but we refuse to play it. If it reaches number one, our top 20 show will finish with the number two record. The compare will say what's at the top, and then it will be straight into the news headlines. Over at BBC TV Centre, Robin Nash is asked whether they'll be allowing Johnny and the Chaps on top of the pops, and he says the single is quite unsuitable for our Thursday <laughs> evening pop treat. A BBC spokesman is also quoted, admitting that it was unfortunate for the Sex Pistols that their chart success coincided with Jubilee Week. <laughs> it's, it's what bad luck. Yes. Terrible timing on their part. If it had been at any other time in the year, we might have given it the occasional play. Oh, would they bollocks? <laughs> would they bollocks? And the IBA and ITV have not only followed suit, presumably denying the band the opportunity to play the single on Get It Together, Run Around and The Sooty Show, <laughs> but they've also put the block on Virgin's attempts to buy advertising time. The piece concludes by reporting that Radio Luxembourg have taken the issue a step further Ooh. by ignoring the single completely. As far as they are concerned, it simply does not exist, and God Save the Queen does not feature anywhere in their top 30, nor will it at any time. Ooh. Oh, good job they didn't do a song about the Queen of Luxembourg. Yes, <laughs> the, the fascist regime. 
<laughs> the rest of the news is dominated by gig and tour announcements, including Blondair, City Boy, and the Curzel Flyers. But the big news is that the Beach Boys are coming to Wembley, and they're bringing along the fragrant Romeos of pop themselves, Dr. Hook, <laughs> as support. While promoter Ken Campbell is mooting the very unreal possibility of Richie Blackmore's Rainbow and the Steve Gibbons Band headlining an open-air concert at Salford Rugby Ground, <laughs> the gig never materialises. There's a party going on at Alexandra Palace. A communist party. The 12-hour People's Jubilee Festival, organised by the CP, will feature Soft Machine, Aswad, and none other than the white-shod commissar of heterosexual rock and roll, Shaking Stevens. <laughs> yeah, man. Brothers and sisters, we shall keep fighting until the only bands allowed to perform here are those personally approved by Moscow, <laughs> which we are sure will include the Soft Machine and Aswad. <laughs> well, everyone else who plugs in electric guitar will be taken to a five foot by five foot concrete cell with a metal grill in the floor for the blood to drain away and don't let decadent western propaganda trick you into thinking this is not desirable if you don't fancy that then top promoter richard wrigley has announced a series of jubilee concerts in a circus tent next to tower bridge from mid-july to october they include the likes of Lindsay DePaul, Perry Como, Cliff Richard and the Shadows, John Lord performing his latest solo album, Sarah Bands, with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra and the New York City Ballet, and reunion shows for Deep Purple and King Crimson. Yeah. On second thoughts, all power to the Soviets. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Malcolm McLaren and Bernie Rhodes have announced plans for a two-day Punk Fest on the outskirts of Bristol, featuring the Pistols, the Tubes, the Clash, Iggy Pop and the Ramones. As you can imagine, we're running into all sorts of problems with the local council, says Rhodes to the maker, but the site is fairly isolated and hopefully won't lead to any protests. In more flared news, CBS have announced that punters paying the £1 admission fee and turning up before 7.30 for any show on the upcoming CBS promo package tour, which features Crawler, the band which had Paul Kossoff in it before he died last year, Moon and Boxer, will be presented with a free EP, whether they like it or not. <laughs> it features all three bands and is part of CBS's ultimately futile promo push for three shit bricked cock rock acts <laughs> the maker reluctantly confirms however that steely dan will not be touring britain in september contrary to reports elsewhere <laughs> but johnny thunders and the heartbreakers are shaking off their recent arrest in birmingham on suspicion of breaking into a telephone box by announcing that they're going to bring one thousand pounds worth of fireworks to their july the fourth show at an as yet unannounced location this does not come off, unfortunately, but they do spend that evening playing the Vortex on its opening night with Buzzcocks, The Fall and John Cooper Clock. A thousand pounds worth of fireworks, fucking hell. Can you so, imagine? In 1977. That's a lot of fun. Mm. Just imagining the Heartbreakers, Buzz Cox, The Fall and John Cooper Clark playing to a room full of mildly disappointed Steely Dan fans. <laughs> <laughs> 
And finally, under the headline, New Beatles Show on Tour, we learned that a new musical based upon Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club uh-huh. Band begins a six-week national tour later this month. Entitled Lucy in the Sky and directed by Michael Bogdanoff, it follows the fortunes of the girl whose hopes and ambitions are drawn to the magic of the circus, with Beatles tunes interspersed with various speciality circus acts. Yeah, they, they've gone straight to for the benefit of Mr. Kite and gone, yeah, and uh, what next? <laughs> Serious question. Has there ever been anything associated with the Beatles but which wasn't actually created by the Beatles themselves which Mm. shouldn't have been set alight in an oil drum (laughs) because <laughs> I can't think of anything. No. Uh, apart from the rules, yeah. Oh, Nothing. of course. Yeah. Yeah. In the interview section, well, Harry Doherty hits the road with 10cc in the wake of the departure of Lowell Cream and Kevin Godlair and reports that the whole band are feeling great about the split. <laughs> the old band was like a musical eunuch. It had no balls. This one is much healthier, says Eric Stewart. I'd resign my to the fact that life in the music business just stank but at this stage there's no aggravation nobody's bored no self-consciousness or funny remarks oh get the reggae singles going lads. <laughs> see i would accept this split if they'd renamed themselves 5cc <laughs> why didn't they yeah actually that would uh that might maybe would have been singly inappropriate since he's suggesting there that Kevin Godley and Lowell Cream each represented minus one testicle. Um, yes. Their departure is a kind of negative castration, um, <clears throat> allowing the remaining two members to come up with testosterone-packed hard hitters like Dreadlock Holiday, which they yes. just wouldn't have been capable of. Bringing. From Rochdale to Ocho Rios. Yeah. Still, there is something for all those uh, disappointed Steely Dan fans. Go and see uh, <laughs> aluminium Dan, as I like to call them. <laughs> Stanley Mises catches up with Ian Hunter in New York, and they have a natter about his new album, Overnight Angels. I've done an all-out rock album because nothing else moves them in England. Any modicum of common sense is ignored there. They have to be faced with the national front to be moved. It's so civilised it disappears up its own arse. Gentility and civility is what keeps them down. The great minds have left. The Labour government is in total chaos and when the Conservatives come in, they don't get on with the unions. They're kicking out the middle class and bringing in Asians. There's no difference in them as people, but the economic support is not there. I'm a patriot, totally loyal. I live in New York because what's going on in the UK is stupid. It drives me nuts. Oh, do you see the nationwide jubilee fair, mate? What the <laughs> fuck are going on about? What does he mean they're kicking out the middle class? No idea. And bringing in Asians. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like, I've heard people, an interesting line there, isn't he? Yeah, I've heard people make that argument like, you know, oh, kicking working class people out of jobs and giving it all to immigrants. But what does he mean they're kicking out the middle class? <laughs> From what? Maybe he's been in America a while and consequently he's got that middle class definition that they use all right. in the British definition, so perhaps it's that. Mm. He's probably just pissed. Yeah, 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 more like Rob Halford and KK Downing of Judas Priest sit down with Harry Docter and pretty much predict Nawabum. 
I can't understand why really big bands do things like Earl's Court. It's a total money thing. You don't need to put half a million watts in there and use a million light bulbs, says Halford. Bands like Zeppelin should play more gigs and give the kids something back. The kids in our audience want to feel the music as well as hear it. They want the floorboards vibrating. When he asks if he feels his style of music has had his day, he says, I don't think rock is dead. Punk to me is rock. I saw the pistols and they packed a wallop. Good raw rock material and it created a reaction. I like their directness and musical punch. They haven't left us behind, though. We may have left them behind. Oh. (laughs) And finally, Paul Barrera of Little Feet whinges to Roy Carr about his band's inability to score a hit and indulges in some light bitching about Lau George. Lau's trouble is that he doesn't do anything by half measures and recently he's been overdoing it, staying up too many nights in a row, too much booze, too many pills to help him stay away wake insufficient sleep and in the end he went down with a bad case of hepatitis perhaps next (laughs) time he'll think twice says paul 14 months before george dies from a heart attack this is not a good way of cementing good band relations man doing no doing your bitching in an interview like that fuck me single reviews well in the chair this week is caroline coon who stops being the original female punk journo it's okay to like for a bit (laughs) and addresses a slow of distinctly non-punky product. Single of the week is So High, Rock Me Baby and Roll Me Away by Dave Mason, which is an inspired love song celebrating dream days of good time fulfilment. The single is commercial without sounding like a cross between Peter Frampton and the Carpenters. A hit. Reader, it wasn't. <laughs> there are two singles out that have been written and produced by Dominic Bugatti and Frank Muska, the King Tubby and Scratch Perry of Coddiness, who wrote reggae like it used to be last year. According to CC, the first, Woman in Love by Twigger, has definite chart potential. It's the best musicianship, production and guidance for Twiggy yet, says Kaz. A simple love debtor, superficially catchy, but hardly inspired. It failed to chart, but eight months later the song was given to the Three Degrees, who took it to number three for three weeks. The other Bugatti Musker single, Heaven on the Seventh Floor by the conquering lion himself, Paul Nestor Nicholas O.M., fares (laughs) much better. Paul, an artist who excels in sugary showbiz presentation, is never less than a bunch of energetic good fun. But it's a coat down for Dandy in the Underworld by (laughs) T-Rex. The very lovely Mark, I was the first punk, B, slows it right down for a deathly dirge, suitable for the gloomiest of occasions, like the burial of the album from which this song was taken. Was Caroline Coon being played by Jane Asher in this singles page as well? (laughs) Would explain a lot. Queen's first EP, a selection of tunes from their last four LPs called Queen's First EP, is out, but Caroline doesn't understand why they've even bothered. Staunch fans need hardly bother, since they have all the albums, and the packaging is too dull for want for aesthetic reasons alone. 
If the band is searching out new fans, then why release such unlikely bait like these second-rate tracks? Another EP, Kirilla by Demis Roussos, fares much better. There's a move afoot to persuade us all to holiday on our own shores this year, and really, with anything but English being spoken from Brighton to St Ives and the King of Benidorm Blues releasing this smashing EP, who needs the Costa Brava? A hit! Forced jollity of the kind some adults imagine will appeal to ten-year-olds, says Coon of Southern Comfort by Bernie Flint. The song drifts tritely along, with Flint obviously trying to do his best behind gritted teeth. The Small Faces scored a hit last year with the release of Ichiku Park, and they're having another go by shoving out Tin Soldier, but Caroline spends a review comparing them to the Buzzcocks before stating that it's a fine reminder of the fresh rock style which is still admired by young musicians today rose royce a follow-up i want to get next to you with an even better tune i'm going down but our kaz doesn't reckon it good try people but it won't work it's the third or fourth track lifted from the soundtrack to car wash classy and moody but without the instant appeal of next to you no no duck Slow Down by John Miles is an unimaginative disco sound which reduces everything to the lowest common denominator. Everybody Have a Good Time by Archie Bell and the Drolls is an uncontrived atmosphere of gay disco abandon. Dancing in the Dark by Aka Bilk is debonair and suave. And Anything That's Rock and Roll by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers sees a band that many people are dying to be a huge success pissing on their chips once more. If this were not another song with boring lyrics about rock and roll is rock and roll, etc., it would be great. Block out the words and you have a near-perfect diamond-hard sound, but it's not a patch on American Girl. This band are requiring a second division aura. Oh, harsh. Uh, but you know, you know what? Caroline Kuhn, right, routinely held up as a kind of godfather, yes. god, godmother, if you mm. like, of, of punk writing. Her stuff, when I've read it, it's actually not bad. You get the sense she's a music fan. You get the sense she knows mm. what she's talking about. She, yeah. I think, can be effectively contrasted um, with what's going on at the enemy at this point. Because, because mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the enemy front cover this week of, of the Mushroom Cloud looks tremendously exciting. But I've actually looked at that issue. And, and yeah. oh, my God, it's terrible. It's full really? of Tony Parsol and Julie Birchall mm. just chatting shit. And, you know, when mm. you read those guys writing, you genuinely cannot believe they got away with just this unfunny dog yeah, shit writing. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. the the enemy that week, I think the LP reviews page, it's got uh, Julie Birchill slagging off Rock Follies of 77 or something. And you've got oh. all these great names in there. Yeah, there's some Lester Bang stuff, a bit off-colour Lester Bangs, actually. You've got some... Oh, really? Yeah. Um, which he, he sometimes does. But, you know, you've got some Nick Kent stuff in there that's pretty good. But the domination of the enemy in 77 by... Tony Parsol and Julie Birchall is unbelievable. They get loads of pages to just write what mm. they want. Tony Parsol does a whole piece about wanting to drive across America. And it's just fucking sad. What? They've clearly like made an impression, if you like, i.e. generated enough angry readers' letters, that they're now being yes. given 
half the paper and you know yeah. when you read that enemy from the, you know the, I, i'm sure that mushroom cloud cover is probably held up as oh wow wasn't the enemy amazing it put stuff like this on the cover dig into it into the actual issue itself and the writing it's fucking terrible because Birchill and parsons no. were, were always terrible terrible yeah, writers yeah, yeah. so yeah i massively disagree with a lot of what caroline Keane says in this singles page but she was a thousand times a better writer than them too imagine not being able to make nuclear war fun and interesting <laughs> fuck's sake enemy <laughs> but I mean look at what Caroline Coons had to review man fucking Demis Russo Aka Bilk in 1977 as The Clash said no Russos Bilk and Flint in 77 <laughs> clearly not the case but that's it the punk records themselves are few and far between it's still quite a live yeah. phenomenon rather than a recorded phenomenon so you're going to see yeah. them on the live pages but maybe not on the singles pages and certainly not on the album pages yeah you have to feel for any idiots who have to try and think of something to say about Demis Russos and Bernie Flint yeah <laughs> In the LP review section, the lead review this week belongs to Peter Frampton's I'm In You. The follow-up to the massively selling in the USA Frampton comes alive and the dagger is handed to Chris Welch. But after pointing out that it doesn't quite have the magic of his big-selling predecessor, he concedes that it's pleasant, unpretentious, and there is no reason to suppose it won't be another giant smash. (laughs) Golden age of music journey. Right oh yeah, <laughs> it's a toe-tapping smash. David Coverdale has struck out on his own, and his debut LP, White Snake, is received more than favourably by Brian Harrigan. <laughs> of course. <laughs> In a nutshell, he surpassed all expectations. It's easy with the benefit of hindsight to suggest that Coverdale wasn't really at home with the deep purple musical concept, but here he demonstrates where his musical inclinations really lie. The man has already recorded his second solo, and I can tell you now it's even better than this. For good measure, Harrigan tacks on a review of the re-release of his old band's debut LP, Shades of Deep Purple, and deems it a great start to a career and a valuable collector's item. Imagine if you started a metal band in this period and Brian Harrigan didn't like it. You'd be screwed. If Brian Harrigan and Tommy Vance Mm. both thought you were crap, it'd be like being an American fascist now who Donald Trump had a personal problem with. Yeah. be like your career's over before it's begun Coverdale's yeah. just another one of those people fleeing from Richie Blackmore <laughs> because Richie Blackmore just antagonises <laughs> everyone he works with although I think Richie Blackmore's delightful and delicious I think he's hilarious but yeah you know the amount of people who just part company with that guy whether it's Ronnie James Dio from Rainbow or David Coverdale from Deep Purple it's just it, there's something about Richie Blackmore that is truly hilarious like Dolly Parton Tanya Tucker has realised that it's possible for a country singer to cross over but her latest LP Riding Rainbows sees her falling between two stools according to Michael Oldfield the bulk of the album is dreary pop songs on which Tanya wastes her superb country voice Brian Harrigan reckons that bringing in Barry Blue as producer will kick Moon up into the first division with their new LP Turning the Tides it doesn't Michael Oldfield reckons that Two Can Do It Too by Amazing Rhythm Aces is a great album that could have been a masterpiece if they'd spent more time on the lyrics. But Fundamental Role, the debut LP by Walter Egan, is a bit cat shit, according to Harrigan. He really needs to work harder than this if he's going to bring out a memorable album. 
And if you're wondering where all the punk is, it's in the live section, where Blondair, Television and the Cortinas in Bristol gets bouquets and brickbats from Simon Kinnersley. It is with bands like Television and Talking Heads that the more wholesome future of 70s music lies, he says. And he praises the Cortinas for musically extending themselves further than the more usual Holocaust punkorama. But Blondie performed with detached indifference as Debbie Harry went through a series of laughably lame martial arts poses as the band plodded along behind. And Caroline Coon goes to her Ramones Talking Heads and the Saints triple header at the Roundhouse, which she calls one of the most exciting good fun shows of rock to be remembered for a long time to come. <laughs> Thank you, William McGonagall. <laughs> In the gig guide... David could have seen the jam at the winning post Twickenham, or if he'd rather at Chelsea Football Club, <laughs> Hawkwind at the Music Machine, Sarah Vaughan at Ronnie Scott's, Georgie Fame and the Blue Fames at Dingwalls, Mike Harding at Victoria Palace, or Eddie and the Hot Rods at the Rainbow, but probably didn't. Taylor could have seen Cloda Rogers at Billingham Forum. Yes. <laughs> the Damned and the Adverts at Barbarella's. Muscles at Sloopy's Birmingham. Or Strider at Dudley JB's. No, no, it's Cloda Rogers. She's going to bounce up and down on a spring. <laughs> she invented pogoing, didn't she? <laughs> Neil could have seen Meal Ticket and Lou Lewis Band at Coventry College of Education. Oh, Yoffy. Or nipped out to Wolverhampton to check out Trapeze at the Lafayette and fuck all else. <laughs> Sarah could have gone right out to see Limpole at the Aquarius in Chesterfield, Stranglers at the top rank in Sheffield, or caught up with the damned and adverts at Outlook Doncaster. Al could have seen Lou Lewis band at the Boat Club in Nottingham, or ventured out to catch Johnny Nash at Bailey's Club in Leicester, City Boy at the Retford Porterhouse, or the fabulous Poodles at the 76 Club in Burton-on-Trent. And Simon could have seen 5cc at Sophia Gardens in Cardiff, <laughs> bombed over to Bristol to catch the jam at Bristol Polair or darts at the old Granaray, then nipped back to catch Ian Hunter and the Vibrators at the top-ranked Cardiff. Not many decent gigs knocking about. It's 1977, what's going on? Too hot. But, I mean, judging by the news section, most of the managers are just making up gigs that aren't going to happen mm. just, to, just to get in the papers, you know, it's a bit crazy. In the letters page, well, this week's mailbag kicks off with an impassioned letter from Malatus Deville from Derry, Northern Ireland. To all that angry young punks out there, Joe Strummer may look awfully impressive in his battle fatigues, but he and his playmates prance about, pretending to be urban gorillas. Over here, we have had seven years of urban gorillas, only we call them terrorists, which I'm afraid isn't quite as glamorous. It sticks in my gullet to see Strummer clowning about, glorifying the kind of bastards who have wrecked the lives of thousands of people and left a country in ruins. There wasn't anything dashing about the men in the shades and parkers who would roll up to your house to blast you away because they don't like your religion or politics. I hope this puts a new angle on the new punk chic for you. I'm so bored of the UDA, IRA, DUP, UVF, UFF, etc, etc. What does he know? (laughs) I'm sorry, but I have to say that's very naive. (laughs) 
In more contentious news, Caroline Kuhn dared to coat down the new Genesis EP Spot the Pigeon the other week, and S. Eggington, P.G. Robbins and J.C. Hume, all studying at Grey College, Durham University, have drafted a combined response directly from the common room. (laughs) What on earth did Caroline Kuhn mean when she wrote that the new Genesis single is, quote, a prehistoric attempt at reviving interest in a strange band the whole phrase is a collection of misguided if not false statements taking it piece by piece a prehistoric implies outdated and simple however this band have been constantly changing and influencing modern rock and still are b how is it possible to revive interest in a band that sell records by the million and incites thousands of fans to queue out overnight to get tickets for their concerts which sell out at every venue (laughs) admittedly punk rock has its place and although we don't like it we wouldn't put it down unnecessarily in the way cc puts down genesis say these three spots Uh, you wouldn't expect pernickety condescension from genesis fans no Meanwhile, Simon Kinnersley made a fatal error in his live review of Queen by suggesting that Brian May was never a wildly gifted guitarist. (laughs) And now he has to deal with Alison Maloney from Headington, Oxford. This must come as a great surprise to anyone who has ever seen Queen live or heard them on record. He is a highly sensitive and mature musician with a rare gift in that he has no need to bring his music to the front of the band to reveal its brilliance. (laughs) Maybe Queen as a unit is becoming jaded and in need of a change, but to condemn one of the best guitarists Britain has seen since Hendrix is nothing short of criminal. Twelve-inch singles are starting to become a thing and Kevin Bottin from Bude Cornwall is not having it. Is it right that such quantities of vinyl should be used for just a few minutes of music? Haven't we forgotten the infamous vinyl shortage of not long ago which sent the prices of albums rocketing? Let's save resources for the future and keep prices down by not wasting vinyl. Or when can we expect to see 24-inch albums that play at 45 RPM? Oh, God, that'd be amazing. Yes, but imagine having one of those under your fucking arm coming out of Wolves on a Saturday afternoon, though, or getting it on a bus. Kate Constable of Dorchester made the mistake of watching the nation's top pop show the other week and was appalled by the sight of Brendan. Having sat through another edition of Top of the Pops, I wonder how the Beeb can show pathetic little people singing something called Rock Me. Good grief, they obviously don't know the meaning of the word. The programme was saved by the brilliant Stranglers. Thanks to John Peel, the only DJ giving groups like Stranglers and The Clash some exposure, it might just keep the music industry alive. And finally, there's a pat on the back for Alan Jones for his piece on John Otway, and in particular his mention of Pete Townsend as an early champion of the new wave. Townsend, regularly pilloried as the epitome of jaded old way flatulence in less discriminating journals, was in fact the first person to discover punk, to see its potential, and may his shallow detractors eat humble pie. 
Though never having met him in my nine years of knocking round the edges of the music business, I get the solid impression that he is one of the very few rock stars who cares, writes Pete Frame oh. of Yeoman Cottage, North Marsden. Uh, yes, that Pete that Frame. Pete yeah. Frame. Bless his heart. I wonder how the letter was laid out. Was it one on a massive sheet of with all branching offs and everything? Yeah, he's right though. It's like um, the only problem with Pete Townsend was unfortunately he cared just slightly too much, which mm. you wouldn't think was possible, but yes, it is. 48 pages, 15p. I never knew there was so much in it. <laughs> so, what else was on telly today? Well, BBC One commences at 20 to 7 with a double barrel blast of Open University with programmes about Peer Gint and embalming. <laughs> then they close down for four hours and five minutes. Yeah, can you imagine taking that for your degree? <laughs> Then they close down for four hours and five minutes, springing back to life at noon with live coverage of the Queen on a boat in the Thames and walking around the Tower of London. Then after closing down for another 15 minutes, it's on the move, the midday news, then ragtime with Maggie Henderson and Fred Harris and closes down again for another 10 minutes. At five to two, we're whipped over to the park in Nottingham for the second round of the John Player Grand Prix, the men's warm-up tournament for Wimbledon. After regional news in your area, it's play school with Julie Stevens, Brian Kant and Christopher Lillicrap, White Horses and Scooby-Doo. Then Blue Peter checks in on the progress of Rags, the trainee pony for disabled riders who was paid for with 800 tonnes of old wool and cotton collected by viewers two years ago. After Captain Pugwash, it's the news nationwide, and they've just finished tomorrow's world, where the power trio of Baxter, Wallard and Rod have been augmented by Judith Han for the screamy high-pitched bits, no doubt. <laughs> the Rod of Correction. That's what they used to call it, down in Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> BBC Two opens at 6.40 with a triple bill of organisation development, organosilicon compounds and viewing the invisible in open university. There's a gig poster right there, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Then shuts down for three hours and five minutes before coming back hard with play school. (laughs) Then he shuts down again for another four hours and 25 minutes before picking up the tennis. Then it's two hours of more open university, News on two, and they're a quarter of an hour into having a baby. The series about everything to do with pregnancy, apart from the shoving it in bit. <laughs> ITV kicks off at 10 to 10 with Wu Binder, Animal Doctor, the Australian kids' drama series of the late 60s involving kangaroos with their arm in a sling and such like. Then Ron Ely rescues a load of kids from the jungle in Tarzan. After a repeat of survival about some snow geese, it's the Woody Woodpecker Show, followed by Granny's Kitchen, where one of the oldens gets a musical box to play Aiken Drum and then makes some cream cheese and pastry men. Jeffrey takes a couple of puppets and a man in a bear suit to the seaside in Rainbow. Then it's the first in the new series of Treasures in Store, which looks at assorted museums and what's inside them. 
After the news at one and regional news in your area, it's the drama series Rooms, followed by Women Only. Then the 1950 Alistair Sim and Margaret Rutherford film The Happiest Days of Your Life. Then the Cedar Tree, more Australian kids drama with the Lost Islands. And the evil stamp collector Colonel Gum gets a biffing in Batman. Huey Green is the special guest in the latest episode of Moon Movies, where a celebrity is asked to name what films he'd take with him on a journey to the moon. <laughs> yeah, nothing like Desert Island Dishonest. What are you saying? That's followed by the news at 5.45 and regional news in your area. Then David Hunter finds himself in the shit with his casino debts in Crossroads, and they're currently 20 minutes into the magnificent showman. The 1964 John Wayne and Rita Hayworth film about a circus that was known everywhere else as Circus World. Boys, what is jumping out at you there? Anything? Not a lot, apart from my my very, very first crush. Oh? Yeah, Woody Woodpecker. What? (laughs) Yeah, Woody Woodpecker, I would say. Um, He wasn't arousing in any way, but yeah, probably my first crush, Woody Woodpecker. We can right. discuss this perhaps in a separate podcast now. But, um. Yeah, I think we need to, man. <laughs> Taylor, anything? Um, no. <laughs> Stunned silence. No, I was listening to all of that, and I was <laughs> astonished at how little there was to comment on. I mean, it was all, you know, entertaining to hear, but I couldn't think of anything to say about any of it, I'm afraid. So. Great. <laughs> no wonder they're queuing up to see us live. all right then pop craze youngsters it is time to go way back to june of 1977 always remember we may coat down your favorite band or artist or moniker but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have apart from the monarchy bit (laughs) hello and welcome to top of the pops It's 20 past seven on Thursday, July the 9th, 1977, and British television is still basking in the afterglow of a jubilee splurge. There's been a special episode of Mr and Mrs. ITV have put on a gala of a hundred stars, featuring the likes of Patrick Allen, Les Dawson, Sir John Gielgud, Barbara Windsor, Cleo Lane and Charlie Drake. Saturday night at the Millers asked Frank Windsor and Kenny Ball and his jazz men what they were doing during the coronation. (laughs) A shitload of documentaries and dramas about the past 25 years have been on. And last night's Coronation Street had the residents of Weatherfield dressing up as a sort of British icons as part of a parade. With Annie Walker as Elizabeth I, Bette Lynch as Britannia, (laughs) Ina Sharples as Queen Victoria, Ernie Bishop as Walter Raleigh, Fred G as William Shakespeare, Ken Barlow as Edmund Hillary, a blacktop Albert Tatlock as Sherpa Tenzin, and Eddie Yates as a caveman. That's a great episode. (laughs) Alas, the wagon loaned from Newton and Ridley developed a flat battery when Stan Ogden left the lights on overnight, and Reenie Roberts had a go at Albert Tatlock in the Rovers for dressing up as Idi Armin. (laughs) (laughs) But tonight, 
It's the turn of our favourite Thursday evening pop treat as it enters its fourth year under the kindly reign of Robin Nash, who continues to keep a firm and unchanging hand on the top of the pop's tiller. But oh dear, the boat is beginning to rock as the charts become more unpredictable and adulterated and Captain Nash is discovering that the job is becoming less of a dos. Article in next week's Music Week, chaps. Mm -hmm. 13 is a difficult age. Every parent has to face the problem of how much their adolescent offspring should know about forbidden things. When the 13-year-old is a television programme, it seems the answer is no easier. A sex and punk rock have laid siege to the singles chart. Top of the Pops is finding life a little less than straightforward. The Sex Pistols, of course, could hardly be expected to be welcomed with open arms, but in the same week that they rocketed embarrassingly to number 11, the Rock Follies single, OK, already shown on ITV to an audience larger than Top of the Popsers, was edited out of the show at the last minute after producer Robin Nash had listened more closely to the words. He has been producing Top of the Pops on and off for four years and believes in changing nothing when you're on to a winner. Its audience goes from about 8 million to 15 million between summer and winter and Nash is responsible for deciding what they see. Yet he could justify he is more sinned against than sinning. The BBC rarely bans a record. Unless it is inconsiderate enough to chart, a doubtful disc will just not be played in the hope that it will go away. But while radio can argue that a record does not fit in with its programming, Top of the Pops is there to put on the hits. And if it does not, it will at some stage have to say why not. As the Sex Pistols, for example, clearly have the power to offend some people merely by existing, there was a case for discretion with God Save the Queen, aside from which Top of the Pulse was only following suit in the blacking by other media. Nash's problem in arbitrating between good and bad taste is complicated by the fact that sex stares out from all over the top 50. Kenny Rogers' easy-listening Lucille is openly adulterous. <laughs> Carol Bayer Sager lives with someone who has a rubber hose and nasty bedtime habits. And Joy Son is naughty, naughty, naughty is just that, if you want to think that way. All have appeared on top of the pops, but sadly, Pop Craze Youngsters, not in this episode before you get your hopes up. <laughs> The new wave bands pose a similar problem, though they are rarely anything but explicit. The line is easier to draw. Nash has booked the jam and the stranglers when they came up with a lyric that was inoffensive and will do so with other new wave acts. Although one dodgy thing gets to slip under the radar in this episode, as we'll discover. Chaps, filth, sex, punk rock, what's going on? Well, I mean, the major thing that comes across in that article is that although we might think of Top of the Pops as, you know, a sort of palace of dreams, it really doesn't sound much fun producing that show. No, not at the moment. No, the things that he has to balance, you know, not only potential content with the songs, but just the record companies, the fact that more American acts are becoming more popular and constantly much more difficult to get them in the studio sounds yeah. like a nightmare yeah and it also sounds so fraught because 
the time of sort of like deciding what's going on and actually filming the thing is so the the little window they've got is practically yeah. only a day. It just yes. sounds like a friggin' nightmare. It's amazing that Nash stayed in the job for that long because it sounds immensely stressful being top mm. of the pops producer. And at this time, even more so because the, the charts are fucking going mad. You know, things are going down and then up again. As we're going to see at the top end of the charts, there's been some definite tinkering going on that's going to have an impact on the charts for at least a month to come. So, yeah, poor Robin Nash, man. Gone are the days when he could book an entire episode of Top of the Pops from a phone box in Italy when he was on his holiday. (laughs) Your host this week is Tony Blackburn, who has just reached his fourth anniversary as the sitting tenant of the Simon Bates slot from 9 to 12 on weekdays on Radio 1. Two days ago, on Jubilee Day, he linked up with Paul Burnett and his foul nemesis Noel Edmonds to present the nation's all-time top 100, a six-hour rundown voted upon by Radio 1 listeners. Chaps, would you care to hear the top ten? Oh, yes, please. All right. Hit the fucking music. Number 10. I'm Still Waiting. Diana Ross in the Supremes. Number 9. All Right Now. Free. All right. Number 8. Seasons in the Sun. Terry Jacks. (laughs) Number 7. Sailing. Rod Stewart. Number 6. Hey Jude. The Beatles. Number five, Bridge Over Troubled Water, Simon and Garfunkel. Number four, Bohemian Rhapsody, Queen. Number three, Without You, Nielsen. Number two, Maggie May, Rod Stewart. Number one, I'm Not In Love, 10cc. Says a lot, doesn't it, that? Yeah. It does. It says a little bit about the previous sort of, you know, 10, 15 years. But it says a lot about 77, actually, that 10 yes. CCs at number one. Yeah, it also says, yeah. just write a self-conscious anthem. They will fall for it. Mm. His demotion from The Breakfast Show has not diminished his star power one jot. And he's already spent the first half of 1977 putting himself about on celebrity squares, being in the rotating judges' pool on new faces, and he even made a TV appearance on Jubilee Tuesday in a repeat of Goody's Rule, OK, the 1975 Christmas special. Taylor, you've got the box set. Refresh our Um, memories as to what he got up to in that episode. Yeah, it's a typically uh, zany goodies scenario. (laughs) The new government have outlawed fun. Uh Just like in the Republic of Geoffrey Archer's ever-fertile imagination. Um, So the goodies (laughs) go underground and drive around in a car, collecting all the now redundant entertainers uh, with the intention of Mm. building a resistance movement and putting them back at the top where they belong. So they drive all over London, or in fact, if you look closely, all over Ealing. Uh, where they used to make <laughs> comedy. And first thing they do, they see Tommy Cooper and they grab him and they chuck him in the car. And they see Rolf Harris and they grab him and they chuck him in the car. And then we see Tony Blackburn standing on a street corner reading the paper. Uh, the goodest car pulls up. Daily Mail, no doubt. I wouldn't be surprised. 
<laughs> Tony walks over the car, waves, and just as he gets there, it speeds off. Uh. <laughs> Tony stands in the street crying again. <laughs> and in two days' time, he'll be co-presenting the first in the third series of Seaside Special in Eastbourne, having seen off Noel Edmonds and Dave Lee Travis and Bagsy in a permanent slot with his wingman David Hamilton, who will no doubt be continuing their ongoing banter war, which has been dragging on for years now. Article in the Sunday Mirror in March of this year about the current fashion of celebrities knocking each other in public. A couple of game lads, outsiders but full of stamina, are top of the pops compares Tony Blackburn and David Hamilton. Of the two, I find David the crisper puncher. See if you agree. Blackburn on Hamilton. The only reason he got engaged this week was so he could have someone to carry his white handbag for him. Hamilton on Blackburn. A burglar broke into Tony's library and stole both his books. Ouch. And he hadn't even finished colouring one of them in yet. (laughs) But if they ever get matched against Jimmy Tarbuck, there'll be a lot of needle because Jimmy can't stand either of them. They are the most unfunny people I've ever heard. Tell them to leave the jokes to the pros. (laughs) (laughs) As well as introducing the Nolans, Janet Brown and Ronnie Corbett, they'll be overseeing the first heat of the 1977 Miss Seaside special Natural Beauty Contest. Because, chaps, as we all know, what better judge of natural beauty than Tony Blackburn and David Hamilton? Absolutely. But it has to be said chaps behind that smile lies pain as i do believe Mm. we're coming to the culmination of tony's career of britain's most famous cuckold a title which he bestowed (laughs) upon himself in the autumn of 1976 when he broke down in a press conference to announce his split from tessa wyatt and tony played we've thrown it all away by rnj stone and if you leave me now by chicago over and over again his 1977 started with Wyatt appearing as Richard O'Sullivan's stage girlfriend in the ITV sitcom Robin's Nest, which was followed by rumours in the press that O'Sullivan was on Wyatt's Nest. (laughs) And in a few weeks' time, Blackburn would give an interview where he moved to the next stage. She's turned the weans against us. (laughs) Headline in the Daily Mirror next to a photo of him with his headphones around his neck, looking absolutely tramadolt to fuck. Headline, breaking up is hard to pay. This jockey Tony Blackburn wants a men's lib movement to protect spurned husbands. Tony, 34, is now suing his actress wife Tessa Wyatt for divorce on the grounds that his marriage has irretrievably broken down. Tessa left Tony last October after five years of marriage, taking their son with her. And he opened his heart about the breakup in today's Woman's Own magazine. He said, This is the worst year of my life. To this day, I shall never know how I managed to keep up the chat and corny jokes. I even thought about taking the easy way out. Oh, Tony, listen to Chris Needham. There's no easy way out. Put your hands in the air and shout. Do you think going to Capital Radio? (laughs) 
Tony also said, after my experiences of being a loser in marriage, I'd be quite interested in starting a men's lib campaign like they have in the USA. I really feel quite strongly about this. Why should a man have to go on paying for the privilege of having someone walk out on him? Yeah, he's gone full fathers for justice there, hasn't he? He's not entirely wrong about this in terms of the way men get shafted in divorce cases. Mm. But in typical Blackburn Mm. fashion, he has made it as difficult as possible to sympathise with him. It's like the phrase men's lib or men's rights is never going to win anyone over. It mm. just makes you think that when he dressed up as Superman in roller yes! in front of Barbara, he was actually on his way to scale Big Ben with yeah. a painted banner made out of a bed sheet, uh, which is not easy to do in uh, slip-on shoes no. with a bit of a heel. The thing about Tony is that you can never quite hate him for his stupidity mm. and banality, but equally you you can't quite feel sorry for him mm. when things go mm. wrong. No. He makes it very difficult. Yeah. Even in the sort of tiny five-second segment in which he introduces this episode, mm. even if you were a kid who didn't know about all of these shenanigans and what he was going mm. through that year, there's something incredibly even more forced than normal. You, you can sort of, sort of simultaneously see why he's so emblematic for so many people of this sort of anodyne, superficial nature of pop radio and pop television, but you can also see why out of all of the Radio 1 DJs at that time, he's perhaps sort of psychologically the most compelling in a way that 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 <laughs> smile i mean is that an expression of true emotion or is that a reflex of kind of avoidance of real emotion you, you always find yourself in this episode are we watching an adult man or are we watching a kind of painfully withdrawn child playing his games of pretense at being normal in an adult body <laughs> when i think of the smiles of the other djs like savile smile that's a leer you know mm. Travis's smile yeah, yeah. is a bug-eyed kind of Colin Hunt style proof of zaniness Simon Bates yes. always looks like he's posing for a brochure and, and Noel Edmonds's <laughs> smile is just pure careerism but Blackburn what's behind that smile uh, yeah. uh, you know it's something I've been thinking a lot about recently because I, I've shifted my radio habits of a Saturday morning of late I'm radio 3 9 till 12 but 7 till 9 I'm now listening to Sounds of the 60s with Tony Blackburn mm. you know pottering around having my tea and, tea and my facts I was kind of initially angry that he got that gig because the Coventry born Brian Matthews made the programme very much his own and mm. turned it into something of a cult for several years you know um, yeah. and I was a bit annoyed when, when Tony took over Tony Blackburn has definitely editorialised this show. It's very reflective of him. It's got a Northern Soul section now and a Motown mm. A to Z and a Do What feature. It clearly reveals his obsessions in pop, but still, after what, nearly on sort of 50 years really of dealing with Tony Blackburn in my life, I've still got no clue really what he does with music and what it does mm. to him. He likes music, I'll give him that. Yeah. But I think he just likes music that lets him be Tony Blackburn, smiling and dancing and, and essentially self-pitying. So it's mm-hmm. so his smile here, yeah, worst year of his life, and it, there's just an extra tincture of forcedness and facadeness mm-hmm. to Tony in this episode that I found really compelling, actually. He would have been well chuffed about I'm Still Waiting get to number 10 since it was him that got it released by Tamla Motown. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure he wouldn't have failed to mention that. No. <laughs> yeah. I think all music for him is just it's a it's a spiritual thing it's part of the sort of the ceremonial reanimation in his mind of Tessa Mm. Wyatt it's just her like incorporeal form (laughs) with it 
I know she comes from Woking, and you say she's a fraud, <laughs> but her heart is in the city where it belongs. <laughs> well, at least Tony will be able to console himself this weekend by linking up with an unnamed dancer in New Edition, the regular troupe in Seaside Special, who's been uh-huh. nobbing for the past two series. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is the thing about Tony Blackburn. He goes on about being the, the jilted husband and everything, but, you know, he also mentions that, oh, yeah, I was I was being a massive slag at the time <laughs> as well. Why she left me? Oh, yeah, let's not forget that what broke up their happy home was that he slept with what he referred to as a lovely oriental person, mm. and I quite like oriental people. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's... <laughs> I was watching the Top of the Pops from 1983 a while ago. Not the same one with Peter Powell looking like proud earner of five O-levels, <laughs> disgraced liar grad chaps. It's a different one. Um, it's where Jonathan King's wretched interlude. Oh, yes. Mm. Entertainment come- USA. Mm. Yeah, but he was in Paris this time. Ah. And it was outroed by Tony Blackburn with the words... That was a gay Jonathan King in Paris, <laughs> to which Gary Davis says, I think you mean Jonathan King in gay Paris, uh, to which Tony just grins silently. Uh, so, on top of everything else, a pioneer of outrage. Mm. Um, not mm. only that, outing people when he wasn't gay himself, which I think shows real dedication to the cause. <laughs> We're hit with a cold open of Tone in a light blue short sleeve shirt with all waves on it and some sort of animal that I can't work out what it is on it, tucked into beige Saxons. Sporting an exceedingly <laughs> lank hairstyle and his trademark smile, which makes him look like the Joker played by Terry Wogan. <laughs> After nailing two critical pieces of information, hello, and welcome to Top of the Pops. He hurls us into the top 30 as the clarion call of whole lot of love by the Top of the Pops orchestra blares out. And, chaps, it's a return to those pictures. Oh, yeah. what caught the eye this time? The first thing that caught my eye was um, the Eagles. Um, yes. Looking like five versions of the Statue of Christ that Carrie has in her under the stairs <laughs> prayer cubbyhole. They look fucking terrifying. One of the eagles on the left-hand side, he's been perfectly bisected by the picture crop, hasn't he? Just like that jellyfish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. But there's, I mean, the thing is with the eagles, there's actually a lot of bands here who kind of explain why punk had to happen, I guess. Lots of bearded, bedenined totally indistinguishable bands elp genesis blue they all kind of look the same yeah not that blue hasten to add yeah not that blue not that blue but um i mean the other one that stuck out to me is brian ferry yes he looks like roy of the rovers teammate blackie gray yeah also wearing a one comedy mr spock ear unless that's his (laughs) real ear which would make me wonder whether he had his eyes surgically moved closer together to distract anyone from ever noticing it. Yeah, and the only other one I noticed was, yeah, Boz Stagg's nonce estate agent. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, equally terrifying is the Bay City Rollers, who've been airbrushed into the realm of the uncanny. They're like the Bay City (laughs) real dolls. Although it has to be said that the so-called restoration that someone has done on this particular file has made pretty much everyone look 
kind of disturbing. They all look like the pictures oh, you'd mm. get if you type their names into Dal E, a timeless <laughs> reference there that will never date. Um, but it's the Liverpool football team in a very yes. dark, creepy photograph in front of some flock wallpaper, which looks like it was taken at the scene of a spontaneous human combustion. Um, the heat from which has melted off the faces of the players. I don't think too many children would have pinned that poster up on their bedroom. <laughs> no, no. And it's immediately out of date because Kevin Keegan's yeah, on it. Yeah, 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 mm. yeah. What else is there? Uh, 10cc, a spiteful yes. Eric Stewart having shrunk yeah. Godly and Cream to the size of Bodkins displays them <laughs> hidden in the palm of his hand to a delighted yes. Graham Goldman. Caption, yes. lol. Get it? <laughs> Gladys Knight and the Pips. The Pips Ooh. jackets patterned after the first half second of the then-current Tyne Tees ident. Uh, niche but accurate. Well spotted, Taylor. Honker looked like they're watching a stripper at a working men's <laughs> Go back and look at that picture. You'll you'll see it. Genesis, Phil Collins has got his face right glommed onto Tony Banks's neck, yeah. mm. making him look like the world's hairiest conjoined twins. Yeah. And also, the one that no one knows what his name is has got this sort of feral pullover and scarf thing going on. Yes. Yeah, the four of them look like Ford Prefect, Slarty Bartfast, yes. and Zaphod Beeblebrooks in a yes. public school production of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Piero Umilane is depicted as a player plastic mushroom with a face and springy horns yeah. well maybe he is maybe that's what he is <laughs> oh and rock follies are entitled julie covington charlotte cornwall rule lensker yeah yeah because the bbc aren't about to advertise an itv television program right. they're not going to call them rock follies yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah rule lensker the patriotic polish song <laughs> As the whittling guitar reaches a crescendo and the canned applause kicks in, we're immediately whipped into the image of some congas being bashed as the first act appears. It's Ossie Bisa and the Warrior. Warrior, come out to play! <laughs> We've already covered Ossie Bisa, the Ghana Nigerian Caribbean collective, in Chart Music 29 when they took Sunshine Date to number 17 in January of 1976. And this single, the follow up to Dance the Body Music, which got to number 31 in June of last year, is taken from their seventh LP, Oja Awake. It was originally put out by the band as a single in 1975, but failed to chart, and is a cover of a song taken from Ipi Tombe, the 1974 South African musical, about a young man who leaves his village and goes to work in the mines of Johannesburg, which made it to the West End last year, before transferring to Broadway. 
On the back of the success of the stage show, it's been dusted off and put out again. And while it's not in the chart yet, Robin Nash clearly doesn't give a toss, as here they are in the studio. And chaps, Ippy Tombe, being good and upstanding citizens of ATV land as you are, we all know the title track of that musical, as well as we know our own mother's faces, don't we? <laughs> Is it from the <laughs> advert for the West Midlands Safari Park? Hiya! Oh. Hiya! Oh, yeah. Hi-ya, <laughs> Only during the research of this song for chart music did I learn that they aren't English lyrics. Because I'd listen to that advert for the West Midlands Safari Park and just think, they're saying something, but what the fuck is it? Mm. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I just assumed it was a really thick Birmingham accent. <laughs> <laughs> you know the second bit where it goes, that bit. I worked out that the last line must be, it's on the um. And I just assumed that there was a river um that I that was somewhere in Birmingham, and, and that's where the West Midlands Safari Park was on the um. Strangely plausible, actually. maybe next to the yeah. River Tom, uh, where Tickle Town is. In fact, it's right next to an area of common land called Rid Covert, right, which is where we used to go camping when I was in Ooh. the Cubs. And the best thing was because it was right next to the Safari Park, you'd be sitting around the bonfire at night, like eating your marshmallows mm. or whatever, and they'd be trying to get you to sing those stupid mm. songs and in the distance you could hear lions roaring wow yeah <laughs> even better than the bit where you all had to queue up outside a tent and go in get naked and be washed by the people no yeah yeah, yeah. yeah and it was kind of unpleasant because they had a, a a light bulb on inside the tent so if you stood outside the tent you got one hell of a shadow play <laughs> putting that aside um forever <laughs> any notion that this episode of top of the pops is going to be an orgy of flag shagging is immediately dispelled isn't it i, I wonder if that was deliberate i don't think it was del- i mean it's a cracking song to start an episode yes. with but there is this odd dissonance with this performance it's presented and also to them that you know to their credit actually present it as a kind of upbeat holiday anthem almost. yes but you know slowly then the lyrics if you notice yes. it start snagging on you a little bit and you wonder what the hell it's all about i mean we've already mentioned one of those deeply gratifying scenes in the nationwide jubilee special that i've got to admit that jubilee special is now haunts my dreams <laughs> oh, yeah. wait for the bonus episode pop crazy oh, yeah. get your send signed up to patreon you don't want to miss it <laughs> But, you know, it's a weird thing to put in a Jubilee episode of Top of the Pops. It's a very upbeat tune. Yes. It's got these weird lines about, you know, the vultures fly, the wind is high, the warrior fights, the battle of power. Mm. It's not exactly celebratory of um, Britain or British. The scavengers wait, each find their space. Death is late, the battle of power. You're not going to notice those lines. It's an upbeat version of Run to the Hills, isn't it? (laughs) It isn't it? You're not particularly going to notice those lines, perhaps, when you're a kid, and no. you're just going to you're just going to see it as a nice, sunny sort of um, very danceable tune. And you wonder who's going to be chucking the spares at? It could be <laughs> our brave boys. <laughs> but it's 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 both simultaneously a, a start that makes sense because it's upbeat, but the lyrics, you know, tell of something completely different. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with this, but I don't generally get on with African pop that sounds simultaneously this jolly mm. and this shiny. Mm. Yeah. Uh, either one is okay, but the two together I'll switch off a bit. I wish that yeah. there was a little bit more of that uh, bloodshot-eyed terror mm. in the actual music as well. I mean, it's very slick, 
as you might expect from an Afro rock band produced by Eleanor Bronze's brother, right. um, who also did Manfred Mann and Uriah mm. Heep and the Bonzo Dog Doodle Band. Ooh. So a pro, but not someone who was necessarily going to capture the grit and the heat that you hear on the best Afro rock yeah. stuff. Mm. Never mind the actual African-based rock bands, who I always prefer to mm. the British-based ones. But, I mean, it could be done, because some of this stuff is great. Like, there's brilliant and well-recorded records by, like, Ofo, the Black Company, right? Lafayette Afro rock band. Mm. But part of what's great about the bands who are playing rock and soul and funk influence stuff in Africa mm. was that they had to use relatively crappy old studios, yeah. mm. which really mm. suits the music in the same way that it suits the Velvet Underground or whatever. You know, you, you hear the amps hissing and the heat haze, and it really brings out the the power of it. But then also, Peter had always sounded fairly slick. Mm. To the, if you listen to their early albums, it's kind of Afro prog. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. They had Roger yeah. Dean covers, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. They did. Fantastic. Yeah. Like Roger Dean's only ever good covers. Mm. Like the, if you listen to their first album with the cover of the elephants with butterfly wings on it. Mm. I mean, that's, you know, produced by Tony Visconti. It's as slick as this track, mm. but it weighs yeah, yeah. about 15 times as much. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, and also the cover of Heads, which I should say, Heads, the greatest ever title for an Afro prog LP. Mm. It's inspired Roger Dean to his greatest and most grotesque work ever. Right. <laughs> He's like obviously trying to be influenced by like Bitch's Brew cover and mm. stuff like that, trying to go a bit yeah. Afro, but his own style is so absurd that you can just add anything to it and it you know, it looks completely crazy. And of course, uh, Ossibisa end up using Matty Clarwine, don't they? Who did the Bitches Brew cover? Oh, really? Uh, I think they, yeah, they start using him straight after they sort of, they don't dump Roger Dean as such, but they start using Matty Clarwine like, soon after. Yeah. But yeah, there's no dirt here. Yeah. And the polish, I mean, the polish is actually something that's picked up in reviews. The review of this, the album that The Warrior is from, um, is by Chris Welsh and a melody mm. maker. And, and, and he actually praises its clean guitar lines uh, and, and all of this sort of stuff. He talks about clean and and it does make you think i mean what a shame in a way it, it, talking of afro rock that comes from england if you like or comes from london you know what a shame a band like i don't know demon fuzz yeah. um who came up you know this is the same time as obviously these from the same kind of scene their africa album from 71 is it, fantastic right. and dirty and filthy and that's why it's sampled so yeah. much by so many hip hoppers um they never made it because they're a bit too weird yeah, obviously yeah, yeah. were always going to get ahead because they're clean and their sound provides no kind of barrier if you like it's just very clean and palatable mm. yeah although i mean like that first album was a hit record it was mm. a top 20 album in britain right you know so it yeah. just makes you think they could have done something a little bit crunchier for a hit yeah, single. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, also, I mean, this is basically high life, isn't it? The way it's, like, uh, yeah. And there's yeah. always the temptation is to put too much gloss on high life, mm. and because it's already super bright, mm. and when the band can really play like this one, you want to hear them. Mm. I like the breakdown bit in this where you get like a, a hint of funkiness all of a sudden, and then when all the band come back in again, it sort of spoils it. I mean, it sounds like trying to be cool or worse you know saying 
you know, I want my Africans recording in a sweltering <laughs> yeah, yeah, shack yeah. in Zambia. <laughs> you, know, and, you know, putting out their records with Letraset front covers. You know. <laughs> but Taylor, those records sound better. Yeah, I mean, the yeah. Zamrock records from coming around, around about this same period, you know, from bands like Witch and stuff, who are recording yeah. in pretty poor scenarios. Yeah, they're fucking amazing records, precisely because of the dirtiness. And I don't think those yeah, things yeah. were necessarily just foisted on those bands. They love that dirt mm. and they love that distortion and that sound. Yeah. Osobisha is a different thing entirely. Yeah. But it's a great, I, yeah. I think it's a good start to the yes. show. I mean, it's upbeat at least. Yeah. yeah. It's just that, you know, you listen to their first few records and compared to that stuff, this is a bit like their you better, you bet. <laughs> it's like if your strengths as a band are adventure and drive and like red hot ensemble playing. Mm. Um, that's what you want to hear on the records, mm. right? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in a way, it's, I can understand why they're first on this program to kick it off. But in a way, they, they suffer for coming first on this program because this is so much better than a lot of what's coming yes. up later. <laughs> and if you heard it halfway through the show, you, you would sit up soon enough. Mm, yeah, but that's the funny thing. I mean, tying it in with the Nationwide Ghibli special, that, that classic bit when, you know, it scrolls up the scene, all the colonies we've lost. We are pretty yes. much by this time in 77, we haven't got anything left. Have we still got Belize, maybe? I don't know. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, we've got nothing left. And, that, and that's accompanied by the lowering of the Union Jack. And this Ghibli episode, here starts with an anti-colonialist song yes. played by an African <laughs> group it's it's really odd isn't yeah. it but it's totally of course unnoticed by the audience oh, yeah. and also Tony Blackburn yeah. uh, inevitably I don't think the general public's ready for the Burundi beat just yet that mm. would happen a few mm. years later with I eat cannibals and the lion sleeps tonight <laughs> you know <laughs> the true sound of Africa as a nine year old this is the only African music I'm going to hear apart from you know, the opening credits of Tarzan. Yeah, yeah and, and the aforementioned uh, West Midland Safari Park out there. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Although it, you know, instantly provides Tony with a chance to fuck up. Yes, we'll come to that <laughs> in a minute. <laughs> okay, okay. So the following week, and for every week after that to this day, the warrior failed to chart. The follow-up, Living Loving Feeling, was also given the rub of a Top of the Pops performance in December of this year, but that failed to chart as well, and they never bothered the Top 40 ever again. But they made a nice living on the festival circuit throughout the late 70s, playing at the Zimbabwe Independence Celebration gig with Bob Marley and the Whalers, and living out the rest of their careers as a strictly world music concern. But wait. Guess who appeared the other week on Mike Reed's Heritage Chart Show? What? Only Osibisa. What? Oh, yeah, they got a new record out. All right. Which isn't very good, but it made it into the only <laughs> chart that counts. Right? Yes. Mm. I was just mm. thinking, how long until the first angry letter to Mike? Dear Mike Reed, yes. I was under the impression this <laughs> yes. was meant to be the Heritage Chart Show, yeah. not the African Heritage yes. Chart Show. <laughs> <laughs> and knowing old Muck Reed, he might even read it out. Um, yeah. Hey, look, I'll give you a quick update on this because I decided to read it and weep the other night um, <laughs> with a drink to fortify myself against the soul attack. <laughs> and I caught up. Uh, Nick Kershaw's at number one, still hasn't Ooh. grown any taller. 
Guess who else turned up? Your friend and mine, Dean Friedman. Oh! Alas, saying nothing of interest. But I did notice something about the new record by Katrina of... Well, Katrina of Katrina and the Waves, as she's now Mm. billed, in case anyone thought that... She was a hurricane. Yeah, Hurricane Katrina's (laughs) got a new record out. Um, But her song goes, Every day is like a holiday. And I thought wait a minute is this demographic targeting mm. is this a song about being retired yeah like how great <laughs> would that be rock and roll songs about being retired yeah how many of them have it been i don't know but um, how cool would it be? thumb in their nose at, at the working stiffs you know it'd be like a wham yeah. rap but about yes. being retired <laughs> i might yeah. not have yeah. a job but i have a good time with the girls that i meet daily mail below the line <laughs> O-A-P-O-R. Hey, everybody, take a look at me. i got a scooter for mobility. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the other thing that caught my eye is one of the Rubettes now looks exactly like Larry David. It's really? uncanny. Yeah, he must get it all the time, people coming up to him and saying, <laughs> hey, bold asshole. And he, has, he goes, yeah, 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 like out of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And they go, like out of what? But, yeah. but at least at least that's one band where you can't snigger when they all turn up wearing hats. <laughs> <laughs> and an album called The Warrior and that's a good way to start our sort of jubilee edition I guess we call it at Top of the Pots hope that you had a really lovely holiday and uh, let's keep the holiday atmosphere going with the Electric Light Orchestra and Telephone Line Tony off to the side tells us that Ossibisa was a good way to start the jubilee Top of the Pops he then expresses his hopes that we had a good Jubilee DOS and tells us that they're going to keep the holiday atmosphere going with a song about extreme loneliness and borderline <laughs> stalking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, let's keep the holiday atmosphere going. Yeah, with this song about a desperate man who's lost his dignity, endlessly mm. ringing his ex, even though she <laughs> won't pick up. Well, that's how Tony spent his Jubilee Bank holiday anyway. <laughs> and let's face it, we've all been there. That and not watching the summer repeats of Series 1 of Robin's Nest. No. And let's face it, we've all been there too. Anyway, the song Tony's talking about is Telephone Line by ELO. It seems that we're contractually obliged to talk about the Electric Light Orchestra every fucking time we do a late 70s Top of the Pops. <laughs> and this, their 13th single released in the UK, is the follow-up to Rock Aria, which got to number 9 in March of this year. It's the third and final cut from their 1976 LP, A New World Record, which is still putting itself about on the LP charts and is currently at number 11. It entered the chart three weeks ago at number 42, then soared 14 places to number 28, and this week it's moved up five places from number 18 to number 13. 
As Jeff and the Chaps are currently in Munich recording their next album, Out of the Blue, and have already drawn a line under making in-studio performances on top of the pop since Night Rider in April of 1976, here's a still new innovation for the time, a promo video. And Chaps, here we have 70s video cliche number one, the fake live performance, which was pretty much the only game in town in this era, wasn't it? I mean, even Bohemian Rhapsody, when you look at it again, is a fake live performance, but but with extra overlays of fire, like a coal light advert. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, ELO on film always look like they're on another planet as well. Mm. And I've never been able to work this out. It always looks like footage from Apollo 17. Mm. You know, like Gene Cernan collecting dust samples, you know. Yeah. And yet... They're such earthbound people. So, yeah, ELO, they don't do Top of the Pops anymore. Yeah, how come? Is it beneath them? Well, because they're massive now. Yeah, yeah. And probably something to do with Jeff Lynne being the most reticent man in pop at the moment. You know, when Out of the Blue comes out in a few months' time, he tells the record company that the only press interview he's going to do for it is with the Birmingham Mail, <laughs> because that's the only paper that his mum and dad read. <laughs> so, yeah. He's a bit of a control freak, mm. which reveals itself in this record actually i quite like this song it's lovely this song. yeah it, it's firmly in the in the you know let's rewrite the beatles something area of elo's work but it is yeah. a it's pristine it's perfect the harmonies are really choice and it's mm. got that kind of pacific coast suggestiveness in the bakaraki chords that i mean it always comes yeah. naturally that kind of thing to people living in the most landlocked bit of the uk mm. so yeah i mean it's, it's a really good song and actually they benefit i think like taylor says it does have this sealed in space age kind of vibe this little clip yeah it's a song about technology a bit odd i mean is he talking to an operator yeah it sounds like he's trying to leave a phone message or right something, but then he talks to an operator i mean phones were the music streaming service of the day of course with dying yes. this that was getting 100, yes, exactly, yeah. 100 million calls a year real money spinner even if people had started figuring out to press the b button before the end of the record oh. and get a refund <laughs> maybe tony spent the jubilee talking to the dial a disc playing of this song <laughs> Just adding an extra level to it. Well, I mean, I remember people phoning dialer desk and saying they could hear other people. What? Um, in between the record. Yeah, in between, you know, because it was, it was, I think it changed how many songs were yeah. on it. Um, but in between each song, people that I spoke to, especially if you did it from a phone right. box, could hear little bits of conversation. <laughs> they might have been bullshitting mm. me, but that's what they could hear, certainly. But the annoying thing, I mean, it, it's one of those things that as a songwriter, you know, old technology... It provides better rhymes, to be honest with you. Phones, calls, radio. Mm. In 2022, we're still at that point, really, where even in hip-hop, mention of, I don't know, Instagram or followers or feeds, it still sounds in a weird way more dated. Yes. Because instantaneously, it's kind of superannuated by being mentioned in the song. Whereas the phone call is something that will immortally be in pop. Yeah. Because it puts you in that position, an interesting lyrical position, um, of being able to talk... And perhaps also listen to someone who's not there with you. Mm. And and that's kind of the pull of this song. Yeah. And it is, as Taylor said, it's a dark, despairing kind of song yeah. as well. The other sign that they've been kicked up into the big league is the dial tone, which is an American one. Uh. Yes, yes, indeed. Apparently they rang up an American number at random and hoped no one would pick it up. You know, partly so they could record <laughs> it, but also partly so they wouldn't get a massive phone bill and then run yeah. it for a move. <laughs> Yeah, they know all the tricks of transatlantic pop from A to Z. Mm. 
And yeah, you're right, Neil. You know, people talk about films that you couldn't make shot for shot nowadays because of technologies rendered the plot unworkable. Well, you know, that kind of applies to this as well because, you know, there wouldn't be an operator involved. Mm. Nowadays, you'd have to call the song 5G Mast or <laughs> 700 unanswered text messages. I don't like how when you type ELO into YouTube, mm-hmm. it auto-completes as Elon Musk. No! Yeah. I mean, it's an easy mistake to make. It's two ugly rich men with spaceships. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a good thing they didn't call themselves uh, Electric Toaster Orchestra. Right. Uh, or it would auto-complete as Eaton Musk. Oh. A sweet smell of success. <laughs> it's a pungent fragrance of... Uh, old meat uh, (laughs) masturbation and somebody else's sweat (laughs) this is one of my favorite elo singles though i always go on about how elo records are on or off with me Mm. there's some that Mm. i love and some that i can't bear but this is great it's as much of a weird artificial underwater neon world as all the best elo records but Mm. it's also a a genuinely emotional ballad that you can believe in on mm, that level yeah. too. And they work together like the strange unearthly atmospheres created by the production enhance the meaning of the song yeah. and enforce yeah. it. So you don't get the feeling that you sometimes get from ELO that the record is a giant, impressively sculpted uh, blue glass abstract mm. which has function but no meaning which is perfectly okay but it's just it's nice to have some sort of contact too like jeff lynn is not what anyone would call a soul man no but he can create sounds which trigger peculiar emotions mm. so all the better if he matches them to an appropriate song yeah, yeah. and this is the slowest ELO single so far isn't it yeah you'd have to wait until wild west hero for another one like it And that's nowhere near as good as this, to my mind. Although it is the usual mixture of late Beatles and pre-Beatles style. Mm. But the 50s or early 60s type bits here aren't just decoration Mm. or like a a, a beery nostalgia trip like they are on some of these records. They're integrated into the song and it it works. They they ring a bit of tragedy out of the do-wop bits, Mm. you know. They're all behind perspex as usual but you do feel something when you hear them because the song has properly set you up to well yeah i mean it's interesting you say the fifth and sixth days because for me the harmonies like straight from the everly brothers and mm. and uh, the songs like quite beatlesy but the lines themselves the lyrics are, ve- are definitively 70s i mean yeah. i'm living in twilight it's just such a fantastic payoff yeah. line mm. yeah, in yeah. that hook that, that i think is a very 70s thing yeah. so they're combining those things to make something contemporary it's good yeah, I like it. it. Reminds me of me in the winter when it always seems to be either four p.m. or four a.m. Mm. Yeah, I mean it's it's certainly not an original song, that's for sure. Mm. There's bits in here that are essentially identical to other songs. Yeah, the long and winding road for that piano mm. and the way he goes, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, all the young dudes for the chorus, yeah. mm. although. That chord sequence wasn't new when Bark used it. <laughs> Never mind the hello. And most obviously, Hello by Lionel Richie for the opening line. Yes. Which is, so that's two from before this record existed and one from after. Yeah. So on balance, that's a deficit. Well, oh, and you haven't even mentioned Hello, This Is Jonah. Oh, yeah. A year or so later, which yeah. ramped up the technology even more because there's an answering machine and you can hear Jonah. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Even though she's dead in a car crash. I miss all those story songs used to get. Yeah. Now, I do like Jeff Lynne, 
but it's just the way it feels like for him his whole life was just leading up to joining the traveling wilburys yeah you, know what I mean? mm-hmm. you just get the impression that he's more of a fan than a visionary do you know what i'm saying mm. which is you know even though david bowie had already shown that you could be both but it's just that fuzziness of purpose you know as well as of face <laughs> i suppose <laughs> also he's the only person in the world where you don't recognize him until he puts a pair of dark glasses on <laughs> yes. like, oh it's jeff lynn you know he's just another browser in the pornographic bookshop until he uh, <laughs> sticks the literature under his coat pays and leaves steps outside slips on a pair of shades and oh hey jeff all right hey jeff <laughs> don't bring me down Groose. <laughs> he loves that <laughs> and it's a quick thumbs up and he's back in his allegro speeding back towards <laughs> spaghetti junction i also <laughs> like the way that the orchestra if you like the string players in this mm. they don't do that normal thing of like dressing them up like they're playing in the abbot hall or something they just mm. look like jobbing musicians and they seem like part of it all they, they don't feel like oh look we're making ourselves a bit posher um mm. they, they feel like musicians as well so it's actually a really successful video in a way even though yeah, yeah it's cliched to have those kind of performance videos but this is actually a really good one and and the face on kind of shot of jeff that dominates most of it is spot on i think he looks great i mean the thing is it could be mm. argued as we were saying when we were looking through those photos that start this episode at top of the pots an awful lot of people look like this in terms of big hair big beard big shades yeah, yeah. but jeff does it really well i think i think he looks fantastic yeah, yes. I think he does too, I've got to be honest. Although in the West Midlands in the 1970s, if you were in your 30s or even late 20s and you wanted to look kind of cool but not too cool, this was very mm. much the look you would go Indeed. for. Yes, I've, I've met so many people who look like oh, that God, in my yeah, life. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we ever see him on the Heritage chart, eh? He thinks he's mm. too good for it. Honestly, I'm <laughs> yeah. being interviewed by Mike Reed uh, over Zoom in the kind of visual quality that people watch live streams of 9-11 on, on QuickTime, <laughs> you know. Like... Did I ever tell you when I was a kid, by the way, that I was in the car and we were driving somewhere near Birmingham and mm. we were following a big car with the registration number BEV1. Oh. Which I thought, that has to be Bev Bevan, yeah, surely. Yeah. Cool. That's my claim to fame. Uh, although, you know, I'd probably a Vauxhall Viva or something. Because you know I mean? <laughs> at the time, you had no idea. It's like, like when me and my mates thought we must be delivering the local paper to Robert Plant's house. So did I ever tell you that one? Because on my paper round, there was like one big detached house, you know. Right. So obviously yeah, yeah. it was owned yeah. by like an estate agent or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because it was the, the only big sort of posh looking house on our paper round, we used to speculate perhaps that's <laughs> where Robert Plant lives. <laughs> Um, it wasn't just that we didn't know how the the other half lived it's that we couldn't even imagine it properly mm. so the following week telephone line moved up five places to number eight then dropped two places to number ten the week after but moved back up two places to return to number eight the week after that its highest position but over on stateside US of A it got to number seven on the billboard chart their first top 10 placing the follow-up turn to stone was put out in november of this year and with the assistance of legs and co shaking it all about while trying not to knock over some wobbly polystyrene stalagmites and stalactites got to number 18 the following month yeah, yeah. 
Born in Southport in 1952, Bernard Flint was a former sailor and window cleaner who was working as a van driver for a laundry in Ormskirk in November of 1976 when he went with his best mate Dave Mead, the little brother of Sid Little, to Manchester to audition for Opportunity Knox, the long-running Thames TV talent show. The panel was so taken with his singer-songwriter stylings that they wanted to immediately rush him on the show, only to discover that he'd only written down the name of his street in his application form, which led Huey Green to contact Fleet Street and spark a manhunt that was instantly successful. Fucking hell, if only they got in Huey Green to look for the Yorkshire River... (laughs) He made his debut appearance on the show in January of 1977 and became an instant success, winning 12 episodes on the bounce and retiring undefeated, breaking the record of New World, who won nine weeks in a row in 1970, thanks to over 18,000 fake postcard votes partially organised by Janie Jones's husband. <laughs> he was immediately signed to EMI and his debut single, I Don't Want to Put a Hold on You, went all the way to number three in April, spending six weeks in the top ten. And this single, taken from his first LP, is the follow-up. It's not in the charts just yet, but Top of the Pops knows a hit when it sees one, and I mean that most sincerely, folks. <laughs> it's only the second or third time that we've come across someone who's been on Opportunity Knocks, chaps, and, you know, that's a collective which includes Peters and Lee, mm. Mary Hopkin, Middle of the Road, Lena Zavarone, Neil Reed, The Jam, Bobby Crush, Millican and Nesbit, Paper Lace, and Max Boyce. Hello. Yes, and I did say the jam. Yeah. Paul Weller's girlfriend at the time applied to Opportunity Knocks on behalf of the band in late 1974, and they were invited to audition in August of 1975 at Surbiton Town Hall doing a medley of Beatles covers, uh, but they failed to impress. Uh, and what a, <laughs> what a shame, man. That I think we'd be living in a different world if the jam went on Opportunity Knocks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used to watch Opportunity Knocks at my nan's. Yes. It was an extreme nan show, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I remember even then, two things were agonisingly obvious. Firstly, there was something not right about Huey Green. And secondly, the clapometer did not appear to be the complex piece of highly technological (laughs) sound measuring equipment we were led to believe. Actually, a bit of cardboard moved by a hidden hand, which uh, Mm. struck me as both worryingly imprecise and potentially open to corruption. But that's what's remarkable about Flint. 12 weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the staggering thing about that is that people wrote in, you know, to vote for him. Letters, stamps, get into the post box. Teddington Lock, Middlesex. To get this hateful fucker in yeah because bloody hell this is awful well you do wonder how mr charisma bernie flint 
won it for 12 weeks straight but uh, i mean you'd be up here about spending 12 weeks in flint michigan and 12 weeks listening to bernie <laughs> flint but then you think well he was almost certainly up against identical septuplets with stylophones playing sometimes mm. i feel like a motherless child and you know <laughs> and an old bloke who smashed himself in the face with a baking tray over and over mm. again while screaming and a bearded group of popular northern entertainers with their yes. trousers rolled up over their knobbly knees so they could <laughs> break off in the middle of the song and kick each other in the kneecaps for comic <laughs> relief i bet if you watch the shows that he was actually on he looks like nick drake <laughs> even though you watch this and you just think oh i see your uncle bernie finally got to make his record <laughs> he never gave up Always believed in himself. Yeah, it's nice for him. I mean, I remember Opportunity Knocks extremely well. I mean, it, it was on the telly at my mum's house and my nonna's house right through the 70s. And both Opportunity Knocks and New Faces were a massive deal at the time. But mm. the great thing about them was, unlike the talent shows of today, Opportunity Knocks would pitch up on a Monday evening and then it would just fuck off for the rest of the week and not yeah, bother yeah. you. You know, it wasn't rammed up yeah. your arse non-stop like Pop Idol or any of that shit. So, yeah, I knew... A mr flink quite well but you know going by this performance it is hard to work out why he won every week for three months it's just dog shit isn't it i mean for starters i mean the title bugs me because he's yeah has he just basically chosen that as a drink he's heard of as as i don't know some mm. kind of proof of his americana roots maybe and it's an awful drink anyway immediately brought back oh, emetic yeah. memories for me um, yeah. Only rivaled by, I don't know, Diamond White or Thunderbird Blue. Yeah, it's not a session drink. <laughs> no, no, no. But I, I mean, there's no way of proving it. I, I'm fairly sure that his 12 week reign, I think Brummies had a big part to play in this. No. And he's just hateful. He's not particularly good looking. His voice is horrible. I don't know. But 1977, he was all right. <laughs> oh, yes, right. But his voice is horribly mediocre. And he it, looks like a defender for Liverpool. <laughs> yeah, he does. But his voice is mediocre. He pushes it into the choruses like, like kids in mm. a choir who've been told to enunciate clearly. I mean, yeah. as a kid, I would rather have had, yeah, Bob Blackman singing um, Mule Train and bashing his head yes. in a tea tray or something like that. Yes. His song is really pretty awful. The audience can't dance to it. No. And really, if it wasn't for his religious leanings, he'd already basically be looking ahead at a future of Pontins. Yeah. Supporting the Grumbleweeds or, or Roy oh. Spook Slither J in between the bingo. <laughs> you know, yes. he's, he's not got a lot going for him. Well, hang on. Let's look at this. It's, his song is, uh, I'm going home to Southern Comfort. He's from fucking Southport. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That world-famous Skelmersdale hospitality. Sitting on the porch with a mint julep. A battered sausage and a kick in the balls. Yeah. But in terms of what he looks like, he's got this feathered hair, mm. like flick back, yeah. but manageable, with a neat, unthreatening moustache yeah. and sideburns, which almost touch the tips of the moustache, mm. but not quite, yeah. lest that hint at diabolism or, you know, or the permissive society and he's got that hair shaped like an upside down strawberry like strafed with cossack and yeah what's weird is that today even if he was trying to look ultra conformist like this it might be a moderately attractive man mm. but 1977 styled bernie 
may as well be a different species. <laughs> yeah. you know? I mean, at least he's made the effort in his grey leisure top. Yes. Accessorised with caramel-coloured boots. Mm. It's a beautiful combination. Yes. <laughs> Going perfectly with the, uh, the off-white trousers and the, the yellowish wood of his acoustic guitar. <laughs> it takes quite a man to make natural colours clash. <laughs> you know, there's something irresistibly British about it. He, he ends up looking like... Like like Dickie Davis dreaming about being back on his speedboat. <laughs> <laughs> and he's also got a tattoo of a swallow on his right forearm, which was the oh, the seventies yeah. signifier of being a wronger. Yeah, yeah. Well he was a salty yeah, sea, yeah. wasn't he? It was um, probably part mm, of some yeah. you know, some hazing. I'm unfamiliar with it on the arm. I'd normally see those kind of tats on the neck. Mm. It's a dead giveaway and it's like a spider's yeah. web. And he's Bernie with an eye. One of those spellings, yes. which makes you think, mm. oh, well, his name must not be Bernard. You know, so like sometimes people try and signal to you that it's not the shortened version of the name you're thinking. That's why they've spelt it differently. Mm. It's actually Bernardino or Bernossus. Yeah, yeah, Bernoffel or something. It's like, but it's not. It's Bernard. So why name yourself in a way that in 1977 only means one thing, moderately priced steakhouse? Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, there used to be a Bernie Inn in Kidderminster, to be fair, in, in Blackwell Street in the town centre. There's a place called The Riverboat, which Ooh. for me always lends some extra magic to the first verse of Neil Young's Ambulance Blues, <laughs> uh, because <laughs> it was like a heavenly grotto to me as a kid. <laughs> yeah. like luxury beyond compare. A complete break from the everyday, almost as much as going on the ferry out of Triangle. Yes. Like yeah. You disappear into this tall, dark building, dimly lit, with lights designed to look like candelabras and everything was dark wood and red velvet yeah. and like seating in alcoves and there's like medieval look wooden doors through which would emerge unimaginable delicacies mm. like scampi and breadcrumbs cooked from frozen prog cocktails yeah gammon with pineapple ring and good yeah. lord with chips done to a brown dry turn yeah <laughs> yeah big fat chips black like forest gatto for afters oh lovely obviously it had the same relation to a proper american steakhouse as this record as to johnny cash but <laughs> it was all we knew you know and if, I, if only this record could be described as a complete break from the everyday. Yes. Mm. I don't think so. The Bernie Inn that was round our way, that uh, my mum and dad took me and my sister to a time or two, it had these, these big windows and Dickensian urchins looking in on us hungrily. <laughs> they always used to make me feel really fucking guilty. I just wanted to invite them in and yeah. give them some of my chips. <laughs> so Thatcherite. It's so, so bad, isn't it? This mm, it's, like, yeah. it's not even that bad. That's the worst thing about it. But it doesn't belong on top of the pops, mum. This ain't oh, Pebble God. Mill. No. Yeah, not, not least, because it's not in the fucking chart. It's mm. like, I don't want to put a hold on you was a big hit. Mm. You can sort of see why when you listen to it. It's, yeah, it's not bad it's yeah. like yeah glenn campbell's condensed mulligatawny you know it's a mm. proper old school radio 2 record mm. you know it's like a soothing soundtrack for yeah root canal work or you know potato peeling in the sink <laughs> on valium <laughs> But it's incredible how quick he's run out of steam yeah. in such an easy line. Yeah. It's like you hear the twittering woodwind on this record, like badly imagined birds. It's first line, time-pressed hack prettification. 
Mm. It's a dead giveaway, that sound. Just yeah. nobody has tried with this record. Yeah. That's the thing. And it's just left Bernie high and dry. Is this the first shift at the top of the Pops Orchestra tonight? I think it is. Mm. Yeah. Well in the comfort zone here, aren't they? Mm. In the southern comfort zone, if you will. Well, yeah. I mean, it is doomed because Tony's already predicted confidently that this will be a bigger hit yes. than his previous ones. So yes. Inevitable. The thing I hate the most about this song is that it goes... My father taught me working. Yes. My mm. mother taught me love. Love mm. it. an admission. Yeah, yeah. It's no wonder his dad didn't like him then, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but it's, it's autobiographical, isn't it? Because he wins a talent show and gets loads of votes. And, oh. And he's a success. Yeah. Oh, I didn't listen that far. <laughs> <laughs> he talks about being made a star, doesn't he? Yes. Um, so it's quite self-reflective. But, yeah. Yeah. you know, he goes on about how he's massive success now due to Opportunity Knocks, without mentioning Opportunity Knocks. But, you know, he's a massive success, but all he wants to do is get back to the Everglades of Ormskirk <laughs> and sit a spell, if you will. <laughs> yeah, and drink horribly sweet booze. Yes. Yeah, well, soon he will get his dream, because never mind a fucking Bernie, this is like something from the Bird's Eye Steakhouse. <laughs> like made of crushed up stale breadcrumbs and someone's unsuccessful racehorse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Press that impotence is a beckoning, without a doubt, Ooh. at this point. And, and, and you know, I, I'm gutted that I couldn't find any episodes of Pop Gospel, the show that yes. Bernie Flint did shortly after this. Uh, the belated yeah. kind of wary ITV response if you like to See You Sunday which was a BBC mm. show from 73 to 75 there was a few shows actually in this period leading into the 80s as well that tried to combine pop and religion mm. See You Sunday was a bit of a weird show from BBC in the early 70s presented by Alistair Piri who ends up on Razzmatazz yes. of course mm. and, and you know the BBC described it as a weekly reflection of the religious world of a new generation Ooh. which meant you know 10cc, Colin Blundstone, Cat Stevens, Medicine Head, you know, <laughs> Randy Newman, with discussions about the children of God and transcendental Ooh. meditation and young Methodists and things like that. But pop gospel starts in about 1979. And, yeah. I, and I think basically it starts because of Cliff Richard, who seems to appear on it every week. And Joe Brown. Yeah. And in a sense, it grows out of the kind of late 60s, early 70s Jesus music movement from mm. the States, which is the whole start of the multi-billion Christian contemporary music market. The producer Muriel Young of that was also involved in like a few other pop shows like Breakers and Get It Together at that time. Shang-a-Lang. Yeah. I mean, I, I think pop gospel killed religious pop telly and until of course the bbc came back with the rock gospel show which you might not remember but sheila walsh alvin stardust were the hosts and they'd talk to people like mike and the mechanics and you'd be lewis in the news (laughs) and they'd talk to kajagoogoo you know about their christian beliefs but yeah i cannot find an episode of pop gospel probably for the best because i've already sort of vaguely hold bernie in contempt and i think that would probably just increase it so two weeks later southern comfort entered the chart at number 48 and immediately dropped out a week later beginning a 45 years and counting period of bernie flint not troubling the chart undaunted by the sudden end of his chart career flint put out two more lps and plied his trade on the cabaret circuit popping up on the telly as the host of pop gospel which was one of mickey delenser's first tv directing jobs in 1979 
He went on to be the co-host of the ITV kids show Mooncat & Co. in 1985. No wonder Mooncat was green. (laughs) (laughs) And is still active today. Well, he became... Uh, as you would expect, a music and comedy cabaret act. Right. I mean, that's what he was last time his act was recorded on video, which appears to be uh, 1993, if you check out YouTube. He's there with shoulder pads and an estate agent beard, like Beadle, doing variations (laughs) on the old embassy club standards, like the one about the black man who walks into a pub with a parrot on his shoulder, where did you get that thing, etc. I'm sure he kept everyone's spirits high backstage at this top of the pops. Mm. Osibisa laughing along, good sport. (laughs) Um, But then he punctuates his off-colour gags about homos by uh, strumming idly a a, a round-backed ovation guitar, which is almost worse, you know. But he's like, he's the last twat standing in the old Britain, you know, Mm. in that world where Mm. all you do is you just go out there and do what's already popular, which is jokes so offensive you can't repeat them and songs so inoffensive you can't remember them Mm. Um, and that's his act but more recently he started his own youtube series bernie flint's palette palace where he yeah he goes into his shed and breaks up old wooden pallets <laughs> and builds a TV stand out of them. Um, and he's all smiley and creepy, sort of chuntering. Fuck off, you're making this up. No, 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 no. 200 <laughs> views. So obviously followed by all the Bernie bros. Hopefully in a couple of years, he's equally adept at breaking up old wooden pallets and making them into a dialysis machine. Because, you know, for what is summer without summer's end? Uh, but for now, he still needs his public. So, yeah, on the YouTube, it goes, yeah, yeah. Shit it out. It fucking is Bernie Flint. <laughs> fucking hell, he's not lying, Neil. Not the hellfire. Yeah, 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 yeah. How many views? Yeah. 200 odd. 200. 200. Zero, zero. Uh, it's 201 now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> fucking hell. Taylor meant that most sincerely, Neil. Hold <laughs> the Southern Comfort. Hold the Southern Comfort. Love, isn't it? Uh, that's the sound there of Bernie Flint. Frankie Miller's Full House has come straight in at number 27 this week with the Good to Yourself. Hey, say goodbye, touch me deep inside. Baby, I hope it's not farewell. Tone not fannying about this week, immediately pulls us away from Bernie Flint and pushes us towards Be Good to Yourself by Frankie Miller's Full House. Born in Glasgow in 1949, Francis Miller spent his childhood burrowing into his family's record collection and started writing his own songs at the age of nine. And one song he wrote when he was 12, I Can't Change It, would later be recorded by his mum's favourite singer, Ray Charles. While still at school, he became the singer in his first band, the Dell Jacks, and after stints with Glasgow bands West Farm Cottage and Socket to Him JB, he joined his first professional band, the Stoics. 
1971, after he moved down to London, he linked up with Robin Troer, who had just left Procol Horum, and they formed a band called Jude, which garnered much acclaim from the heavyweight music press, but split up a year later without recording an LP. But Miller, who lived near the Tally Ho public house where he would get up on stage from time to time and sing with the band Eggs Over Easy, who was seen as the founders of a movement called Pub Rock, immediately signed a solo deal with Chrysalis and was teamed with Brinsley Schwartz to record his debut LP, Once in a Blue Moon, which came out in 1973. After making a guest appearance on the Thin Lizzy LP Nightlife, duetting with Phil Linnett on the track Still In Love With You, Miller relocated to New Orleans for his second album, High Life, becoming the first white artist to be produced by Alan Toussaint, the first person to record Shoo Rah Shoo Rah, best known as a hit for Betty Wright, and garnering a reputation as a de facto white soul singer of the 70s, who was so good he made Otis Redding's widow cry when she heard him for the first time. None of this buttered any parsnips with the UK charts, however, and by 1976, Miller was seen by the music press as a perennial also-ran who would never reach Division 1 due to his inability to transfer his pub back to the big stage and his habit of hitting the self-destruct button, having only released four LPs in six years. (laughs) But he's teamed up with members of Ace to form a new group, Full House, and put out his fourth LP of the same name which comes out this week and this tune which was written by Andy Fraser the basis of free is the lead off track from it two weeks ago the day before it was released he made his first ever top of the pops performance which put it into the charts at number 41 and this week it soared 14 places to number 27 so here's another chance to see that clip first question chaps would you call this pub rock because that's pretty much the label that was tagged onto him i wouldn't actually no i do kind of find the term pub rock a little bit offensive sometimes but yeah yeah, yeah. you know but um tacking the word pub onto things tends to downgrade it doesn't it you know pub singer pub team pub grub yeah the implication is that they're good enough to fill out the hope and anchor on a tuesday night but not good enough to fill out a proper venue yeah which i don't think is the case for frankie i think no. he's got a great voice i mean the the thing is you're right he gets a lot of press support mm. throughout these years and almost all that press is talking about how he's almost of a piece with the likes of i don't know joe cocker and paul rogers and rod stewart and yeah. and you know one of those regional singers who comes good but he never comes good i mean there's a really interesting piece actually from 1979 where penny valentine is interviewing Rod Stewart and, and Rod Stewart says that the only singer he's really worried about is Frankie Miller yes. and the only thing he's pleased about is that Miller isn't good looking <laughs> um, <laughs> but when, when I think about other regional singers if you like who came good and became pop stars like Robert Palmer you, you can kind of see in this performance on Top of the Pops that Frankie Miller it, it, he's kind of limited he's kind of mm. dated already I mean basically yes. it's a track and this is precisely what I like about it it sounds almost exactly like the faces circa 71 you know and he's clearly obsessed with wilson pickett and otis redding Mm. the drinking is a problem for frankie miller in an enemy interview so i might even be this week he says the last time that he touched a drop was at the aforementioned england scotland game that you mentioned but he's i don't think he's got enough musical versatility to kind of make the moves that people like rod stewart are making and in an era where where black pop is kind of moving into disco 
he's sounding very, very dated. I am yes. dubious about his claims that he's not drinking on the head. Because in similar interviews with Cream Magazine in the States at the time, he, he talks about, you know, how he scored some great heroin in Detroit whilst touring. Mm. And about how, you know, sort of Brian Robertson being unable to join the Thin Lizzy tour that year is as a direct consequence of Brian Robertson getting glassed while defending Frankie in the Speakeasy Club in London in, in spring of this Ooh. year. But... It's precisely that datedness that I like. And, and I never knew that this was written by uh, Andy Fraser because this is fluid and funky like Prime Free. And, and yes. the riff at its heart is really nice. It's almost ACDC-ish. But this is music that even though I enjoy it, I can tell in 77, this ain't going nowhere. And, and unless he can find a way to shake it up or move on a little bit, it's going to be the same for him. I mean, at the time as a nine-year-old, I would have looked at this and gone, oh, this is dad music. Yeah, yeah. Not yeah. necessarily my dad music, mm. but it's mm. like, well... Yeah, Frankie Willis, Full House, a show Reef, how it's meant to be done. <laughs> uh, he is a bit of a phantom, isn't he, Frankie Miller? Like, yeah. Considering the relative success he's had over the years, you'd be hard-pushed to find too many people nowadays who knew who the fucking hell he yeah. ever was. Yeah. I mean, I only knew the name. I wasn't really familiar with any of his stuff. You know, and I'm embarrassingly well-informed on things that don't matter <laughs> before I was born or shortly afterwards. But I think that could be because he's so exactly the same as other people who are well-remembered. Mm-hmm. He's standing right behind them and he fits perfectly into their shadow. So from yeah. here, you just can't see him because let's face facts, this is Twig Stewart. If Rod Stewart had walked on stage, castrated himself, and then booted both testicles into the audience, Frankie Miller would have gone out and done it the next day. It's just, Mm. this song is almost exactly the same as Stay With Me by the Faces, almost identical. And the band are 50% Faces and 50% Free. They should have called themselves Cheap. (laughs) almost free and there's literally nothing here that isn't sourced from one or the other of those places you can tell his roots are the same as those groups and he Mm. likes all the original people that they but there's nothing here that isn't sourced directly from those groups Mm. and despite the fact that he's a really good singer in his own Mm. right and authentically scottish yes Mm. so the sheer tonight matthew energy yes. of this is it's a bit uncomfortable although i wouldn't say that to his face no. at least not in 1977 because i wouldn't fancy my chances in a dust up clyde side rules i get the impression frankie was at least the real deal mm. fists yeah. and forehead wise yeah frankie say stitch that um <laughs> And in fairness, you know, he was sort of the real deal musically, even if it was somebody else's real deal. I mean, as Neil says, Rod Stewart himself is on record numerous times as being a a big Frankie Miller fan. He doesn't consider him to be like some croaking Donovan. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. He considers him a, a respected contemporary, which like that wouldn't be the case if he had nothing going on. Mm. And it, it's not going to be down to generosity, which is a trait rarely associated with Rod Stewart. So it's like if Erno Rubik 
was going around saying, hey, I love this Taiwanese-made cuboid logic puzzle <laughs> called Fascinating Colour Block. Maybe you can find one in your local pound shop. Fiendishly difficult, let me tell you. And it's a bit of a shame, isn't it? Yeah. Because he's obviously a talented bloke. Yeah. I, I think he, j- he just needs a big monster hit. He needs a song yeah. that is a hit. This isn't it. No. But if he's going to break out of the ghetto that he's in and cross over, he just needs a, a really big hit and this isn't it. This is just, it's kind of album tracky. Yes. Yeah. And I wouldn't have appreciated the lyrics either. No. It sounds like your mum done it. Oh, get yourself a girlfriend. Sort yourself out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he's basically saying to someone, hey, you're a complete fuck up. Why don't you drag some woman into your life and make her life a misery? Which is what I didn't want to hear when I was nine. It's just, it's a funny thing to say about someone we're seeing right here on top of the pops and who's written enough american hits to presumably make him a very rich man Mm. but there's always something a bit uncomfortable watching someone who wasn't anywhere near as successful as you would expect them to be Mm. for no apparent reason i mean there's more egregious examples than this where the forgotten guy is actually better than the people who made Mm. it Mm. because you know, in most areas of creative arts uh, and media and, frankly, everything else, bland and fundamentally talentless people will succeed and will take over and will close ranks to squeeze out anyone who's not like them, mm. which, which is how so many things end up like they do. Mm. And sometimes it's just dumb luck or bad fortune. Like, you know when you're watching Cracker Jack? Cracker and see, Jack! And, and you see Peter Glaze mm. and you think, fucking hell, man. By 1978, you should have been living in Beverly Hills next door to Mo Howard. Yes. <laughs> only leaving your poolside to be flattered by Dick Cavett. Mm. And instead, here you are playing second banana to Ed Shitpot Stewart. Yeah. It's Singing just- Making Plans for Nigel. I mean, fucking hell. Yeah. You know, entertaining a bunch of runny nosed cub scout cunt yes. holding a precarious stack of mb games with a cabbage <laughs> balance on top. and frankie isn't quite on that level but he's talented enough that you know that when he was starting off all his friends contemporaries girlfriends family they would have found it utterly implausible that he could possibly have failed mm. yeah yeah, it's yeah. like in the same way that any Premier League footballer, even the donkiest donkey, if he came and joined in your kickabout in the park, he looks like a 24-year-old Lionel Messi. Mm. You know what I mean? Because it's, you know, levels. Yeah. And it's the same. When you're up close with someone who can really sing and can do it live night after night, all you can see is the gulf between them and the rabble. Yeah. And you think, oh, I'm in the presence of a future superstar. Mm. But it doesn't always work like that. No. You know? And although in the grand scheme of things, Frankie Miller is not a failure, don't you think that deep down in his own mind, he kind of was? Yeah. Yeah. He's in a white shirt, a, a tight black waistcoat, and even tighter jeans. So he, look, he looks like a cross between Francis Rossi and Hurricane Higgins. <laughs> and more importantly, he would look like those Scottish people who were beating the shit out of each other and glassing each other outside the pub on Saturday night, of course, which I watched yeah, from, yeah, yeah, from yeah. a car window. Yeah, look like. Yeah. The other thing I wouldn't like was that his guitarists are doing that really over-egging of the playing of their instruments. You know, it looks good from the back of the hall, but on telly it looks like they're wrestling with an anaconda, and it's like, all you're doing is just plucking a string, mate. (laughs) Surely it doesn't take that much effort. With legs immensely far too far apart. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. 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 
Yeah, what Tory power stunts. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Definitely, yeah. It's just they get so many things right, but ultimately mm. there's just nothing here to bother you or delight you. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I sat watching this, scribbling down notes, and I'm looking at that page of notes now, and it just says, so drunk and so used to it, like having <laughs> piss in your ears, ears oh piss. Actual killer of Carl Bridgewater, question mark. Mm. Um, Liechtenstein is Switzerland taken to its logical conclusion. Uh, Harry Maguire dash Stan Ogden's stunt double Paul Heaton dash Alf Roberts stunt double and Rummy Cub World Championships live from Mogadishu <laughs> so I think it's fair to say that Frankie Miller's Full House didn't quite succeed in holding my attention all the way through uh, mm. but then mm. inattentive type my advice to Frankie is try harder or Better still, don't try quite so hard. Mm. That's all gold, though, Taylor. When's a solo album out? <laughs> Poor old Frankie Miller. He was usurped by Rod Stewart musically, and his game show got taken off him by Bob Monkhouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he ended up less famous than his brother, Windy. <laughs> <laughs> So the following week, be good to yourself, dropped two places to number 29, but like ELO, nipped back up two places the week after, but got no further. A year later, Miller's latest producer, David Mackay, nudged him towards doing a cover of a flop single by a band called Poacher, who had been on New Faces, and he fared much, much better when he took Darling all the way to number six for three weeks in November of 1978, and got to number one in Norway. The follow-up to that, When I'm Away From You, only got to number 42 in January of 1979, and bar getting to number 45 with Caledonia in March of 1992, he never troubled the chart again. But he had a go at acting in 1979 as the star of the Play For Today episode, Just A Boy's Game, where he attempts to live up to his beloved grandpa's reputation as the hardest man in Greenock, and spent much of the 80s writing and performing songs for films such as All the Right Moves, Act of Vengeance and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Have you seen that play for today? Yeah. I can't say I He's have, no. He's fucking brilliant, he is isn't it? very is good, yeah. The ending of that is just fucking brutal, isn't it, Taylor? <sighs> yeah. Video playlist, everyone. His career unfortunately came to an end when he suffered a brain hemorrhage in 1994, went into a coma for five months and underwent extended rehabilitation. Oh, and his number one in Norway inspired Chrysalis to rush out his first compilation LP for that country alone in 1979, entitled Frankie Who, Frankie Fucking Miller, That's Who. Till you old dying day May the sun shine down your way Yeah, yeah Step out of Southwest now Because it's two hour wire time They put away their combine harvester And now I want to introduce you to Farmer Bill's Caliban And here are the Wurzels When you 
down on the farm I don't need no alarm I rise from me bed at 5.30 After we get to contemplate the overhead lights for a couple of seconds We return to Tone Who warns us that it's ooh-ah, ooh-ah time And then, out of nowhere The two members of the next band Who don't look like a kindly Fred West Hove into view and whistle in his ear It's Farmer Bill's Cowman by the Wurzels. At last. We chanced upon the Wurzels in chart music number 35, where they trotted out their prized number one single, Combine Harvester, in the 1976 Christmas Day episode. Dead lambs being shoveled into plastic bags, etc., (laughs) etc. This single, a cover of I Was Kaiser Bill's Batman, the single recorded by Whistling Jack Smith, which got to number five in April of 1967, is the follow-up to Give Me England, a self-penned single where they go around Europe and aren't impressed because they don't have scrumpy or bingo. (laughs) Realising their mistake, they reverted to the winning formula of taking a well-known tune and fermenting it in a still, and put out this from their latest LP, also entitled Give Me England. It's not in the charts yet, but the BBC fucking love the Wurzels for reasons we'll go into later. So here they are in the studio. (laughs) That's the only bit of interaction Tony's had with anyone so far in this episode. Why do you think he's being kept away from the kids? It is around about this time that the uh, Top of the Props presenters get a bit more isolated, Mm. don't they? Yeah, they usually start off on their own in their little fortress of solitude and then over the course of the episode they're gradually reintroduced to society. (laughs) Yeah, like a Godzilla film, isn't it? It's just the same. (laughs) Godzilla's always on his own. And then about an hour in, Godzilla's surrounded by a load of kids and he's introducing the Wurzels. <laughs> well, I mean, as we'll see later, there's, there's a bloody good reason Tony's not allowed near the kids at the moment. Mm. Yeah, as we'll see later. The Wurzels, chaps, it's, it's easy to forget, but they were fucking massive in 1976, 1977, weren't they? A cursory skim of the newspapers of the era reveals the following article from the West Britain and Royal Cornwall Gazette. Headline... Ooh ah, tis strange our folks go for Wurzels. The merits of the pop group The Wurzels and the New Seekers were discussed by members of Carrier Council's Amenities Committee last week. Mr Ashley Hawley, Deputy Manager of Cornbury Leisure Centre, said the centre made a loss of just under £900 on the New Seekers concert. <laughs> Mr Jim Ham asked how the sale of tickets for the Wurzels concert due to be held on Saturday were going. Mr Hawley said that no Nearly 1,000 tickets had been sold. (laughs) Why can't the new Seekers create local interest like the Wurzels? Asked Mr Ham. It was suggested that reports that one of the new Seekers girl singers had left might have put people off. Mr MJ Gale said his daughters were not interested in the new Seekers but were going to see the Wurzels. It was just a matter of choosing the right people to appear. I think that is the most granular I'll ever get <laughs> on a bit of research. <laughs> Fucking council meetings from nearly 50 years ago, everyone. Well, they, they were massive. And the thing is, you, you could not avoid them, especially in the year of no. characterful dads. You know, here that here they are. And, and, mm, and the thing is, yes. even if they stopped having chart success, as they soon do, it doesn't matter. No. They've got the Basil Brush show to go on. They've got Chegger's Plays Pop to go yeah. on. They've got all the summertime oh, yes. seaside specials. So there's just so 
many shows that they can fill in on. And that's why they're kind of a big mm. part of 77. But they're certainly a big part of my memories of this period because they were just yes. fucking everywhere. You're right, Neil. People are turning out for that Somerset sound, even when the Wurzels aren't appearing. Here's another article, this time from the Litchfield Mercury, a fortnight from this episode, entitled A Night for Some Worslin." Pop group The Wurzels have obviously had a great effect on Litchfield people. <laughs> Out of about 300 people who attended London Cricket Club's Wurzel Night at Seedy Mill Farm, at least 60 joined in the spirit and went dressed in smocks and other rustic gear. The Grand Wurzel Night was inspired by The Wurzels, <laughs> famous for their country-style-inspired versions of pop songs, and the evening went with a Somerset swing. A challenge to sing a Wurzel song was not taken up, but there was a prize for the worst-dressed couple. The event was in aid of club funds. So this is people turning up even though the Wurzels aren't going to be there in any way, shape exactly. or form. That's mental. It's incredible, it's isn't it? the concept of the Wurzels has drawn them there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They're like living wombles at this time, <laughs> aren't they? And this summer... This puts a tin lid on everything. The Saffron Walden Weekly News reported on a visit at the local Baptist church by two strolling gospel minstrels who performed a Wurzels hit with rewritten lyrics <laughs> entitled, I've Got a Brand New Holy Bible. <laughs> so, yeah, it's Wurzel time, man. It is. The, I mean, this song, Farmer Bill's Cowman, this performance, mm. I mean, this is golden era Wurzels, isn't it, really? Before mm. the Joker's worn completely thin. Um, which yes. it does fair. I mean, I think it probably reached its unfunniest nadir on the I Hate JR and I Shot JR yes. singles. Yes. But this is the Wurzels okay. I remember. I don't remember the Adge Cutler years, and, and, and no. I don't think I ever caught an episode of the great Western musical Thunderbox, because it was only on HTV. So, of course. So this is the Wurzels I do remember, this this kind of yeah. permanent two Ronnie's sketch of a band. Yes, <laughs> aren't they, they just? Are. Aren't they I mean, just? it's just a permanent preemption of Spinal Tap sex fire. I and mean, I'm astonished to learn that yes. they covered that. Yes, extremely well. <laughs> it's a fucking great version. But yeah, you're right, Neil. You, you know, life after Adge Cutler, that makes the Wurzels the new order of the late 70s, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, the single, as we've pointed out, uh, it's a rewrite of a hit that kids didn't give a fuck about, mm. which is good. Mm. And as always, they lean heavily on imaginative reinterpretations of the lyrical motif, ooh ah. In the last single that made the charts, I Am A Cider Drinker, they went for Uaruare, which does sound to me like a West Country paramilitary organisation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the provisional Uaruare play responsibility for the tractor bomb outside the woodpecker factory last Saturday. The silage bomb. Uh, and this time, they've opted for Uaruara which sounds like something Scooby-Doo would say to Shaggy when a Frankenstein was lumbering up behind him. So, not as good, but, you know, still good enough. As a kid, Neil, what did you think of this? Well, you've already laid your cards on the table, re Brigas and Rastrick. I'm assuming that you'd like this. Well, I did like this. I mean, yes. I, I liked the Wurzels anyway because of their cartoonish kind of aspect. I mean, their faces yes. are like they're drawn by Hanna-Barbera. They do have yes. this horrible habit in a way. Uh, a lot of comedy records do this um, in this period that they've got, a, in a sense, thief from contemporary culture and, and blend it in, if you like. Do you remember that kind of comedy music that just uses every 
everything. In Combine Harvester, I seem to mm. recall there's an ad lib where he goes, who loves your baby? Yes. And it's kind of this... Yeah, co- the performance. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, on top of the pops, yeah, certainly. I remember that Kojak ad lib. And here, in this performance, I think they nick John Inman's line from Are You Being Served? I, th- yes. I think there's a moment where they go, I'm free. I fucking yes. hate moments like this. Mm. But they have pushed, at this period, completely beyond local fame i mean it's yeah. astonishing when you look at those old singles drink up the zyder yeah it sold like hundred thousand copies in the west country or something insane yeah. like that but Mental, isn't it at the same time though i enjoyed their appearances on all the different shows that they were on they're pretty much on all the different pop shows mm. you can sense already here that they're running out of songs to parody really aren't they yes <laughs> so yeah the writing's on the wall but i, I would have loved this being on i mean the lyrical content as always is an uncompromising in examination of rural life so there's scatology violence alcoholism sex and yes bovine homosexuality (laughs) Pete Bug gets so pissed up on cider that he milks a bull does a bit of Simon Bateson on it and that bull gets turned (laughs) Mm. that's what the I'm free thing is about total joke would have gone over my head I reckon uh, as a kid not me I got it (laughs) your your heritage is Hindu isn't it my heritage is Hindu yeah would fundamentalist Hindus be offended by a record where a bull gets wanked off yeah they probably Probably would, you know. I mean, yeah. you know, over there, it's nuts. In Mumbai, you know, if a cow is walking down the street, as they do, and just sits on its arse, you can't do anything. The cars have to avoid it, you know. You can't right. move it on. Very, very, very holy about cows. And, right. um, and when the vegetarianism kicked in with my dad, couldn't have beef burgers for four years, man. I was gutted. Oh, <laughs> yeah, no, this, this might not go down well. And India, particularly now with the Hindu, the Hindu fundamentalist nutters in charge. So, yeah. So, yeah, Pete Bud would be floating in a world of shit and piss and spunk <laughs> he when would. he dies. And toenails. And, um, oh, and course, snot. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, pretty much everything else. Well, there was a diversion. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Didn't expect to be talking about that. But the audience reaction is kind of revealing in a sense. I think, you know, it, it, it's only little kids who are going to be digging this. Um, there's a handful of kids amused here, a hell of a lot more totally unamused, just stood yes. with their arms crossed. Yes. So, yeah, the writing's on the wall. It's going to be over soon in a chart-topping sense or in a chart-crushing sense. But um, there's still going to be a going concern for several years hence. Um, in kids' imaginations and on Crackerjack and everything that they could ever appear on. Indeed. Taylor, in you come. Come on, tell me some Worsley stories. Yeah, well, I mean, if you got 100 people at random and you asked them, who's your favourite pop group of all time? Mm. I think most of them would probably say Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, Howe. <laughs> but if you then ask them, who's your second favourite group? Undoubtedly, almost all of them would say the Wurzels, because mm. even today, these icons of Britishness make all of us feel so proud of the landscape and traditions of our country. I mean, you know, that, that that's a... A joke, right? Uh, they're about as good an advertisement for the British countryside as straw dog. <laughs> but there's a kernel of truth there. You know, when you go into the British Museum and you right. walk through all the galleries of like ancient art and artifacts from all around the world, and there's all these perfectly smooth jade amulets on leather chains and mm. glittering bird statuettes sculpted from <laughs> solid gold with sapphires embedded all the way around. 
And then you go into the room with British stuff from the same period, and it's like some mud with a stick in it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, oh, a sign saying early British figurative art, and it's a bit of rock with a parsnip for a nose. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, it's not our fault. It's because it's so cold and wet here. You know, just have to concentrate on survival. And once we invented buildings, we managed to catch up. But yeah. there's still something in the British psyche that will revert to that when under stress. <laughs> and, you know, in its way, with its mixture of cowpat brained simpleton primitivism and slick showbiz, <laughs> this is a form of authentic English country music. You know, give me England indeed. Yes. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like the, if the trogs had been shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it makes me a bit sad because... I used to really feel the countryside. You know, I lived there for a bit as a kid and it was really in me. I used to feel nature <laughs> deep down with a really intense and yeah, almost inexplicable seriousness. Nature boy Taylor Parks. And nowadays it's just something I see in the distance from trains passing mm. by. You know, it's like looking out of a window at youth or social democracy. It's like familiar, but far away made into flats you know so yeah. i sort of thank the wurzels for reminding me of what it's really like and why i shouldn't go back <laughs> you know here we are it's jubilee week uh professional surfs mm. i mean at the time i'd have been well up for this um I, I didn't know i was kaiser bill's batman but i fucking hate that tune it's just proper carnaby street cat shit yeah my mate hates that more than anything else in the world you're good late night they used to show repeats of beat club and there's yes. that clip of whistling jack catch on beat club doing this and it's not even him whistling on the record no. it's just some bloke dressed up in like a guardsman's outfit uh, my mate used to, his steam used to come out of his ears at how smug this guy looked mm. considering he's miming to i was kaiser bill's batman it's not yeah. even him <laughs> no i can't hear that tube without seeing that fucking mini with zoom written on the side <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, well, and those blokes picking out uh, Red Guardsman's jackets off yes. a rail. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you're right, Neil. They are practically full-time BBC employees at the moment, aren't they? They've been on Swap Shop. They're regular guests on the latest series of That's Life. They're on Seaside Special, Ken Dodd's World of Laughter, Ronnie mm. Corbett's Saturday Special, Cabaret Showtime, The Basil Brush Show, Sunny Time Saturday, regular guests on the Radio 1 Road Show, and, of course, Top of the Pops. And, you know, while I was watching this, I, I started to think, why the Wurzel? Why are they on BBC all the time? Well, let me take you back, chaps, to 1972 when Johnny Berlin, the controller of Radio 1, was on a camping holiday in France and he chanced upon a mobile variety show on a stage that was towed from site to site on the back of a lorry. And when he returned back to work, he set about doing a wholesale nick of the idea, but then he discovered that the BBC didn't have anything suitable in their garage to uh, put it on with. So he cast around looking for advice and he ran into a producer from BBC 
Radio Bristol, who put him in touch with a chap called John Miles. Not that music is my first love hit maker, but the manager of a local band who bought an old furniture van and amended it so it could open out into a mobile stage, which was then taken to fairs and festivals. Right. And when Berlin got in touch, he was told that the van had already been sent off to the knackers yard because it kept breaking down. But he'd be happy to build another one on the condition that Radio One had rented it out for the summer. And uh, after he made them a scale model of what he wanted, made out of Weetabix boxes, Beerling <laughs> gave his approval. So... Miles located a suitably sized chassis, did a drawing of what he wanted, and uh, he gave both to a local coach builder and let him get on with it. And the result was a portable stage that was able to be towed around the country by a Range Rover, which was driven by his brother, Tone, or Smiley, if you will. And yeah, that's how the Radio One Roadshow came about. And would you happen to know the name of the band that Miles managed? Yeah, the fucking Wurzels, mate. Really? I see. I see. <laughs> because the BBC looks after its own, doesn't it? <laughs> Indeed. <sighs> it all makes sense. Mm. Anything else to say yeah. about this? It's always a bit glum when you look at a band's official website. You start at the news section and the most recent story is from last year and it says one of the bands died of COVID, although he was 80. I'm sure at his funeral they led his empty horse with his wellies backwards in the stirrups. (laughs) (laughs) But in the lyrics section, they include the words to this song. The first verse of which ends, Out in the pen, there's a broody old hen. Mm. She is as wild as a tiger. You try to touch her egg and she'll bite off your leg. Mm. I feeds her on faggots and cider. Yeah. And depending on your worldview, it's either a good, bad or hilarious thing that the Mm. Wurzels have felt the need to put an asterisk next to the word faggots, Mm. leading to a footnote (laughs) which clarifies faggots, a dish of chopped liver, etc., made into balls, Mm. lest any of the woke snowflakes misconstrue these lines to uh, mean that Pete Bud entraps homosexuals <laughs> and feeds them to his carnivorous hen. Um, <laughs> it's just helpful. It's like the little pride flag, you know, and just, just, mm. but except that the very next verse goes, I felt such a fool tried milking the bull. Yes. He must have enjoyed it somehow, man. Mm. Now every day at three, he comes and says, I'm free. <laughs> That's why I'm Farmer Bill's cowman. It's every red-blooded hayseed's nightmare. <laughs> Accidentally pulling on a bull's penis, him liking it, yeah. and it making him a gay yeah. like John Inman. Yeah. Fucking hell, can you imagine? Oh, I only got half a bucket of milk, but it weren't half creamy. Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I love drinking that bull spunk. I mean, it's an occupational hazard, isn't it? I suppose it, it floats on top of your tea, man. It's not good. <laughs> I think. We, I mean, us being the ATV land people, we've got a natural kind of predilection towards this stuff to a certain extent because you know our accents are a mix of West Country and then and, and other stuff. Your so, accents, m- perhaps so. But yeah, there's a little bit of Uanus around here. I'm very close to like Worcestershire and places like that, and it's on the downward slope towards that area. Mm. And you know, faggot and pea batches are very, very popular yeah. around here yeah. in a rich West Country sort. Yeah. So you know. 
show. Um, I've always wondered what a West Country sauce is. I think Taylor's just described how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe so. But, may, I mean, maybe that's why I had a sort of slight affection towards this. But, yeah, I must admit, I've been moaning about characterful dads. There is something deeply unpleasant about the way Tony introduces this record mm, yeah, and the yeah. leering looks on the faces of the Wurzels as they practically pretty much nibble his ears. Yes. It's pretty gross, isn't it? They're whistling in his ears. Um, I can't remember the names, but the one who looks like a Partick Thistle defender and the other one who looks like Rennie's dad. <laughs> yeah, Tommy Banner and Tony Bayliss. That's the two red-shirt Wurzels, basically. Yes. Yeah, they converge <laughs> yeah, on yeah. Tony, yeah, yeah. whistling, and he backs away. He looks absolutely riven with pain. Well, he, ba- he backs away <laughs> grimacing. He reacts as if they've just started whistling the theme tune to Robin's Nest. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what it's meant to be, he backs off grimacing to suggest that they stink, right? Like they got bad mm, Or they're horrible. I'm just saying, we know that unlike Richard O'Sullivan, Tony couldn't act. And that is a, a very convincing halitosis recoil. It was a really good introduction because they hove into view and Tony kind of like withdraws. And then all of a sudden, Pete Bud rises up from under the screen, pointing into the distance. It looked brilliant. <laughs> I do like Pete Bud. He does look really friendly. He's got a lovely voice as well. well he is like an older, more rural Dave Bartram, isn't he? <laughs> They've got that same kind of bell-shaped haircut. Yeah. Well, the secret of the Wurzels, I think, is their believability mm. i mean everyone concentrates <laughs> on pete bud the leader of the wurzels mm. because he looks like a beano drawing come to life yes. yeah, yeah. but the yeah. whole band are genuinely unnerving right any one of mm. them away from the stage you could imagine meeting on a rural walk <laughs> and it would be just him standing there smiling vacantly next to another bloke who does all the talking who looks at you Mm. suspiciously and he's holding a shotgun and he says, occasionally (laughs) cocks his head towards the Wurzel and says, he don't much care for newcomers. Sometimes (laughs) he forgets his manners. I'm thinking here mostly of Tony Bayliss, uh, nature's cruelest and most powerful mistake. He crushed a tender young bloom in his fist. But it was his way of loving. <laughs> it's terrible, though, isn't it? You see the Wurzels here, and they're all rosy cheek smiles. Mm. Yeah, but, you know, chances are one barren autumn, one moonless night round the back of the grain silo. Shoot the dog first. Goodbye, my lovely. Bang. And leaving a scene of carnage back at the farmhouse. And then it will be 12 bore in the mouth. No hesitation. And... He'll decorate the galvanised steel behind his yeah. head with the valueless jelly that he'd been keeping in it. And somewhere in the distance, there's seven new people born. There is a slight terror of the countryside, which is part of the Wurzel's appeal, I think. I mean, they're here in a big smoke, but, but yeah, but you don't know the darkness that they're going back to. I think that, 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 no, but that is part of it. The West Coast, I mean, I spent about a weekend recently. Um, in East Anglia, which I've never been to before. And it was spooky as fuck. The countryside has always terrified me. But this, you know, East Anglia is particularly terrifying. But this is it. Who knows what the Wurzels are going back to exactly? Um, You know, the West Country was... I'm I'm not saying it was a mysterious zone, but it did exert that kind of mystery to it. Um, Whenever Mm. I got down to Devon or Cornwall on holiday, it was a bit spooky. 
And um, the Wurzels keep that in their faces, basically. You don't see faces like that in the city. They could only be born in Somerset or from that area. <laughs> so, yeah, there is that slight darkness to um, what the hell are they going back to once their pop business is done um, in the big city appearing on top of the pops. You know, that long drive back to Devon. Their farmsteads and homesteads, all of that still spooks the shit out of me. And they are realistic. They're not um, city boys dropped into farming schmocks. You do no. sense. No. That much as, you know, most burgers that you have at Glastonbury have animal feces in them. These guys probably have got a bit of shit on their shoes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's that realism to them, which which I think appeals. It was terrible. By the time they found him, his neck stump had been licked down to almost nothing. <laughs> yeah, they're spinning a total myth about the bucolic lifestyle of the farm. Because about a year from now, our class in junior school gets took out for a trip to the farm. And of course Wurzel's songs got sung on the coach and you know there was kind of like great anticipation amongst the youth that although we might not see the Wurzels there that day we were going to see people just like them in smocks and pitchforks but oh dear those illusions were totally shattered when we got there to realize that everything fucking funked of animal <laughs> shit and it goes without saying that there were no wurzels or wurzelikes in attendance just some chunky blokes who looked absolutely fucked off about being stared at by some junior school council cunts <laughs> and my teacher thought it'd be a great idea to take a tape recorder and hand it round the kids so we could record an oral diary of the day and uh, he played it back to us the day afterwards and, uh-huh. and what was heard on that tape was me refusing point blank to walk through a barn and then dry heaving and fighting not to cry when Sir dragged me through it <laughs> And then us looking at some cows in a field and one of them rearing up and landing on the back of the other and Michael Hall shouting, Ah, sir, look at them cows bumming. (laughs) Bummer cow. (laughs) Yeah, bummer cow. And the tape concludes with us standing next to the pigsty, which was properly rank. Oh, God, yeah. By this time, you can hear on the tape that I'd absolutely fucking lost it. Now, this is the era of Prince the Dog on That's Life, and you can actually hear me manhandling the tape recorder off some youth going up to the pigs and shouting, Sausages! 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 And by this time, I'm lying completely face down on the desk with my arms over my head, totally shamed up, and I've never been to a farm since. So, yeah, thanks, Wurzels. No, I mean, and the realities of the farm are something that the Wurzels don't really talk about their idea of farming it's not the brutal inhumane angry business that is actually going on you know no which would probably no. lead to entirely different type of music yeah it's just getting pissed moving some shit from one end of the barn to the other and then uh, getting K-Lide on scrumpy and trying to get your end away that sounds appealing, whereas, sounds I don't know, appealing. having a job where you get a box of freshly hatched chicks and throw them into some machine that destroys them um, <laughs> you know, would lead to, I don't know, some proto-industrial murk in the mid-70s, I guess. But yeah, the world wasn't ready for it. Ah, you're a bunch of soft city boys. <laughs> so, two weeks later, Farmer Bill's Cowman enter the charts at number 45, then enter the top 40 at number 39, and a week later got to number 32 its highest position. 
The follow-up, a tune for their favourite football team called One for the Bristol City, failed to chart, but they went back to the formula and put out a cover of the pushbike song called The Tractor Song, which also failed to chart, and this remains their final appearance on top of the pops. Oh, Probably yeah. for the best. Just just a warning, by the way, to the pop crazy youngster, do not seek out the B-side to the tractor song, Funky Farmyard. Oh, it's so disappointing, isn't it? It is. It's just not funky in any way whatsoever. Disappointing. No. Yeah, I was expecting a bit of Bill Oddie style. Yeah, or a bit of, so what, what's that meters track? Seahorns Farm or whatever it's called. Um, yeah, yes. something like that, but no, it's, it's resolutely unfunky. No. After trying once again to do a bit of Euro bashing with I'll Never Get a Scrumpy Ear, in 1979 and then jumping on the Dallas bandwagon with the double A side I hate JR I love JR in 1980 they got all urban in 1983 with Wurzel rap but all <laughs> failed to chart have you heard that uh, no I actually I, I avoided it I did see it but I just Video thought the playlist everyone yeah I'll check it out <laughs> however they resurfaced as a student union act in the early 90s and a re-release of Combine Harvester got to number 39 in November of 2001 and their cover of Don't Look Back in Anger got to number 59 in December of 2002. <laughs> Neil, Jesus. have you? Have no, you? of course I bloody have. I bet it's better than the fucking Oasis. Possibly, I mean, presumably they've adapted the lyrics um, in a Wurzel style E. No, no. It's just a straight cover. Yeah. Why the fuck would I want to do that to myself? After putting out Make Hay, Not War for the Stop the War movement in 2003, <laughs> they went back to basics with a re-recording of I Am A Cider Drinker with guest vocalist Tony Blackburn, <laughs> which got to number 57 in May of 2007. They're still active today and share the same manager with which other band? Ooh. White House? <laughs> the Stranglers. Oh. Blimey! Neil? Yeah? You know what I'm going to ask? I think I do. Something about the catering. The Wurzels or the Stranglers? Who would you have a sandwich off? Um, <sighs> oh, man. <laughs> I mean, they're both gross. But, yeah, with the fear of uh, genuine faecal contamination from the Wurzels. Bread all soggy with cow placenta. <laughs> and, and, um, I think I've got to go stranglers. Wow. Mm. Fucking hell. You've got to consider, though, from the Wurzels, it's going to be farm fresh. <sighs> yeah, but farm fresh is often gross, with to be honest West with you. With that West Country sauce. <laughs> Yeah, I'd have brains faggots in a West Country sauce off the Wurzel, so long as they assure me that they're just putting it in a microwave. <laughs> um, anything that they've touched. No, they're farm folk. They don't know cleanliness. Neil! <laughs> no, you know, it's the country way. I feel so apologetic to our rural... No, 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 your stomach hardens to that stuff after this is a few it. years. This is the it. Bacteria just die like dogs in there. Yeah, my aircon in my car, right, is fucked. So um, when I was driving through the countryside... On my way to Norfolk, of course, I was hit by those gusts of chicken shit and pig shit. You know, the mm. really bad stuff. And, yeah. you know, because my air cons, there's no point closing the window. So I just had to, you know, brave it. Um, but these yeah. countryside folk, you know, you just get used to it, don't you? They, they are completely yeah. inured to that stuff. So, mm. you know, during sandwich preparation, 
Who knows what the fuck will be going in there? Who knows whether they've cleaned... Oh, look, I'm not saying everyone in the countryside is a dirty, disgraceful bastard, but, <laughs> <laughs> but the Wurzels are committed rural folk, and, mm. yeah, I'd be dubious about proper contamination from animals, uh, animal shit, basically. So, yeah, yeah, although the Stranglers are grubby bastards as well, um, I don't think they've got, um, you know, pigs in their back garden or anything. So, yeah, I've got to go, got to go stranglers, I'm afraid. So, pop crazy youngsters, if you read in the news about a cow being thrown off a bridge onto someone's <laughs> car on the outskirts of Coventry soon, that'll be Neil. <laughs> <laughs> Just have a look at this. Guess who it is? You're absolutely right. Glad it's night in the pips. And this one called Baby Don't Change Your Mind. Tony, alone again, naturally decides to turn the show into an episode of Who's Baby? As we see a photo of a toddler who is so obviously the front woman of the next group, followed by a photo of her and her mates with Ed Sullivan, as he finally introduces Baby Don't Change Your Mind by Gladys Knight and the Pips. We covered Gladys, a brother Bubba, William Guest and Edward Patton in chart music number 18 when they took Midnight Train to Georgia to number 10 in June of 1976. Since then, they've been a steady presence in the lower reaches of the top 40 over here, but this single, the follow-up to Nobody But You, which got to number 34 in January of this year, written by Van McCoy and the lead cut from the LP Still Together, sees the group sniffing the wind, recognising the gamey tang of disco and scampering after it. It entered the charts a fortnight ago at number 33, then soared 11 places to number 22. This week, it's only nudged up one place to number 21, but no matter, because here is the video. I really like Tony's uh, link here where he says, uh, I'll be watching what he does with that pitchfork, I'll tell you. Because although it's not a very (laughs) clever or funny remark, it mm. does make you think how incredibly exciting and memorable it would have been if Tommy Banner had actually leapt off the stage, <laughs> pushed through the audience, and rammed his pitchfork up Tony Blackburn's ass, mm. causing Tony to throw back his head and scream with pain. So both mm. prongs of the pitchfork emerged, tearing <laughs> through his exposed throat and showering the cheering audience with blood and tissue. And uh, Tommy Banner whispers, you was right to worry, young'un, as he performs a unspeakable pagan rite on the body. And up in the gallery, they're getting calls telling them to cut the feed, and Robin Nash is screaming, don't cut, don't cut, we're staying live. This is sensational stuff. And uh, at home, Tessa Wyatt is watching it with Richard O'Sullivan, and they're Mm. both laughing. Anyway, that's what Tony was worried about. Mm. I think he needn't worry quite so much have you been watching a lot of um, italian folk horror movies of late uh, taylor oh, no more than usual <laughs> <laughs> so anyway this video it's uh, it's 70s video cliche number two isn't it the band having fun in the studio 
even though the entire film is is just set in a, a massive couple of boxes, you still got that American vibe off it. And you know, by this time, nineteen seventy seven, any bit of film about America, even if it's just a studio, is thrilling. Oh, without a doubt, to the youth, isn't it? I mean, by American standards, this is actually kind of a budget video, you know. Yes, but after the Wurzels, <laughs> yes. oh, my God, God yeah. what a magical other world America looks like. Yes, I mean, I love this song, the Van McCoy yes. production tilts them towards disco like you said it's not wholeheartedly disco yet i don't think no it keeps but it's, the, it's getting there it's isn't getting it? there and it keeps the motownness and the soul and it's just a great track and, and and fundamentally i mean as ever with with black american pop from the 70s i'm not saying cmp contributors have to stand down in a sense but it, it's tricky because the sense of relaxation that happens with american artists when a camera is pointed at them is just mm. totally different british yeah. bands in a video like this would feel the need to prove their relaxation by by yeah. sort of gamely sort of grinning along but Gladys Knight and the Pips they just have it they're Gladys Knight and yeah. the Pips for fuck's sake and good on them really in a way for sending a video because I think by now the Pips and Gladys had twigged sort of just how odd the British are mm. and and it, I think it would have been that they kind of always dressed down a little bit for their TOTP appearances yes. and I think you know it would have been frankly undignified for them to follow the Wurzels no. um, so, so this video is a delight but it's accompanied for me watching it with a sense of Christ what to say about this because it's just wonderful yeah. um, it's just a wonderfully produced record with a, with a great little budget video with it as well yeah yeah luckily this was before anyone had heard of homosexuality <laughs> except the Wurzels um, and it was unexceptional and it's only mildly fabulous to see grown men with moustaches wearing tennis shorts mm. and dancing in formation yes. and doing exercises mm. together yeah with the t-shirts know. all rolled up and everything exposing the midriff yeah 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 socking each other on the arm no doubt yeah. talking about the ladies when gladys is out of the room mm. i love those shorts i love those shorts yes. those jimmy connor shorts are really strong yet as taylor said highly camp look <laughs> at the beginning we see them kind of like doing a bit of a dance routine being taught by someone standing behind them in a vest. And uh, yeah, they, they do look like they're about to go roller skating afterwards, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, but they look like they're having so much yes. fun. Yes. Yeah. And like nobody that age or nobody who looks that age uh, ever has that much fun no. without a bit of an edge on it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? But the pips look like they don't have a care in the world. Only blue skies for the pips. Mm. Yeah. And Gladys looks really cool in her sportswear yes. as well. Mm. And it's a shame because then she gets sort of frumped up a bit mm. for the main bit, you know, where they're in civvies in, in the studio and all that. Whereas the pips, you're kind of grateful when they're back in the slacks. Yeah. You know? mm. Yeah. I mean, to a nine year old like me, it was obvious that being Gladys Knight and the pips was the fucking best DOS in the world. They have a bit of a sing, then they have a bit of a dance. And then, you know, there's a couple of blokes lingering in the doorway watching on. And then we cut to the uh, other side of the glass and there's, two blokes behind a mixing desk one of whom is the absolute dead spit of ron o'neill in superfly and they're watching gladys knight and the pips perform and they have a bit of a chat to each other i mean i don't know what they're saying but it's bound to be words to the effect of fucking hell this song is mint and on our life skill <laughs> yeah 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 and they've got the best headphones in the world. Oh, these yes. Massive red headphones. <laughs> yes. yes. But, um, and I don't know whether they've been told to hold the headphones in a certain way, because they all kind of hold, not over their heads, but kind of under their chins. Yes. 
like a giant telephone. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Of, the, the kind the, of phone that Busby had on top of that telegraph pole. Indeed, but they're instantly, deeply covetable, these objects, mm. these red headphones. They really catch the eye. But the whole look of it, it's just instant. You're propelled to this magical land called America. Mm. And after the Wurzels, fuck me, you need that. Yes. I mean, they're on the way out here, really. Mm. They've got one foot in a chicken basket. Yes. They've got a couple of sunset hits ahead. Yeah. But that's about it. Mm. I mean, this is sort of their last hurrah. But this is so great. Yeah. It's just it's one of those records that sounds like it came off a production line in the best possible way. Yes. You know, like everyone involved knew exactly what they were doing and just did it without any fuss Mm. you know and it's another one of the few 1977 records that i think i remember from the time as well it stuck in my head because of that moment where half the instruments drop out Mm. on the chorus Mm. and the vocal melody is doubled by the string section which is a trick they used to use on a lot of american records at the time just underlining the hook um, we talked about the same thing on Silver Lady by uh, mm. David Soup, I seem to remember. But <laughs> it really does weld a chorus onto your brain. Yeah. And the chorus sort of needs it because it's not an especially strong tune, but it sounds heavenly because it's mm. done with that effortless American sophistication and gloss which 70s British records could never replicate, you know. British records could do cold, dry strings in a way that you would never, ever hear on an American single, Mm. which was brilliant. But they also could never get that brimming over pearly gate sound that you get from Philly Soul and late 60s, early 70s Motown and stuff like this. Yeah, Mm. and these moments are important in any episode of Top of the Pops because they're just transportation away. Midway through this song, you know, you've forgotten about the fucking Jubilee. You've forgotten about Top of the Pops and Tony Blackburn, to be honest with Mm. you. And, you know, you're completely immersed in it. So it's magical. And it's the first bit of proof in this episode that there is life after Motown for a lot of acts. Yeah, as we're going to see again later. Mm. Yeah. So, the following week, Baby Don't Change Your Mind jumped seven places to number 14, and three weeks later got to number four, its highest position. The follow-up, Home Is Where The Heart Is, got to number 35 in October, and they'd make their last appearance in the top 20 when Come Back and Finish What You Started got to number 15 in August of 1978. That's a fucking tune. Very much so, yeah. By which time the group had fallen out with their new label, Buddha Records, and were forced to record as two separate entities until their deal ran out. They eventually signed a new deal with CBS in 1980, but their hits dried up over here and they parted ways in 1989. Well, there you go. You're probably wondering what this uh, little bit of string is here. Well, i tell you what will happen. If I pull this bit of string, two things will happen. First of all, some balloons will fall down on Neil Innes, who will then sing a number, Silver Jubilee. Let's see if it works, shall we? Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, Silver Jubilee. Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, God save you and me. Tony, standing next to a tatty bit of string, 
tells us that when he pulls it, some balloons will fall down from the ceiling and the next act will do their bit. He does, and by God, we're thrown into Silver Jubilee by Neil Innes. Born in Danbury, Essex in 1944, Neil Innes was a fine arts student at Goldsmiths in the early 60s when he joined the Bonzo Dog Dada Band, a rotating collective of art school sorts who took the piss out of trad jazz cover versions in local pubs and college balls. As the only trained musician in the group, he whipped them into some semblance of a band and they made their TV debut playing Won't You Come Home Bill Baylor on Blue Peter. They signed a deal with Parlophone, but after the success of the new Vaudeville Band, a group of session musos put together to record Winchester Cathedral, the Bonzos were invited to inherit the name for a tour, which they all turned down by their trumpet player Bob Kerr, which gave Innes the opportunity to convince the band to drop the old stuff and steer them towards the new sounds of the mid to late 60s. On December the 23rd of 1967, they became the resident band on the new Thames television kids show Do Not Adjust Your Set, which introduced them to Eric Idle, Terry Jones and Michael Palin. And three days after that, they appeared in the Beatles film Magical Mystery Tour on BBC Two. After myriad TV appearances and a string of sessions for John Peel's Radio 1 show Top Gear and a punishing gig schedule, they finally made it big in late 1968 when Urban Spaceman, written by Innes and co-produced by Paul McCartney, got to number five for three weeks in November. After touring America in 1969, they decided it wasn't any fun anymore and they split up in January of 1970. And Innes and Viv Stanshaw spent the early 70s in bands such as Freaks, with Keith Moon on drums, and Grimm's, a collaboration with members of The Scaffold. And he also put out his debut LP, How Sweet to Be an Idiot, in 1974. Later that year, he reunited with Idle, Jones and Palin as a fill-in of sorts for John Cleese in the final series of Monty Python, and wrote songs for the film Monty Python and the Holy Grail. In 1975, he and Idol starred in the BBC Two sketch show Rutland Weekend Television, which featured a song called I Must Be In Love, which was performed by a band called The Ruckles. By 1977, he's working up a film script and a soundtrack for the forthcoming Ruckles film All You Need Is Cash and has just put out his second LP, Taking Off, this April. But while being interviewed by the BBC World Service, he was challenged to make up a song on the spot about the Silver Jubilee and this is it. It's been rushed out by his label, Arista Records, and it's not in the chart yet, but Robin Nash is clearly looking for a hook to hang his oversized Jubilee hat on, and this will do very nicely. Leading to Innes' first appearance on Top of the Pops since he wore a ball gown to perform Urban Spaceman nearly nine years ago. And all chats were instantly thrown into the Top of the Pops of 1982, aren't we, without the zoo wankers? I mean, if my Michael Hurl had been asked to organise a national front demo, it would probably <laughs> look like this, wouldn't it? Yeah, this almost cancels out the ruttles. <laughs> I mean, obviously the key factor, the main characteristic of this record, and also the main problem with it, is that you watch it, and even if you're very familiar with Neil Innes and his work, yeah. 
it's impossible to work out how it's meant mm. or how you're supposed to take yeah. it. Mm. Yeah. Because clearly he's not hailing the Queen with an expression of murderous intensity. No. But it doesn't sound like he's having a go either. Mm. No. Um, and as usual, he's just standing there looking underwhelmed, mm. uh, a little sheepish and uh, incorrigibly morose. So... You won't find any clues in his facial expression. No. And generally, I'm broadly in favour of not being able to tell how sincere somebody is on a record yeah. because it allows discussion and it encourages you to think a bit. But here it's it's a bit annoying. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. a big part of Neil Innes's aesthetic and the Bonzos and to a certain extent Monty Python is this sort of baffled, ironic mildly alienated distance from the world Mm. um, which creates this kind of perpetual satire but at the level of a lack of seriousness and an inability to be po-faced about anything Mm. which people never tire of pointing out is a very comfortable middle class old world way of seeing things because you don't have the complication of any of those things being a direct threat to you. Mm. Even though that wasn't the background of everyone involved in those groups, but it was the reality of their lives. And in the context of comedy, that can work very well. You know, like the best satire of the ruling classes tends to come from the children of the ruling classes, Mm. uh, or used to. But I'm not sure it works so well in Mm. a song, because this isn't comedy, it's just whimsy. And so all the protections and defences that comedy has just fall away, and and you're just left thinking, yeah, but what are you doing? It's Mm. like your your half-raised eyebrow as you sing a deliberately trite song about the Queen's Silver Jubilee, suggests that you don't really care Mm. either way. Perhaps you don't dislike royalty, but you're aware of the the silliness of the whole palaver. Mm. But it doesn't work, even as a sort of dryly equivocal take, because you're doing it right here and now, in this context, which tips you over into an ironic celebration, because that's the way the current is moving, and you've decided to step into the current and not swim. Or or his record label's decided he's going to do that. Oh, yeah. But the end result is, there you are on TV, waving a very small Union Jack. Mm. And it's kind of upsetting. I mean, it's fucking shit, this record. I don't Mm. like the equivocation of it. But I mean, you know, I do think, I mean, Innes is a great hookmeister. He can knock out a pop song. I mean, I know he said he did this as a bet, but fuck me, we just did not need this. Yeah, it's a bet that we lost. Well, yeah, and he does great cod reggae. Yes. You know, if you listen to the section about medieval open field farming systems in Monty Python's The Background to History, he does great cod reggae. And I guess some of the rhymes here are, are kind of pleasing, you know, salute with highfalutin and that but I, mean, I, I love Neil Innes but this you know he was part actually Neil Innes sidetrack uh, of one of the best gigs I've ever seen I went to see Yola Tango at Warwick Arts Centre once and they had a couple right. of guests on stage with them one of them was Sonic Boom from Space 3 <laughs> and the other one was Neil Innes and he wow. was wonderful he was playing their Together songs he was last. also playing Space Man 3 songs he even did Urban Spaceman but this is surely an idea I mean thinking of ex-bonzos if you want a picture of class 
um, at this time in British society and culture, probably dig into Viv Stanchel's uh, Sir Henry at Rawlinson's End LP that comes out mm, the year yeah, after yeah, this, yeah. and maybe the film from 1980. But Taylor's exactly right. That, that there's this equivocation in this song. Is he taking? The, he's not quite taking the piss. Mm. You know, at any other time, I guess I'd tolerate it, but. In the thick of the jubilee, it's a time to call sides, in a sense. And he hasn't done so. <laughs> no. And I, I don't like seeing Neil Innes do this, because I like Neil Innes a lot. Yeah, I mean, you'd see how this would work on the end credits of Rutland Weekend Television or the Innes Book of Records, where you can actually control the visuals. But here mm. on top of the pops, he can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the crowd's frenzy and the flags and the balloons mm. and stuff do not help it. They make it look like he is, yeah, in celebration, whereas the, the lyrics are a little... You yeah. know, more nuanced than that. And he's not dressed up either. I mean, if it if it had turned up dressed as the Queen, that might help. But <laughs> he looks very Paul yeah. Simon, doesn't he, in his dress? He's got this mm. baggy suit jacket on and a white flat cap. Yeah. And, of course, we've got the heavy-duty discipline of the top of the Pops Orchestra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, the cap is to uh, hide evidence of a hair transplant. Oh, right. Unfortunately, he was the donor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, it's not surprising that... This is where Neil Innes has ended up, mm. sort of, kind of, almost, sort of, celebrating the Queen, because spiritually, a big part of his work was a kind of melancholic distrust of progress. Mm. And, you know, he was like Terry Jones out of Monty Python, he liked natural things mm. and old stuff and, like, you know, real ale and things. He was distrustful of anything too organised or too cerebral or too manufactured. And mm. in his book of records is full of that, all this sort of little man in the modern world, yeah. you know, retreating into magic and imagination, mm. which can be lovely, but in the wrong context, it can easily seem reactionary, or at least in sympathy with a reactionary position. This is the first time he's been on top of the pops in seven years. It's like, oh, fuck, where's the dolly birds on the gantry? <laughs> Who are these kids? It is weird, isn't it? And, and mm. there's not many other performances on top of the pops in this period that I can think that are, and not the performances, but the crowd dynamic, that mm. are quite like this. You're very right to point out that it is a, it's prophetic of kind of an 80s top of the pops in a way. Mm. And it's unbelievable that none of them Ruckle songs charted because they were fucking brilliant. Yeah, he never made a penny out of any of them, of course. Mm. Yeah, but he did make a ton off Oasis <laughs> yeah, for them ripping yeah, yeah. off How Sweet to Be an Idiot, mm. along with Gary Glitter. Yeah. Good old Noel giving a Peter Baum <laughs> a million pounds. <laughs> well played, mate. Yeah, I tend to prefer Neil Innes's, uh collaborative work right. to his solo stuff partly because that sort of vague whimsy and distracted sweetness doesn't really do that much for me like he was brilliant in the bonzos because he provided the platform and the guardrails for mm. vivian Stanshaw, mm. you know and mm. he was great working with monty python because of his grasp of the detail of music mm. and what sounds like what and what should go where to create this or that effect, yeah. right? Which it, which went brilliantly with Monty Python's least discussed superpower, which was the incredible eye for the detail of, for instance, English archetypes or styles of television presentation. Like people forget this now because TV doesn't look like this anymore. But in 1969, 1970, Monty Python's parodies of TV looked as uncannily, almost unbelievably 
precise and accurate as the day-to-day did in 1994. Mm. Mm. So when they added music to that, they needed someone with the same observational skills. And it's like, yeah, it's like Neil just mentioned, the best bit of Monty Python's Matching Tie and Handkerchief LP is that sketch, which if you haven't heard it, the only joke is that it's like an open university broadcast or like a highbrow radio lecture about the medieval open field farming Mm. system. (laughs) And they introduce various eminent history professors. uh, uh, Professor Tofts of the University of Manchester puts it like this. And each one sings their bit to a different kind of pop tune. And there's a reggae track, a glam rock track, sort of... (laughs) Framework. Framework. <laughs> and so it's just an obviously contrived Palin and Jones sketch where you put two incompatible things together so they spark and undermine each other's seriousness. Mm. And then the sketch writes itself. But it's not even a funny idea. It's only funny because of how convincing and well-judged and well-observed Neil Innes's music yeah. is. Mm. Yeah. And it sets up Michael Palin as the professor of medieval studies at Cambridge doing an uncannily accurate impression of a stoned rock star being interviewed on the old grey whistle test, which is possibly his greatest ever acting performance. But the point is, there aren't any jokes. It's just playing with formula and context. Mm. And Neil Innes, one of the very few musicians you could trust to get all of that precisely Mm. right, Mm. which you need to, or the whole thing dies, and and it's just not funny. You know, which is obviously also why he ended up doing the Ruttles. But his own material, I mean, the only song of his that I like, you know, or that I love, let's say, in that sort of slightly sad, whimsical style, Mm. is How Sweet to Be an Idiot. Mm. All the other songs of his I like are are dead straight, you know, the Ruttles songs and the... Yeah, I watched the Innes Book of Records a few years ago, and God bless him, it dragged a little. I didn't Mm. like it as much as I really wanted to. Mm. Because, again, a lot of it is stuff where you can't quite work out the point or what he's trying to do, which should be interesting. Mm. But too often, you just end up with the impression that actually there is no point, and he's not really trying to do anything at all. He's just singing a song, Mm. which, you know, is fine. It's fine. But this this is not a pretty sign. No, no. Sailing on the Yacht Britannia, no one in the world would ban you. Well, I can think of a few pubs on the Falls Road that might have issues (laughs) with that. (laughs) And nowadays, a few schools might turn a son away. Yeah, it's a line that's been left behind by time a bit, hasn't it, Mm. that line? So, the following week, Silver Jubilee failed to chart and never would. The follow-up, the Bob Dylan pastiche protest song, also failed to chart, and he never troubled said chart ever again. Two years after this performance, he returned to BBC Two with three series of the Innes Book of Records, a collection of music videos of his own songs, and then spent the 80s as the host of the ITV kids show The Book Tower, played the magician in Puddle Lane, and wrote and narrated the cartoon series Raggy Dolls, and he died in 2019 at the age of 75. Dolls like you and me, don't you know? <laughs> Made him perfectly. Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Elizabeth, Silver Jubilee. Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth. 
Well, I hope you're all having a really lovely uh, Jubilee week. We're having a fabulous time here at Top of the Pops. Hope you're enjoying all the music. Uh, we're going to change tempo a little bit right now. We're going to have a bit of that sort of uh, bit of rock for you now in the shape of the Stranglers and this one. Still in his realm of solitude, suddenly notices that the camera's on him again and he expresses his hope that our Jubilee week hasn't been a crushing disappointment ruined by your dad constantly going on about how Elvis is the fucking king. (laughs) He then warns us that a change of pace is imminent and tells us we're going to have a bit of that sort of, uh, bit of rock for you (laughs) because he can't even bring himself to say punk. Yeah, that's exactly what's going through his head. Yes. (laughs) To Tony Blackburn, saying punk is as good as saying fuck. Yeah, it's sedition. You can't say punk. No. That's exactly his thought process. I mean, and and as ever with Tony, not hiding his disgust. He introduces Go Buddy Go by the Stranglers. We've dealt with the happy-go-lucky, squeaky-clean former Guildford Stranglers on numerous occasions, and this, their second single, is the follow-up to Get a Grip on Yourself, which got to number 44 in March of this year and should have done better were it not for the British Market Research Bureau, the compilers of the official chart, somehow mistakenly taking a chunk of the Stranglers' sales and lumping them onto everyone's talking about love by Silver Convention, he said, placing his hand on his chin (laughs) it's actually a double a side with peaches which features on their debut lp ratus norvegicus which came out in april and is currently at number seven in the album charts but seeing as the subject matter is about hugh cornwall dossing on the beach looking at women's arses and the cover of the single depicts a hand pulling at the back of a pair of pink knickers that have been put on a peach radio one forced them to put out a radio edit and don't want it on top of the pops it entered the chart three weeks ago at number 37 and only nudged up one place to number 36 a week later but that didn't stop top of the pops from issuing an invite as long as they played the song on the other side which involves john jack burnell encouraging his mate to stop being a wallflower at a club and get stuck into all the punky crumpets and being delighted (laughs) to see him with a chicky on his knee at the end of the song which helped it jump nine places to number 27 this week it's moved up four places to number 23 and here's a repeat of that performance a fortnight ago chaps let's deal with peaches first because to my mind that's the far superior song yeah. the only thing about it it reminds me of that hp source advert that frankie howard did with the uh, couple in the seaside postcard with a fat bloke with a tash perving on women while his wife doesn't know it hp you've got to admire their source it, i mean it would have made for a better top of the pops appearance yes um, whether oh, it was imagine band- legs and coat oh, doing that's that exactly what i was about to say yeah legs probably and dressed up amazing. as giant peaches <laughs> well, one of them dressed as a massive banana running round after them <laughs> no doubt played by dave lee travis this song is less good it's interesting though this i mean listening to the demo of this song from 76 right because well, before you know the stranglers even got signed they demoed this song and it's totally different it's like a slower pace a sludgier sound because it's a demo but mm. it, you can at least hear an attempt uh with the hand claps and the harmonies on it to sound i don't know professional yeah um this has been 
it's kind of been professionally scuffed up. Yeah, it's been punked up a bit, hasn't it? Yeah, because of punk completely, much like the whole band does. There there is um, a deliberate fuck you amateurism to their performance here. Yes. Because they swap instruments and they take all the strings off their guitar. Ah, yes, yes. I was wondering about that. I think it's JJB, isn't it? It's playing guitar. Yes. And um, other fellas playing um, bass, you. and he's playing yeah. chord. You, yeah, that's right. He's playing chords on the bass like he would on guitar. Yes. No one's playing the guitar solo at all. No. There's a couple of good moments of kind of spikiness, if you like, towards yeah. the end when his guitar lead starts tangling him up. Mm. Um, JJB has a nice pull. There's a lovely moment as well. Did you see the bit when um, I think it, it, somebody's got their hands on the stage? Yeah, and he stamps on it. Yes, um, <laughs> he kind of goes to the front and stamps on him. It, it, it's kind of nice, but. As ever with Stranglers, um, although, yeah, they're punked up, Dave Greenfield's keyboards yeah. are the kind of thrillingly problematic spanner yes. in the works of He's that. not changing instruments with Jet Black, is he? Fuck no, 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 no. I mean, and he's always, you know, far too good a player, in a sense, to be a punk. And he always mm. confers this instant 60s-ness to what he plays, not yes. just in the sound of his keyboard, but in the lines and the melodies. But that said... You know, even though it's not as good as Peaches, in the context of this episode of Top of the Pops, this is weird and thrilling. And I think it would have been to any punks or kids tuning in. This is the moment when that wedges in and when mums and dads are are probably talking about sticking them in the army or something. Yes. Um, Which which makes... jankers. (laughs) Which makes... I mean, it makes the crowd's reaction kind of inexplicable. I don't think Top of the Pops audiences at this point have figured out how to move to music like this. No. Um, because the inevitable consequence of moving to a record like this mm. is is probably something like a mosh pit. Yeah. And the Stranglers, unlike the bands that are coming in a few years, they haven't bought their little coterie of fans with them yeah. to Top of the Pops. In an ice cream van. <laughs> There's not a couple of hardcore devotees down at the front to show the way. So no. the, the, cr- the crowd's reaction is, is a little bit odd. But in the context of a pretty, I'm not going to say awful episode of Top of the Pops, but there's been precious little excitement mm. this is one of the most exciting moments of the show yeah i don't dislike this record i mean it's just a garage punk tune isn't it with a mm. just mm. enough of an edge left on it to yeah pass. it's more pub rock than uh, frankie fucking miller yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 but i mean you know i'm no fan of the stranglers really but when you look at the pantheon of 77 punk tracks like the non-heroic ones mm. that's some pretty floppy competition really um <laughs> and the stranglers are actually up there although like you i'd rather have peaches which is musical trolling you know peaches it's just a musical shit posting um (laughs) but i sort of like it because it's like if the doors were as stupid as they actually were but knew it (laughs) do you know what i mean and also the problem with it being this song is that is it just me who doesn't like to see groups on top of the pops and it's not the usual lead singer singing like, I know, mm-hmm. you know, it, it just sets bad bells ringing because yeah. all the A-sides where someone other than the usual lead singer is singing, has there ever been a good one? I can't think mm. of one, ever. I mean, Guns of Brixton wasn't a single, was it? No. There's, no. there's nothing. And I don't count XTC, where the one who wasn't the main singer was better than the one who was the main singer mm. and wrote all the best hits. There must be one doesn't really yeah. leap out at you though that wasn't a single was it Que Sera Sera by Sly and the Family Stone 
Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, it makes sense having JJB as the front person because before um, Generation X pitch up, he's the only one who's going to be on the centrefold of Jackie, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, with his uh, Trotsky T-shirt, which yes, uh, he's yes, had to, it is had to half cover up like the Flying Pickets tea towel. Yeah, Trotsky mm. still stuck in the number two slot on the commodified <laughs> communist top ten behind Shea Guevara. The everything I do, I do it for you of oblivious consumerist irony jjb's wearing a t-shirt with the pastiche of the ford logo but it says trotsky yeah yeah this all started in january of this year when uh, hugh Cormer was spotted at a gig by the member of the glc's public committee wearing a ford logo on his t-shirt that read fuck glc went on to force the rainbow to put a clause in their contract with the stranglers when they were about to open as support to the climax blues band which forbade them to either say or wear obscene language on stage. And <laughs> wow. on the night of the gig, Cornwall had the same T-shirt on, which he either chose to wear or he was just living in at the time. And uh, a GLC inspector spotted it from the back of the hall with some binoculars, and they just cut the power on them. Blimey. So, yeah, if you'd have been in the know, you'd have been looking at that T-shirt and going, no, they haven't. Oh, I see what they've done there. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But they're doing a nice bit of subversion on this episode, as you pointed out with the swapping of the instruments and the removal of the strings. But Mm. also, it appears that the BBC is so preoccupied with T-shirt slogans that they've failed to notice that Burnell's kept in the line, I'm with my friend, with Bob, having a good time. I got me some speed and I'm doing fine. Yeah. 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 They probably thought he he got a motorbike or something. Yeah, no, exactly. 10 or 15 years earlier, you could definitely imagine them getting away with singing about Mm. speed because the straight and narrow people might think oh he must have been prescribed it by his doctor for weight loss or listlessness (laughs) or a general sense of malaise you know uh trying to mill spantials but probably not by now but then again probably nobody who listened to this with a censor's hat on could understand any of the words Mm. you know what i mean but the thing is Mm. historically references to speed do tend to slip past the censor in a way that references to other drugs don't there's a lot of records that were never banned that are obviously about speed the small faces got away with singing about their dealer yes he's always there when i need some speed mm. uh, at a time when you could get banned from the radio if your song had the word smoke in it mm. even if you were yeah. actually referring to a, a senior service untipped you yeah know. dexes <laughs> were named after dexes yes and had a number one hit whose lyrics helpfully explained what that meant. Yes. Nobody ever banned them, but then if you can't understand what the Stranglers are singing here, good luck deciphering Gino. Mm. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, is this punk rock? Probably not. The Stranglers mm. never really were. JJB, he is, though, he's punking it up in his delivery of this song. He's jumping about, like almost like Jimmy Percy or something. Mm. And there's a slight discomfort there. It don't feel right in a sec, because it, it's almost like a cartoon approximation yeah. of what punk rock is, I guess. Um, because they're not quite, and they never do, mm. quite fit in with punk rock. So it's a little forced. But anything, I mean, we've just had fucking Neil mm. Innes singing that song. You know, I mean, anything yes. will do at this point. So, so it's pretty thrilling 
to just have a yeah, just have a rock and roll band doing what they do. But I would encourage, by the way, mm. people to seek out that demo from '76 because it's totally different. A lot yeah. of people, a lot of Stranglers fans, prefer it. I don't, but it indicates a kind of process that's going on with the Stranglers in a sense that before '77 they had a lot of material. Yes. Now they're figuring out ways of punking it up and making it sort of current and making it feel contemporary yeah. rather than just being another rock and roll band. Well, this is the thing about punk. I mean, bands like the Stranglers, they're, they're years behind the curve and. Mm. Uh, a lot of the punk elite just look down on them because look you're too old and you're too proficient but punk's given them the keys to the charty kingdom mm. hasn't it it's like okay we'll do these songs but we'll be yeah, yeah the yeah. arrogant aggressive bastards that we are anyway and here we go into the charts yeah but i think what i don't like most about the stranglers apart from the the beer breath <laughs> ambience in general is that feeling that they're putting it on or taking it off you know mm. like mm. you know they're all about 56 <laughs> and they could play better than they let on mm. you know and i completely understand why older proper musicians would enjoy power and simplicity over anything mm. else and would find it genuinely refreshing and exciting that suddenly everyone was playing fast and quick mm. and i just would like it more if they'd used their experience to create a different way of doing the same thing rather than doing exactly what a group of untutored 18 year olds would have done except they're playing all the right notes mm. i mean you know, yeah, at this yeah, point yeah. they were probably the only punk or punkish band in britain who could write a song with a hook line based around a circle of fifths mm which is this um and they're almost certainly the only one where you could imagine at least one of the members might know what a circle of fifths is <laughs> even though they probably refer to them as the hey joe chords just like everybody else does and they're also the um the only punk adjacent band who are having no problems getting gigs they're <laughs> yeah. about to announce their tour and there's a bit of fury in the local papers but it's never comes to anything they they mm. never get banned so, yeah, everything's coming up stranglers. But the thing is with the stranglers, I mean, as letters to the music press kind of reveal, um, although aligning themselves with punk, they are liked by proper mm. music fans, you know. And and, and yeah. that's the thing with the stranglers. Look, I like the stranglers, but I know that they are satisfying, whereas the damned and the mm. pistols are thrilling. And, uh, and, and those are things that the stranglers never really are, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. They're satisfying, they're filled out, but then they'll never be as thrilling as the great punk yeah. records that are coming out this year. And just before we close, can we just have a little word as usual for Dave Greenfield? Mm. They're always the hero of the stranglers. Never mm. has he looked more inappropriately named yes. than in this clip. Yeah. You would believe <laughs> yeah. it if somebody told you that he was something they'd dug up the night before for a laugh <laughs> and got him moving with puppet strings. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, electrical charges and the reason mm. this song is so short is that his jaw keeps dropping off so they can't take any yeah. chances no he, <laughs> he looks just delightfully half rotten yeah. he's in a green boiler suit he, he looks great yeah it makes him look like someone's just snipped the top of a body bag <laughs> <laughs> and just sat him down in front of the keyboard so. exactly and also a quick word for Jet Black, who I do like because he looks like what he is, a coach driver that you definitely wouldn't want to speak to while the vehicle was in motion. <laughs> no. Or afterwards, one word out of yeah. place. And, uh, wouldn't like to ask him where the bucket of sand was. <laughs> no. your classmates threw up in the aisle. No, one word out of place and he'd fell you with Richard Burton drunk karate. <laughs> you ever seen that? It's one of my favourite clips on YouTube when Richard Burton was really drunk, like 
literally almost dead in the mid 70s he did this film called uh the clansman where he was in uh, America, like, battling the Ku Klux Klan. And there's a, a clip on YouTube of this where he has to have a fight where this good old boy starts on him and his, and his missus, and he has to kung fu him. But because he's so drunk, he can hardly move. He just has to walk up to him with his fixed grimace with a bright purple face, and then he just kind of raises one flat hand up, and the bloke goes, and flies through a window, you know. It's like, you've got to, yeah, yeah. Put it on the playlist. Of course I will. Worth a watch. So the following week, Peaches slash Go Buddy Go jumped four places to number 19 and continued its slow pull up the charts, eventually getting to number eight three weeks later. The follow-up, Something Better Change, got to number nine in August and they'd close out 1977 with No More Heroes getting to number eight in October and the LP of the same name getting to number two in the same month, held off number one by 20 Golden Greats by Diana Ross and the Supremes. Imagine the party that the, the manager of the Stranglers and the Wurzels has every Christmas. Can you imagine what the buffet's <laughs> like? <laughs> oh. Lots of finger food. And if you go to Greece and you look for an island called Carilla, you won't find it actually because it's in the imagination of Demis Roussos. But for the wonders of Top of the Pops, we'll conjure up a lovely island and Demis for you right now. The winds have changed my loneliness and fear. I've seen the things I had to see. Tone still alone reminds us that it's holiday time but takes the opportunity to warn us about unscrupulous Greeks trying to tempt us towards islands that don't actually exist as he introduces Kirilla by Demis Roussos we first encountered Artemis Venturis Roussos in chart music number 35 when he reprised Forever and Ever which got to number one for a week in July of 1976 and this tune the follow up to Because which got to number 39 in April of this year is the lead track from the EP of the same name it's been taken off his recent LP Kirilla Insel de Trauma, a German only album, and it, along with a few other tracks, have been Englished up and shoved out for the Bevs and Angers of Albion to slink about to. It's not in the charts just yet, but the BBC are fully expecting it to be so. So while Demis is in the country, they've winched him into the studio. And what a spectacle. Oh, it is. I mean, <laughs> no expense spared on the holiday vibe no. from the BBC props department. Um, no. What, a couple of palm trees, I think? Yes. But it, yes. But it would have impressed me. You know, I mean, I, I, the blue caftan would certainly have impressed me, but uh, oh, it, yes. it looks great. I mean, I, I just think for the longest time as a kid, I was just just impressed by Roussos simply really? because of his size I mean much as much <laughs> as you know in the middle ages like fatness was seen as a signifier of wealth and status and all yes. that I, I did look on him not as rotund but, but a winner you know somebody who could presumably have mm. as many goblin burgers and scampion chips and crisps and pop as he wanted <laughs> you know and of course that contrast 
between his physicality and his high fluted uh, sort of John Anderson style voice mm. provided a bit of novelty value by this oh, point yes. 77 he's already well into the kind of being parodied years you know the sure sign of making it Benny Hill and, and you know always did oh, him yes. anonymous score I remember a Freddie Starr routine as well where um, Fred- <laughs> Starr was uh, you know doing the Demis Rousseau song in, in the high voice and then he walks across the stage and suddenly his voice drops and you notice that behind him there's a bloke with a pair of pliers yes. <laughs> so he's getting parodied a lot I think he is the first solo artist who was born in Africa to get a number one in the UK I know about yes. Manfred Mann and Freddie Mercury and stuff it's odd how he's covering this this Cameroonian song um, the the mm-hmm. original um, by It Can Be Brilliant called Elongi is, is a lot more interesting in its arrangement. Oh, really? Yeah, and if you stumble across, by the way, any mid-70s It Can Be Brilliant records, hoover them up, they're great uh, Afro-funk records. But this song, Kirilla, both in its recorded version and in this uh, slightly sloppier iteration by the BBC Orchestra, mm. oh, yes. it, it's aiming for this kind of, yeah, Fernando-style world music feel. Because he's got yes. a great voice, it kind of works. There's, there is that bring-your-package-holiday-home yes. feel to this you know to my mind it's massively unfair that the germans heard about this mystical island before us because you know that means they've already got their towels on the best sun line <laughs> but seeing as tony's told us that the island doesn't actually exist that well that's the germans fucked isn't it? that meant a lot in 1977 I mean, 1977 was the year of the fake island, wasn't it? Because, you know, two months earlier, The Guardian devoted eight pages of its April the 1st edition to a supplement on the island of Sansa Reef. All right. Which didn't exist either. <laughs> yeah, it really went for it. But this song... Well, oof. there's a question we can ask about a lot of the songs on this episode. What's it doing yeah. on this show? It's a non-chart mm. record. Um, yes. Why is that happening? What is it about the Jubilee that has made this happen? Yeah. Um, and this ain't very jubilish. Oh, very much. No, no. Unless it's for the Queen's husband, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, another question. What the fuck has he got on his feet? Oh, oh lovely. Yeah, shiny red knee boots with a cheeky heel. Basically, yes. it looks like if <laughs> Superman one day said, oh, to hell with a lot of you. Yes. <laughs> McConnell's aggro boys kick to kill. <laughs> yeah, it's this weird combination of platforms and kind of Ronald McDonald shoes. Um, yeah, they're very Pigeon Street, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah he, he cuts quite an impressive figure, mm. doesn't he? Mm. All round. Yeah, not so much a dash, more of a gouge. <laughs> I'm sort of half certain that this is the clip I saw as a kid actually because oh. that stuck in my head it's exactly how i remember first seeing demis Roussos. and you know yeah i appreciate that in terms of his presentation he was very much the non-chameleon of pop um, <laughs> but there's something familiar in a very deep way about this particular combination of sound and picture and the fronds because he made a mark on the very young me you know i was half disturbed and half intrigued <laughs> by the sound and the look and the movement, yeah. like the way he always had a fan on him, you mm, know, mm. Um, the the foreign sound. And I remember asking my mum, why does he wear those clothes? And mm. she said, because he's so fat. Um, <laughs> and I, I got it into my head somehow, uh, linking it in my brain with a, a, another clip that had fired my imagination and worried me a little bit, that perhaps... Demis Roussos had jumped up and down on the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, um, and that was what sent it wobbling. 
And <laughs> so maybe these two unnerving things were connected. I mean, I didn't actually think that had happened, but in my head, those two things got mixed up to the point where it was all I could think about. And yet here he is, still smiling beatifically, uh, despite having wreaked so much terrible destruction. <laughs> Do you know how old he is at the time? Oh, uh, I'm guessing um, 36, I'm going to say. 31. Ooh. Mm. Oh, that changes things. He's not looking great then, is he? No. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's 31 in 1977, Monet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, to me, Demis Roussos, you just saw him and just went, oh, yeah, that's Demis Roussos. You didn't think, oh, my God, look at that enormous fat man. No, no, no. You know, there was plenty of people knocking about who looked like Demis Roussos. Oh, yeah. Mainly men. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, no, the, yeah, the bloke who sold you a brown paper bag full of plums probably looked like Demis Roussos. <laughs> exactly. yeah. My only problem is that whenever I hear a song by Demis Roussos that isn't one of the famous or good ones and isn't by Aphrodite's Child, mm. all I can think of is the film L'Ultimo Treno della Notte, also known as uh, Night Train Murders, um, right. and also known as Don't Ride on Late Night Trains. It's a classier <laughs> offering than most of the don't movies, right? These are instructionally titled horror films, right, which urgently advised us against going into the basement, looking out of the window, going into the house, and so on. Yeah, but what if you live in the stockbroker belt and this film's only on at the west end and you didn't want to bring the car out yeah yeah you, good you're point. fucked aren't you good point but yeah it look this film is a bit grubby it's a, a blatant remake of wes craven's uh, last house on the left mm-hmm. uh, uh-huh. as acknowledged in the original title l'ultimo treno della notte <laughs> the last train of the night but the english uh. translators just work too fast to spot that you know mm. even though last house on the left itself was a blatant remake of ingmar bergman's the virgin spring which itself is a implausible story that's centuries old um and it doesn't get much more believable when as in l'ultimo treno della notte you put it on a train in europe in the 70s but incredibly enough the first thing that you experience when you watch this very unpleasant film the key events of which are too gruesome to detail even on a broad-minded podcast like this <laughs> um, and which was actually banned in the uk until relatively recently under the absurd video nasty moral panic laws which made it a crime to sell or purchase it and any copy in your possession could be confiscated by the vice squad it's just a low budget horror film but the mm. first thing that you hear is the theme song A Flowers All You Need by Demis Roussos ah, no. co-written by Oscar-winning composer Ennio Morricone Fuck. gives you some insight into relative British and European attitudes to low-budget exploitation mm, films yeah, yeah. at the time even those that are so transparently desperate to shock that the opening scenes show the baddies attacking a department store Father Christmas, which uh, <laughs> happens more often than you might expect, including in L'Ultimo Treno della Notte. But there he is, singing the theme to this 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 vomit splurge of <laughs> sexualised violence and elementary emotional switch flicking. The Roussos phenomenon himself, mm, singing this song that goes... Tell the world I saw a man fall in the street and die, and just where he fell for love grows a flower 
a big red flower like the blood he shed for love and peace. Wow. Find a way to live your dreams. You'll make it if you try. For love can't be wrong. Your dreams will come true. If you don't want to die before you get a bed of love you never had with your love. Beautiful words, man. Right. Which might seem oddly inappropriate lyrics to any viewer of this film. No. Although the main refrain goes sing a song sing an everlasting song which does feel quite appropriate when you're listening to it but mm. things i may just be showing my ignorance here of middle of the road greek pop but that song is almost indistinguishable from this song <laughs> at right. least in my memory so when i hear this i subconsciously brace myself in preparation <laughs> for traumatic sights which in the context of this episode is actually quite fortunate as we'll see <laughs> yeah i mean they've obviously got him in early because he's in the country but oh they've served him poorly here haven't they you've just got a few trees from fucking habitat <laughs> and bunged them in the studio and they've got some kind of yellow moon and in, in a blue sky in the background and yeah that's pretty much yeah. it one of the motifs of this episode of top of the pops there's a lot of sweeps of the camera behind things whether it's trees or yeah. bits of the set so there's times when we don't see anything for about two or three seconds yeah it's like someone stalking top of the pops and also i mean this whole episode feels not like a bodge job but it's a bit cheapskate to be honest with you it, yes. it's like they've shat yes. all their money bbc entertainment budget has just shat it all on that nationwide yeah, on, on the nationwide jubilee special obviously but of course <laughs> yes yeah but well money well spent <laughs> but yeah i mean at the time and even now greece might as well be mars to me mm. and my family because our holidays were chapel st leonard's and i think this year we went to Mablethorpe golden sands oh get you my nono uh got an earwig in her ear and uh, d- turned her half deaf. Really? And, uh, yeah, we got charged 50p for uh, a broken cup, which we hadn't broke. <sighs> and my mum tried to buy it off them so she could smash it in front of them so they couldn't rip off anyone ever again. <laughs> I got one of them big cat's head things made of uh, toffee apple whatever to lick on the way back and i ended up throwing up all over the back of my dad's neck so yeah not the best holiday that year golden memories but i wouldn't have wanted to go to kiriela anyway because you know he's singing about the sky and the sea and all that boring shit where's the amusement arcades where's the chip shops where's the clubs that kids were allowed into where they had blue comedians on no mate not having it so the following week, Kirilla entered the charts at number 50, then soared 17 places to number 33, but got no further. The follow-up, Life in the City, was given a run out on top of the pops in April of 1978, but did fuck all, and he never troubled the charts again. But he remained an endless subject of fascination in the tabloids. Here, chaps, is a tasteful article in the Daily Mirror that doesn't allude to sizism in the slightest from this November. £30,000 winks in the mink. For Demis Roussos, the glamorous Greek, money is just a big, big yawn. To prove it, the 17-stone singing colossus trundled into a London store yesterday and bought a giant mink-lined bed for £30,000. Gross. 
Does it actually say gross? Yes. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. That's £35,000 in today's money. <laughs> Perhaps even more. The falsetto-voiced pop star plans to take the Super Bowl, fuck knows what they mean there, mm. on a world warbling tour. And since it measures a jumbo size 8 foot 6 inches by 8 foot, there should just be about enough room for his pretty 8 stone wife Dominique to climb <laughs> aboard too. <laughs> Clearly, they're sure to enjoy setting off on a luxury snooze. <laughs> That's actually about £142,338 today. Wow. On a bed. That's impressive. Yeah. I like how the subtext of that article basically is... But how do they actually do it? Mm. Yes. And also making it seem as if, you know, when Demis Roussos goes on tour, he has to be, like, winched into a cargo plane or something to get anywhere. Yeah. 17 stone, that's not that much nowadays, is it? No. I know, but, I mean, these were the days before high-fructose corn syrup. Yeah, yeah, Mm, yeah. Yeah, only pop stars could afford that. Two ladies here who, are, well, you come from Blackburn, don't you? What a very sensible place to come from. And I'm sure you've had a street party, so why don't we join the party now with Honky? You know your body is grooving, but you might won't give it a chance. is finally allowed to mix with the maidens of the studio audience all flick back hair and paper baseball caps that have been pushed back so far they look like cast members of the young doctors <laughs> he tells us that he has two ladies here but he only bothers to talk to one of them as she comes from Blackburn presumably the other one lives in Bury St Edmunds I don't know <laughs> he's convinced that they had a street party without even asking if they actually had and then awkwardly winces at his tenuous link and waits for the video machine to kick in and play Join the Party by Honke. Formed in Southampton in 1975, Honke, a fucking Honke. (laughs) (laughs) This appears to be their debut single on Creole Records and came out in March of this year, catalogue number CR137. Uh, the, the label is orangey brown at the top <laughs> with a 50% graduated fade into a goldy colour. Seriously, chaps, that's pretty much the total result of my research on these bastards. I couldn't find anything else. Yeah. Well, first off, I just want to say something extra about what Tony does. Oh, here. please do. Um, but, I mean, am I wrong? Did I mishear this? He says Blackburn's a very sexual place. Does he say that? I think he says a very sensible place. Does he say sensual? It's right (laughs) on the edge. And he gives this little sort of grimace. (laughs) Yeah. before it cuts the video where he realises he might have put his foot in it there. he's thinking about them 4,000 holes isn't yeah. it <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little little deflated sort of and his mm. posture sags it does it, it, it's a real sort of that didn't go well yeah, 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 yeah. but that does set us up nicely for Honky mm. after a couple of months in general circulation they were drafted in to perform it on Top of the Pops almost a month ago and two weeks later it entered the chart at number 43 then jumped 12 places to number 31 and this week it's only moved up one place to number 
dirty. But what does that matter to Robin Nash, who's clearly putting any old shit on this week? <laughs> so here is a repeat of their previous performance and oh, fucking hell, the state of it. Yeah, this is a band that seems to have slipped through a hole in everybody's memory. And yeah. as your intro suggests, are now essentially Google proof. Mm. But if nothing else, they do make you sit up. Oh, yes. Like ECT. <laughs> I mean, basically, this is two man unsound. <laughs> yes. Um, we have to start off by talking about what they look like, i.e., yes. breathtaking and horrifying. Mm. It's a mm. stage full of misshapen uncles in full flight. <laughs> Going for the checkered flag. The singer has got a face that makes you think you might need glasses. Or if you wear glasses, a face that makes you want to take them off. His black throat singing is so absurdly Ooh. exaggerated that oh, it's it awful, would have made yeah. Sandy Shaw a bit uncomfortable. Yeah, it is proper 90s pot noodle advert black voice isn't it yeah yeah hey i'll have a baby sham <laughs> and he dances like he's wearing stilts mm. um which is very suspicious as he also dresses like he's wearing stilts. <laughs> he's got some massive billowy white saxons on hasn't he fucking hell yeah and his constant violent and rhythmic crotch thrust oh, God, yeah. makes you feel like you're being threatened with a licorice comfit. <laughs> it's not comfortable. Then there's the horn section of oh, Watson, God, yeah. Keegan and Hoddle um, <laughs> in the kind of socks people wear in lieu of having a personality. Yeah, they're mad Catwoman socks, aren't they? Oh, God, yeah. There's a yeah. drummer who looks like the secret brother that John Travolta keeps in the loft. <laughs> a bass player who actually appears to be Pete Townsend, Brandy yes. edition, in a joke shop wig. A, mm. a genuinely uncanny and unsettling likeness, but not half as uncanny or unsettling, I think you know what I'm about to say, as mm. the fact that on lead guitar is the Yorkshire Ripper. Yeah. Yes. Hiding in plain sight. Yes. I guess nobody recognised him without the tuxedo and dicky bow <laughs> or the blanket over his head. If he'd have been driving in a lorry, <laughs> waving a crisp £5 note. Yeah, I mean, I know it's not nice, but this can't be ignored. This man beat Dave Lee Travis in the second place in a Peter yes. Sutcliffe lookalike contest. <laughs> Lends a certain visual menace to Honky, mm. which, quite yeah. frankly, they were not in need of. <laughs> Yeah, the brass line, they, they just look like a packet of fruit pastels, don't they? <laughs> they actually look like Hector or uh, any other third division glam band. And it's like, oh, come on, Daddy, get with the programme. It's 1977. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I couldn't yeah. actually notice much of the rest of the band because the lead singer, oh. his face... Ray Oven. I mean, he looks like sort of Brian Tilsley's Klingon brother. Um, <laughs> and it's... I mean, it's no accident, actually, whilst we're on a sci-fi thing. He also looks like Charles Napier, a.k.a. Adam, the singing leader of the hippie group in the Way to Eden episode of Star Trek. Ooh. But the problem is, I mean, beyond the slight vocal blackface of his... You know, black throat of his vocal, as Taylor's identified with his crotch movements, he's trying to be sexy. And in mm. fact, when he twirls his totally inconsiderable packet in a sort of bawdy simulation of stand-up sex, it inevitably... I mean, perhaps it's just me, but it makes you visualise just horrible stuff. You know, mm. three things for me. One, 
him looking down at you, grinning maniacally as he ploughs into oh. the vinegar strokes. Two. Oh, with his lad in his hand, no, this is wanting it. you to degrade yourself. Yeah, or number two, him looking That's up at you. That's a good mental image pop crazy well, youngsters. Yeah. Or him looking up at you as his nasty afro chafes your thighs. Or oh. in, in a scenario that I must admit I perversely and masochistically spun myself into, <laughs> um, him... Andy McCluskey and Roger Daltrey all staring at me in a club, a lascivious leer creeping over their face (laughs) as they plan to pull the ultimate intercity repellence train on me. Um, He's just (laughs) vile. He's just vile. Watch your backs, Neil. (laughs) Yeah, bummer Cerberus. I mean, the problems start really with the name. I mean, you know, Mm. I mean, the average shite band. There's this sense in the name. Yeah, they are Panda Pop's wild cherry, aren't they? They are. (laughs) But there's a lot of that about at the time. I mean, just like AWB, they're heading off accusations of cultural appropriation from the off, I guess. But, yeah. you know, what next? White motherfuckers here with their song. You know? Honke, Taylor, has anyone called you Honke? No, I've been called a white cunt, which was preferable, really. I mean, honky to me means um, Finger's girlfriend in Nuts in May. Oh. She should have been on the side dancing to this. <laughs> hey, Hong, look at them bleeding blue bells. <laughs> bleeding millions on them. There's a fair few artists who call themselves honky over this. I remember a mid-90s hip-hop troupe called Honky. Right. Um, who did an album called Culture, I think, which was actually fucking ace. No. But it's, it's a repeated... Trick. It got thrown about at the playground, but it just bounces off, doesn't it? it? That was a really frustrating thing, though, Al. You know, as somebody who needed, obviously, words to come back with for, for mm. stuff that I was called, there, there weren't many. Honky was one. Bird shit was another. Oh, that's a good you one. You know, but but they weren't satisfying um, in the way no. that the racial epithets throw my way, presumably, were to the, to the people who said them. I mean, out of the honky yeah. songs, you know, actually, I, I, you know, inevitably, like Taylor says, they're very Google proof. And you can find mm. scant sort of uh, tracks by them anywhere. Can't Sit Down was their other single, I think. And that's a better Call and the Gang ripoff. Right. Slightly. I would also, uh, if you get a chance and you're on YouTube and you're intrigued by the honky phenomenon, mm. there's a video called Join the Party TV Television Special 76. Yeah. Which is basically, it's it's like, a, it's Join the Party, this track, with accompanying visuals. Um, it seems like a home video, in a way, which is odd yeah. for 76, obviously. Mm. It's weird, because obviously, you know, they're a funk unit, but they've filmed a video like an indie band from the mid-80s. It's all done down the park, and they're on swings. <laughs> and there's sort of comedy bits, reverse bits, totally sexist bits as well. They've managed to persuade a couple of dolly birds to dance with them, and they Ooh. occasionally carry them off to the woods in a caveman way. Mm. It's actually a really poignant snapshot of something. Um, it's a it's a snapshot of a band who are about to, in a sense, make it. You know, mm. they sell 40,000 copies of this record. And they're all necking champagne and stuff. And it's just a nice little slapshot of those times. Yeah, yeah it's just some Super 8 film yeah. edited together to this song. But yeah, for a start, it makes it clear to the point of utter desolation that in mid-1970s Britain even being a successful pop group could look about as cheerful and glamorous <laughs> as having your sub-post office robbed by Donald Neal <laughs> Black Panther. Um, it's all unwashed wranglers and mm. creosoted garden fences and a, a plain grey judgmental mm. sky, you know. And, and this is the six-week period when honky were all the rage, yes. you know, yeah. remembered yeah, yeah. by them like it lasted a decade, mm. I'm sure. Mostly spent, I would imagine, drinking warm beer out of small cans <laughs> in a 
Artex ceilinged room at the back of Southampton Polytechnic, (laughs) dressed in singlets and dried sweat. Those cans with a really fucking hard ring pulls to get off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Two lads with a spiral-bound notebook hanging around saying, how would you get the name Honky? Mm. You know, glory days. I just think that they they should actually call themselves hanky, um, yes. <laughs> plain, square, tucked out of sight, and then when you retrieve and unfold it, you're staring at the gross waste product of humanity, <laughs> ready to be swept away in the wash. And the terrible thing is, they're really good musicians, mm. and they're all they've obviously rehearsed loads and loads and loads, and. Mm. Should they ever have passed through Alberta, Canada, they might reasonably have been able to call themselves the funkiest band in Medicine Hat Mm. tonight. (laughs) But in the grand scheme of things, it's a bit lacking, isn't it? There's a bit in this song where he starts to lecture us uh, on what soul is about. Mm. Because when a band can all play this way and are clearly marinated in funk and soul music Mm. and yet sound as stiff and and, and as pale as honky there's some explaining to do Mm. you know (laughs) this is one of those records that would sound a lot better if it was worse do you know what Mm. i mean if it had been this peppy and had this much front but it was as malformed and broken and semi-functional as their big english faces you could get with that Mm. that would be interesting but it's that cellophane layer of of slick competence that just seals this up and renders it literally useless Mm. in five years time they could have been level 42 and just dressed up as themselves and got on with it and people would have accepted it but because it's 1977 if you're playing this kind of music you've got to try to look the part at the very least and have a jokey name that alludes to your whiteness unlike say level 42 who are using funk I don't know I'm not saying Mark King was talking about his situation Mm. but there was no attempt to sound american in his vocal no necessarily exactly. whereas this is yeah this is pure this is pure black throat mm. yeah as taylor says it's fairly worthless i think it's been undiscovered though of course by hip-hop producers because it's got a groove yes they, they they can summon up a groove the bass and yeah. the drums and everything else it works but yeah um as a performance it, it's it's actually grotesque <laughs> yes. i mean if you're looking for positives um the backing vocals are great Good work there by the two Pete's. And I like the synth squiggles that they've plastered all over it in a semi-successful attempt to liven the thing up a bit. Mm. And good for them that they just did this and then melted away. You know, they weren't like Riot said, Fred. You imagine when I'm Too Sexy came out, if someone said to you, in 30 years' time, they'll still be controversial. Why? Oh, because of their dangerously arrogant stupidity. (laughs) Oh, right. So why are they still getting attention? Because of their dangerously arrogant stupidity. All right, I don't understand this new century. No, neither do we. (laughs) Right, so Fred have got a new record out, getting play on Might Read Heritage Chart Show. Of course. With a cartoon video about how we're all being spoon-fed disinformation by the (laughs) MSM, like robot sheep, you know. And there's a bit where a TV appears, and it says on it, television oh think about it yeah google operation northwoods look <laughs> this time traveler has a mobile phone in a picture from 1906 <laughs> you're all so blind 
so blind. I bet you don't get any of that from the surviving members of Honky, no. if any. No, they just want to throw up videos of their old photos on YouTube when they're stripped at the waist and a bit too close to each other, put the caption, we weren't gay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah important. In case was they're in Superdrug today, picking up their prescriptions. <laughs> some, some homosexuals might rush in and attempt to fuck them up the arse. Yeah. It's a, yeah, yeah, it's a bit protest it. too much, isn't it? That yeah. Mm. But, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, they may look like the contents of a crate marked for euthanasia in a section of the Wonderland Zoo that's closed to the public. <laughs> but at least their only message to humanity was, come on, get up and join the party. Yeah. Them and the late Dr. Goebbels. <laughs> it's pretty obvious at this point that Robin Nash is just bonging anything. Oh, oh, yeah. This is a repeat of a performance from a month ago. A month? What's going on, wow. Robin? It's a rush job, it feels, yeah. this episode at times. It's a rush it's job. It's like, oh, Jubilee, Jubilee, Jubilee. Oh, there's nothing we go. We can't use that. We can't use that. Oh, party. Yes, chuck it in. Yeah, yeah anyone would think there's a, a, a currently popular record in the charts that for some reason they can't <laughs> use. <laughs> so the following week, Join the Party moved up two places to number 28, but would get no further. The follow-up, Give All You Got, failed to chart, and they were never seen or heard of ever again. Two weeks ago, I went to Las Vegas, and while I was there, I saw the Osmonds, who were sensational. In the audience were the Jacksons. They've got a record out called Show You the Way to Go, and here to dance to it are Legs and Company. Tony brags on to us that he went to Las Vegas the other week, but because he's Tony Blackburn, he went to see the Osmonds <laughs> in 1970-fucking-seven, everyone. <laughs> and who did he see in the audience but the next act, who are going to be emoted to by, in his words, Legs and Company? The Jacksons with Show You The Way To Go. I've got to say, I misheard Tony's intro the first time I watched this. Right. I thought he'd accidentally called them Legs and Cunning, <laughs> which is a bit rough, but it actually might be an advance on their real name because it does at least refer to two parts of their bodies yeah. instead of just one. Yes. It's a little bit more feminist, you know, <laughs> as a step forwards, you know, legs and other bits. Yeah. yeah. Tops and bottoms. Lady, love your legs and coat. <laughs> We've wallowed in the glory of the Jackson 5 many a time and oft, most recently in chart music number 63, when they assisted Michael in a live performance of Rockin' Robin in the 1972 Boxing Day episode. Since then, they notched up three chart hits in 1973, with only Dr. My Eyes breaking the top ten, getting to number nine in March of that year, but diminishing returns set in, and their first release of 1974, Dancing Machine, 
failed to chart over here. How could that fail to chart? Fucking hell. Stupid British cunts, you deserve Brexit. In 1975, after a stint in Las Vegas, Joe Jackson discovered that his lads were only getting 2.8% of royalties from their Motown contract and instructed them to down tools forthwith while he shopped them around to other labels. He eventually settled upon Epic Records in June of that year, even though they were still under contract to Motown until March of 1976. And after Motown sued them for breach of contract, they eventually allowed them to leave on the condition that they changed their name, which was owned by their old label. Epic immediately went into a joint venture with Philadelphia International Records in an attempt to update and season the group. And in November of 1976, the newly titled Jacksons, minus Jermaine, who stayed at Motown, but plus Randair, the youngest brother in the family, not only put out their family variety show on CBS, but also released their new LP, The Jacksons, which was produced by Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff, the overlord. Lords of the Philly Sound. The first cut to be put out as a single, Enjoy Yourself, got to number 6 on the Billboard chart, but only got to number 42 over here in April. But this, the follow-up written by Gamble and Huff, entered the chart last week at number 23, and this week it soared 17 places to number 6. Although they've already appeared in the Top of the Pop studio three weeks ago performing the single live, as they were in the country for the first time since late 1972, to join the likes of David Soul, Lena Zavarone, Dolly Parton, Eric Sykes and Hattie Jakes, and Sari Lewis and Lamb Chop at the Royal Show in Glasgow in front of the Queen, Robin Nash has opted to give the song to Legs and Co. this week. And, oh, chaps, I had a look at that Jackson's performance the other day and and what did i come across none other than kid jensen wearing the exact same shirt with a queen's head on it that he wore on chart music number 65 over five years later (laughs) fucking hell that explains a lot Uh, legs and co first i think because they've completely recycled demis russos's bit haven't they yeah same set pretty much the same set apart from the floor demis's floor was a bit silvery and Legs and Co's a bit more wooden Yeah, and those plants are now sort of providing furtive cover for members of the audience to mm. look at Legs and Co with. And not only that, but they've also cut up Demis Roussos' Moo and made six outfits <laughs> for Legs and Co, with, with some green feathery bits and some gold tinsel on it. So, yeah. Make do and mend, top of pops. <laughs> the routine itself, I mean, as usual mm. with Legs & Co, it, it it suffers with that simultaneous need for it to be a dance, but also that infantile mm. storytelling yes. of a dance. So every time it's a yeah. me and the lyric, it's a thumb towards themselves, and every time it's you, mm. they point at you, and every time they, they come together in the lyrics, they link arms. Sometimes I wonder with Legs & Co routines, how much better it would have been to just, I don't know, get them a bit tanked up, take them to a club and just film them dancing to this music. Mm. But actually, in, I know I've said it's moaned, it's a kind of cheapskate episode. The combination of camera work, the, the subtle way of knowing the moments when the hook and the choruses come in and, and, and stuff like that, it's one of the more successful moments of the episode, I'd say. It doesn't feel yeah. randomly timed. So yeah, pure satisfaction, really. Mm, yeah. yeah, I mean, the routine is a cursory flounce about, mm, and it, yeah. it does make you wonder if this has been another last-minute job. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. As we know very well by now, there are legs and co-routines that are 
unfathomable and intriguing. Mm. There are Legs & Co. routines that are hypnotically catastrophic. Mm. There's Legs & Co. routines that are just appealing and casually sexy in an unthreatening way. And then there are Legs & Co. routines like this, which are Mm. barely there and all too obviously cooked up and rehearsed it in front of a giant egg timer (laughs) by Flick Colby. Um, Where ultimately the most important thing is not the steps they dance, but just that they dance at all. Yeah, Mm. yeah. That Music Week article about Robin Nash mentioned the fact that Flick Colbert had to scrap two routines they'd spent a week on last month. Uh, One was due to a single going down instead of up, and the other, okay, by Rock Follies, being binned off at the last minute. Going back to that piece, it says, the Rock Follies single, okay, had been played admittedly rarely, by Radio 1 and had already been shown on ITV to an audience about the size and range of Top of the Popsers. Having failed to secure either the performers or the Thames TV clip, Nash had set Flick, Colby and Legs and Co. to work out a routine for the song a week before screening. At 6pm on Wednesday, June the 1st, Nash had decided to take the song out, having listened at someone's suggestion more closely to the words and checked that Radio 1 had received complaints. A combination of this, the Sex Pistols ban and the fact that the performance were ladies, the song begins, You Want to Do Me, persuaded him to hold off for a week. So yeah, 6 o'clock on Wednesday evening and they start recording at what, 7, 8? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, They ended up doing Got to Give It Up by Marvin Gaye and they put on a repeat of their routine to the shuffle by Van McCoy. Uh, And OK dropped two places from number 10 to number 12 this week. So, you know, we never got to see Legs and Co wiggling their fingers at us disapprovingly. (laughs) So I think we can deduce that uh, this routine's been cobbled together at very short notice. Yeah, and other than that, it's it's the usual study in contrasts. It's the the mm. smiley, cutesy lady display versus the fact that if you banged a spoon off Legs and Co's legs, it'd sound like whacking a spanner against an aluminium pipe. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it works. But the song is fucking mint, isn't yeah. it? This yeah. Another example of a Motown act kicking on and a proto-boy band showing us that there is life after the dropping of the balls. (laughs) Michael's going to be 19 in a couple of months, so this is his transformation into adulthood, this song. Yeah, it's another Sublime Jackson single in Mm. a Sublime run of singles. Yeah. But yeah, they are demonstrating that there's life after Motown and they they sound just, obviously they're getting older, but they sound so relaxed. Yes. It's so odd that it's only once they're on Epic and they're with Gamble and Huff that they start picking up gold records and platinum records because yeah i mean not because they hadn't sold before but because motown had never submitted sales to the riaa no that's mental it is mental so yeah it's just another great jackson's single and the perfect people to team up with in 1977 it's an interesting pair in the jacksons and gambling off because Mm. you know they are the absolute masters of mature love songs aren't they you know married people coming to the end of the line either trying to cling on to what's left or giving up and having illicit relationships with other married people in cafes you know Gamble and Huff songs are all grown-up songs, yeah, and, yeah. and so is this in a way. Yeah. You know, it's either about a couple getting ready to put some serious work into a relationship, or it's an older man initiating a younger woman and swearing loyalty to them, and it's clearly touched a nerve with the people who grew up with the Jackson 5. Yeah, being a Gamble and Huff record, do you think that is partly almost like a jab at Motown? You know, well, you were yeah. the big deal, 
but well, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, these are the yeah. big deal now. Mm. And it's also appropriate because Jackson's leaving Motown involved both a gamble and a huff. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Such a cunt this I'm sorry. Bravo. I've just I've had a different no, moment. No, bravo, <laughs> sir. And of course, Gambling Hoff also wrote "I'll Do Anything He Wants Me To" for Doris Troy, which was recorded a year from now by Lenny Gamble. Oh, who is Tony Blackburn? Oh, yes, Tony Blackburn's Northern Soul song. Whoa. <laughs> it was the roadblock of the day. Because they were going around, say, shopping it around, say, oh, look at this Northern Soul classic we've just dug up from a fucking warehouse in Miami. Uh, yeah, and you yeah. listen to it, and it's, it's clearly Tony Blackburn singing. <laughs> Backing vocals by Arnold. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing is, if the Jacksons had stayed with Motown, and I try to imagine what songs they would have been given by Motown, uh, it would have gone too adult. It would have gone too the other way, I think. Mm. The thing that Gamble and Huff do is they do smooth, but without schmaltz. And, and I yes. think that separates them from Motown in a big way. Motown would have given them big I'm Still Waiting style ballads, perhaps, and, and you know, yeah. try to, I don't know, keep them there. It's it's definitely a good move for them. Yeah, yeah Jermaine, no longer with the group, stayed with Motown, of course. Yes. Because he married into the Gordy family. Yes. Not the only artist whose career was affected by doing that, for mm. better or for worse. And it's something I've never understood, because however well we got on, I don't think that I could, A, marry a close relative of my boss, mm. or B, <laughs> marry someone with a facial resemblance, however slight, to my boss. Yes. Because you could just be sat there one day clinking cocktails on the patio, or worse, <laughs> and suddenly the sunlight hits their face at a particular angle, and oh, God. It'd be like if you married Stella McCartney. Do you know what I mean? Just a bit uncomfortable. <laughs> but this is the Jacksons just approaching that changeover moment in terms of the tone of how the Jacksons present themselves, isn't it? Yeah. This is still the period where they're releasing albums with covers that are just a picture of them, mm. maybe smiling, mm. goofing around. And so suddenly they go big and blustering and start putting out records called Destiny mm. and Victory and Triumph. Yes. Like these bizarrely over-heroic covers and yeah. videos where they're, they're looking down on humanity, oh, even as they deign to become its ultimate saviours. It's a development I've never quite understood, mm. especially as that happened when they were at something of a low ebb commercially. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly it's gaze upon us mortals, you know yeah. what I mean? It's like, like the front cover of Destiny looks like the titles of Life of Brian if they weren't <laughs> meant to be funny. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't know enough about the personal lives of the Jacksons in this period to know whether there was some reason why that might have happened or if it was just on a whim but it's like one minute they're these warm chummy family entertainers and then suddenly you're being addressed like the shepherds on the hill you know mm. do not be afraid it's like the <laughs> funky enunciation oh just wait till we mm. get to the video for can you feel it for oh that video yeah. fucking hell but that's interesting that you say that taylor because i mean you know that big promethean thing they do on the sleeves coming up yeah. contrast that with you know off the wall 
which is only two years down the line. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. And of course, I mean, at this point, 77, none of us could have predicted off the wall. No. I mean, that, that you just cannot compute that that is two years from now. God, no. It's just remarkable. No. Yeah. I mean, it's still 1977, so it is the pre-video age for 99.9% of the general public. So it is odd that Robin Nash hasn't dialed back the uh, live performance that he did a few weeks ago. But yeah, I managed to look at that. And, you know, like Rockin' Robin, it is live. But they're not as assured and polished as they were in Rockin' Robin. Uh, but it is the first time that Michael starts doing his breathy, whoopy verbal ticks that yeah. carry him through the Aventis and beyond. So, yeah, that is, it's all bubbling up. Yeah. Also, don't forget, I'm assuming that they were backed by at least some members of the Top of the Pops Orchestra. True. Something's happened to the Top of the Pops Orchestra since mm. 1972. Yes. I don't know what it is, but it, it has happened. Yes. Because we heard them doing Rockin' Robin. Yes. And it was halfway through before you knew for sure that this yes. was not a band they'd brought with them. So, the following week, show you the way to go, nipped up three places to number three, and then deposed Lucille by Kenny Rogers from the summit of Mount Pop, staying there for one week before giving way to So You Win Again by Hot Chocolate, their only number one single in the UK as either the Jacksons or the Jackson 5, which is mad. Yeah. Fucking mad. The follow-up... Dreamer got to number 22 in September and they close out 1977 with the title track of their next LP, Going Places, getting to number 26 for two weeks in November. In 1978, they ended their relationship with Gamble and Huff, re-signed to Epic and were given full creative control and it paid off big style when Blame It On The Booger and Shake Your Body Down To The Ground returned them to the top 10. known worldwide. Everywhere you go, they've had smash hits. They've got a brand new one out called Exodus here of Bob Marley and the Wailers. Exodus. Well, all right. Movement of the people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tone sitting in the gloom of the corner of the studio, tells us that the next band are the Rupert the Bear of the reggae world, because everyone knows their name. Why, it's Bob Marley and the Wailers and Exodus. We'll ask covered Jamaica's answer to Paul Nicholas in Chart Music 64, when his posthumous career began in full with a re-release of One Love, and this, the follow-up to Who the Cap Fit, which failed to chart in the autumn of 1976, is the lead cut from his new LP of the same name, which came out last week. After the attempt on his life in December of last year, Bob and his chums have relocated to London, where they've finished off the LP, and they've just finished a tour of Europe, which culminated in a four-night stand at the Rainbow in London last week. Cut down from its original 7 minutes and 40 seconds to a slightly more radio-friendly 4.5 minutes, it was put out last week and is not in the charts yet. But Robin Nash is ital and has ushered the band into the studio, making their first ever in-studio performance on Top of the Pops and their first appearance on the show since No Woman No Cry was played out to some studio lights and the credits in October of 1970. Chaps, Bob Marley arrives for real 
on chart music. Yeah. We ripped into the Leninification of Bob Marley a few episodes ago, so here's a, a much-needed chance mm. to see him as a living, breathing entity. Yeah. Yeah. Quite reggae-influenced, this one, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> mm. I mean, that, it's interesting you say that Lenonification that we, we talked about in the 84 episode. Mm. I mean, reading the music press on reggae in this period is quite interesting because yes. Bob is already kind of deified by most of the writers. And even those sort of non-believers um, see him as important, as someone as someone to focus on. Uh, that of course already enables disregarding the rest. But th- but there's, there's it's interesting that mm. in the music press at this time there still persists this debate about reggae as to whether I don't know not whether it's proper music but whether it's okay mm. to not like it and to actually not like the entire genre with the faint suggestion that the kind of groove of reggae is, mm. is a kind of one note groove and the space that it takes up is is really limited. So in the live yeah. reviews of the Rainbow shows that you know last week then that were pictured on the front of Eminem with that great shot. Um, there is a sense in the reviews, yeah. oh, he's legitimizing this form and he's proving that it can happen live. Mm. The same kind of condescension was sent towards Public Enemy when they figured out how to do hip-hop live. But Re- reggae's in this interesting place, not to aficionados, but just in the general kind of music press idea at this time. Yeah, mm. is Not is this proper music, but... Can we admit we don't like this? Although the Whalers have notched up a mere one single on the UK chart so far, Bob Marley's definitely known about in the non-music media, but it's mainly for being someone else's knockoff. Uh, I refer you to an article in the Daily Mirror dated November the 20th, 1976, headline, Miss World's Wild Man. They look an odd couple. Call Cindy Breakspear the new Miss World and Bob Marley, the wild man of pop. <laughs> but they're in love, according to Cindy, 22-year-old Miss Jamaica. Bob, a 31-year-old Jamaican, is a reggae superstar with a lust for life. He says he has fathered nine children by seven girls. He says he smokes a pound of pot a day. And as a member of the mystical Rastafarian movement, he believes it is morally wrong to comb his hair. Cinde, a health-loving vegetarian, said she would like to marry and settle down with children. But getting Marley to marry and settle down with her might be difficult right now, as he has no plans to divorce his legal wife, Rita. Meanwhile, Marley is laying low. A friend said in Kingston, the nation's capital, Bob seems to have vanished from his usual haunts. I bet he's off enjoying himself somewhere. (laughs) Bob Marley, the wild man of pop? Uh. In 1976? (laughs) Come on. Yeah. I mean, they're basically painting him as the new Jimi Hendrix there, aren't they? Yeah, there's a definite similarity in in tone. Yeah, they must have had something Mm. in common. I mean, fair play to Robin Nash for putting him on, Mm. but it's weird that it's this single and not one of the love songs because, you know, in a Jubilee episode, Exodus is basically saying, hey, black people, this country's shit, get the fuck out. Yeah. Probably would have gone down well at a blues organised by the National Front. Don't you think? <laughs> but it's it's nice to hear it because the last time that chart music covered Robert Nestor Marley, uh, mm. Robert Aaron Marley, <laughs> Robert Patrick Marley, is what, Robert Cougar Marley. <laughs> last time chart music covered Robert Frogman Marley, <laughs> it was the hit single which best represents the the fluffy, prettified. Yes. Ultra commercial end of the catalogue. Yeah, social Um, worker. 
Bob Marley. Yeah, whereas of all the hits, this one probably best represents the heavier and more hardcore side. Mm. Although it's very smart what this record does, which is to present as roots reggae while also incorporating all the most commercial musical trends of the period, which you could conceivably fit into a reggae record. Mm. You know, you can hear things from 70s soul, you can maybe hear a little bit of disco, and it's got that very smooth but deep production that almost sounds like Rumours by Fleetwood Mac, Mm. you know. It's not rough, this record, at all. And I think, in fairness, it works brilliantly, artistically as well as commercially. Partly because Marley knew exactly what he was doing, and partly just because the Whalers are such a good band. Yeah. It's mm. always great to just listen to them play, you know, when, which they mm. get the chance to here. But even so, to me personally, it's still, it's not a patch on Duppy Conqueror and mm. all that stuff, you know. Yeah. Because to me, reggae is like rock and roll. I just like it better when it's got a bit of a rough edge on it, you yeah. know. And yeah. when it breaks the rules of musical taste rather than finding ways to work within them but if you are going to make consciously commercial reggae i don't think it's possible to do it better than this because it doesn't sacrifice anything apart from the rude edge you Mm. know which maybe stuff like one love does and it makes sure that the smoothness which replaces it is also appealing in its own right it's not just a cop-out you know. Yeah, I'm not overly fond of the Exodus album. Mm. This is probably my favourite track off it. Right. Because the Exodus album, in a sense, it is that sort of total ironing out of Bob's roughness mm. yeah. that Tony was speaking of. But this is one of the tracks I do like off that album. And and uh, to be honest with you, straight after I watched this clip, I wanted to go listen to the seven-minute version. Yeah. Because on the seven-minute version, it just becomes more and more hypnotic mm. and engrossing. But it's still one of the most sort of watchable moments of this episode. Yes. Uh, and not, not really because of Bob. I mean, because of a chance to witness you know Aston and Carlton Barrett in the yeah, rhythm section yeah. and also Junior Marvin on guitar and is that Judy Moa and Marcia Griffiths on backing vocals Ooh. I can't I couldn't quite tell but it might be but the Whalers you know they're no longer sort of in a sense loads of things to look at because there was always the attendant danger back in the day that you'd actually find yourself much more compelled by the the weird unique presence of Peter Tosh yeah. uh, more than anybody else but you know the thing we have to remember from this vantage point is if you're black or west indian in 77 this kind of moment this is unforgettable and mm. uh, and it's as important to you as say i don't know the freaks are later on in the late 70s and early 80s for an awful lot of other people you know yeah. it's something from your home that you thought was private suddenly brought to the people mm. and go away from this and you, you you walk into the playground or the football field or the street the next day with just a little extra pattern of resistance in your armor mm. um that this has happened so it's what it's one of the best moments on this episode definitely yeah i think you you can definitely defend the way in which bob marley commercialized reggae and Mm. made it into something that that sold a lot in you know um, Britain and to some extent america Mm. but there's always a price to pay and there is a reason why on prince william's recent visit to jamaica he kept quoting bob marley yes rather than (laughs) prince jasbo or leroy horsemouth wallace you know what i mean it's like it's not marley's fault but Babylon's gilded representative can use your words for PR and people stand and clap it. Mm. You know, something must have got twisted somewhere, you know. Yeah. You didn't see him hand-jiving with Kate to 
president mashup the resident no. you know what i mean <laughs> to some extent bob marley makes me understand why some people are weirdly ambivalent about the beatles mm. you know because in terms of simple old-fashioned musical talent he probably was the best jamaican act of the 70s in terms of he was the best songwriter and the best singer and, the, and you know the slickest performer and it's obvious why he made it bigger than everybody else mm. because there's just this sort of quality to his stuff Mm. i'm just not that fussed about that particular type of quality you know in this genre Mm. Um, where a whole lot of other people who couldn't write songs half as cleverly as he could or sing half as sweetly were able to make records that were much more interesting and weirder and more raucous and more wildly imaginative I mean, I think the difference is that the Beatles had the craft, but they also had the mad visionary bit, you know, sort of low-key, mm. which I don't think Marley did. He was a great singer-songwriter with a band who were agonisingly shit-hot when they were on it. And his particular talent broke down those barriers because it was so commercial and could be marketed a particular way, which obviously makes him one of the most important figures, if not the most important figure in reggae history and all that. It's Mm. just that (laughs) when you listen to Bob Marley, even the very best stuff, it's great, but it never sounds like a, a raw outsider using the freedom of the genre to create baffling magic, Mm. which a lot of other stuff from this period does. Mm. And it's not some weird snobbery about his records being commercial, because some of the records I'm thinking of were big British hits too, Mm. you know. People tend to forget this, that there were millions of reggae hits in the charts all through the 70s. It just wasn't considered an album genre Mm. or, you know, a serious genre until Bob Marley. It's just that for Bob Marley, reggae was the style through which he could express and exercise his conventional musical talent, you know, and his express his basic thoughts and feelings, which is what most music is, what most songwriters do. Mm. Whereas for someone like Lee Scratch Perry... Reggae was an open-ended magic spell through which new and previously unimaginable thoughts and feelings could be shocked into existence, you know. And all all the horrors and iniquities of the world could not just be protested and lamented, but placed under psychic attack, which might not work, but it made for, for wilder music, you know. Can you imagine, say, Lee Perry on top of the pops? Ooh. Can you imagine Max Romeo on top Ooh. of the pops? Yeah, yeah. What these people would have done is they would have put across a pop performance. Now, Bob can write great pop songs, but he's not a pop performer. He's a serious musician, and consequently, he's taken seriously. Mm. I mean, look at this, what he does here. I mean, in a sense, this feels a bit more like a whistle test clip or something. Yeah, yeah. And Bob, he's already in that sort of closed-eyed communion with God mm. that shuts the audience out, really. Yeah. And that's perhaps why he was acceptable. It's not particularly a top-of-the-pops performance. I do sort of, yeah, wonder, you know, put that top-of-the-pops mic in the hands of a lunatic like Max Romeo, mm. and what would you get? It would have been fucking amazing. Mm, yeah, perhaps yeah. there should have been more of that. Yeah, yeah big youth riding his motorbike oh, on yeah, the yeah. stage. Yeah. singing about communism or do- yeah Dr. Alimentado or, or Yellow any of these people it would have been amazing yeah. Bob isn't that he's not a pop performer he's he's a, he's a, in a sense almost like a rock performer mm. so I found myself throughout this performance not looking at him I was just dazzled by the rest of the band I know they're not playing it live but it don't matter no. just seeing Aston and Carton Barrett 
nailing it down yeah, yeah. you know and it's just a remarkable sight yeah strangely the top of the pops orchestra have been stood down for this performance <laughs> <laughs> as i say the other thing is that even though bob marley in most senses is a more conventional or you know in britain is considered like a more traditional artist mm. really he was the outlier in 70s reggae yes you know because yeah so much of it was not about melodicism in this sense it mm. was about roughness and uh, a psychotic edge and about the disorientating artifacts of its own production you know the studio sound like the noise uh, uh, the extraordinary exaggerated weight of of the bass you know all all the stuff that isn't just about the playing and isn't just about the music mm. all these unpredictable ideas and wild gimmicks you know in the best sense a lot of people forget how gimmicky the best reggae music is because they didn't see it as a bad thing it was yeah. just about just doing yeah. stuff to grab your attention and this is all the stuff that just isn't there on legend mm. some yeah. of it is there on some of the earlier whalers stuff but there's nothing wrong with that especially on this particular record, mm. which is, um, you know, is fantastic. It's not compromised in any negative sense. No. It's just that when you've got years of Jamaican music spread out in front of you, and it includes literally hundreds, maybe thousands of records like Space Flight by Iroy, you know, or mm. Wet Vision by Uroy, or, or Heart of the Congos, or King Tubby, or Keith Hudson, all these amazing oddly shaped pop singles that you get on tighten up compilations yeah. you know like barb wire by nora dean and Ooh. uptown top ranking for fuck's sake yes. you know or the male equivalent three-piece suit by trinity i'm trying yes. to fill out the video playlist here just so i can put it on one <laughs> night and just relax in your diamond socks and ting exactly as usual <laughs> but compared to that a lot of marley stuff it uh, starts to seem like ready salted crisps by mm. comparison. Do you know, reggae salted crisps. If you right, <laughs> apparently the most popular and dependable option. But how often do you want to pick them out? You know, and this—that's even yeah, before you yeah. get to the impossible mental adventure playground that is dub. You know, yeah. especially late seventies dub versions of ultra heavy root stuff. Like if every household in the world that bought a copy of legend had instead bought a copy of a compilation like open the gate which would have been tricky as that wasn't compiled until the 90s but hmm. i can't imagine what a difference that would have made to to music and and to hmm. like open the gate is a is a three lp trojan box set yeah. of um lee scratch perry dub versions of mostly roots tracks and almost every second of everything on it is totally mind-boggling. Mm. It's got like stuff like Sons of Slaves by Junior Delgado and Open the Gate by Wattie Burnett, you know. Yeah. The so-called disco version of Words by <laughs> Anthony Sangi Davis. It's like the heaviest thing you've ever heard. It's these amazing exploding flowers and adventures in musical space. I and mean, none of which is to denigrate bob marley it's mm. just a shame that this reggae got waved through while that mm. reggae had to stay semi-underground yeah, yeah but how many people would have heard that reggae if they weren't allowed to hear this reggae first on top of the yeah 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 it's, yeah, it's a yeah. gateway absolutely 
Absolutely. But I mean, for, I think for Bob, this pound of weed that he's smoking every day, yeah, it's, it's, it's not psychedelically inspiring him. It, it truly is just the holy chalice. And as a good raster, he's, he's, he's doing his duty, I guess. Yeah. Whereas with Perry and the rest of the people Taylor mentioned, yeah, it opened up things that they then wanted to reflect in their music. And that's why you get yeah. so many fucking nutty sounding records around about this period. Yeah, but, yeah he may have been a superstar, but heard he was very tight go backstage at one of his gigs see the whole of his band sharing one cigarette <laughs> but no speaking of which I was going to say I don't know if you're aware but there is in Britain a group of cannabis growers and activists who name themselves Exodus after this song and album oh really yeah and these days the trend in marijuana especially since it was decriminalized in most of the United States is to keep crossbreeding strains and creating new ever more mm. finely yeah. tuned types of weed with increasingly ridiculous names like super glacé cherry OG or, <laughs> mm, or Thunderfuck yeah Pittsburgh meow mix you know or like, <laughs> like strawberry dog shit or something like that and these people exodus created a very popular variation on the type of marijuana known as cheese so it oh. came to pass that currently one of the most common strains of weed in britain is called exodus cheese which sounds like a character from to kill a mockingbird Old Exodus cheese. He never believed in mixing with folks. If I was a marijuana grower at this point in time, I would like to create a new strain of marijuana called Andy Peebles. (laughs) Don't you think that would be great? Sell it in a pack with a cut out of his face on the front. Mm. Or maybe... Maybe just that unmistakable silhouette. Uh, <laughs> it's a particularly dank bud. You'd have to call it Andy Peebles' space cush or something like yeah, that. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, I like this one better than the Whalers' follow-up single, Rocco Can, which just somehow just never seemed to work for me, that one. I don't know why. And the kids seem to like it. Yeah. They're bouncing around with their uh, cardboard silver crowns on their head. Yeah, but I think reggae by this point has become a music that the British audience is completely used to, completely familiar with. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I, I, it might sound like we're, we're popping at Bob, but this is one of his best songs, actually. Mm. I mean, from this period. Yeah, 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 and it's a really hypnotic little window out of this episode, in a way. You kind yeah. of, again, forget that you're watching Top of the Pops. Mm. And I mean, if the Whalers really wanted to sell out for American and European success, they could have gone for a more dynamic image, never mind the old jeans mm. and the Adidas tracksuit tops. They could, would have had more impact with a bit of a gimmick, yeah. wouldn't they? Like, they should have called themselves... Bob Marley and the Whalers, <laughs> and all dressed in oil skins, yeah, thick white woolen polo necks, and bobble hats, and carried binoculars and, and <laughs> blooded harpoons. How great would that have been? Oh. Call me Israel. Call me Israel. They could have done a version of Nantucket Sleigh Ride. Fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to be careful with that stuff, though, or you because you can end up like the crazy world of Arthur Brown. Mm. You know, like he called his record Fire. He came up with a great gimmick and it was his only hit. So he had to spend the next 25 years on stage with his head in flames. What a fucking bind. (laughs) You know, if he'd called that record Shoulder Massage, the rest of his career would have been an awful lot more comfortable. Or Cornettos. Yeah, but like, you know, then he'd have been 30 stone, wouldn't he? Every night, I am the god of Cornettos (laughs) and I bring you. Oh, more Cornettos. Oh, oh. He's got no teeth. <laughs> Expensive, too. Taylor, I have to bring up the question that me and Neil discussed a while back. Bob Marley's 80s, what, what would it have been like? 
I Want to Wake Up With You by uh, Boris oh. Gardner. <laughs> what have you done, Live Aid? God, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. I still say no. I, I looked into this a bit more. So, Jar say, not one of my seeds shall sit in the sidewalk and beg bread. Come on now. Yeah. But more importantly, he would not have lifted one finger to help Mengistu. Right. A man who, let's remember, interred the remains of Haile Selassie yeah. directly yeah, yeah. under his private toilet. Yes. So he could shit on it. Yeah. yeah Bob Molly's not going to fucking do out for him. On reflection, I think you're probably right. Yes. Yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> Giving myself a pat on the back there. So a fortnight later, Exodus entered the charts at number 41, then soared 15 places to number 26, beginning a slow pull upward, which culminated four weeks later when it got to number 14, its highest position. The follow-up, Waiting in Vain, got to number 27 in October, and they'd finished their most successful year so far with the double-A side jamming slash punky reggae party, becoming the Christmas number 28, and eventually getting to number 9 in February of 1978. Punky reggae party sounds so barren nice, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing to think that Bob Marley, Demis Roussos, and the Wurzels were in the same fucking building, though, Jesus Christ. Pete Budd claimed in a Channel 4 documentary that Bob Marley came up to the Wurzels and said, Ooh, ah, man, how you doing, babe? <laughs> you don't think it was just, he said, so when you got any Bud and they slightly yes. referred him, went, yeah, he's over there. <laughs> are you satisfied with the life you're living? You know, we know where. Exodus there from Bob Marley and the Whalers. Right now it's number one time on top of the pops, and here he is. He's still there, Rod Stewart. And the first cut is the deepest. Tony, standing alone next to a blue backdrop, finally gets round to the best-selling single of the week. Formed in London in 1975, the Sex Pistols were a band put together by Malcolm McLaren from out of his pervy clothes shop on the King's Road, who signed to EMI in October of 1976 and put out their debut single, Anarchy in the UK, a month later, which got to number 38 for three weeks in December. This single, God Save the Queen, is the follow-up, which went under the working title No Future and originally contained the line God Save Window Lean and had been part of their live set since late 1976. It had already been recorded in October of that year and was supposed to have been the first release on their new label, A&M, who had pressed 25,000 copies of the single immediately after they signed to them outside Buckingham Palace in March. But when they were dropped six days later, all but nine copies of the single were destroyed. 
Only last month, the Pistols signed a new deal with Virgin and the single was readied for release, only for workers at the pressing plant to down tools when they were told about the lyrical content and plate makers with the sleeve artwork to do likewise when they saw the image of the Queen with her eyes and mouth obscured by the name of the band and the single. When that was all sorted out, the single finally came out a fortnight ago, was made single of the week by Melody Maker, The Enemy, Sounds and Record Mirror and was immediately banned by the BBC, the IBA, Radio Luxembourg, WH Smiths, Boots, Woolworths and every single jukebox in pubs in Britain but still sold over 150,000 copies and crashed into the charts at number 11 which instantly set the tabloids into a froth which was compounded when Malcolm Viv put out a new line of t-shirts. Article in last week's Sunday Mirror Juby Punk Sex Pistols Pinup Rocks Palace Royal circles were rocking with horror last night at this jubilee souvenir produced by the Sex Pistols pop group. The punk rockers are offering a £3 t-shirt bearing a portrait of the Queen with a safety pin through her lips. Buckingham Palace was far from amused. A spokesman said sternly, We think it is in deplorable taste. At the office of the Lord Chamberlain, a spokesman said frostily, Our rules do not allow this, but any action we may contemplate to get it banned would only give the group the publicity they are so obviously seeking. An angry spokesman for the Silver Jubilee Appeal said, It is really horrible and derogatory, and every citizen must be hopping mad! This week, CBS, who are distributing both God Save the Queen and the current number one single, have reported to Virgin that the former has been outselling the latter by two to one. But John Fruin, the managing director of WEA Records, who is also the head of the British Phonographic Institute, the trade association of the record industry, has clearly been worried for some time that certain record shops who provide the BMRB with chart returns are owned by record labels. And, in the spirit of fair play, you understand, has issued a secret directive to the BMRB telling them not to bother counting returns from those shops, including the virgin ones. Two days ago, God Save the Queen jumped nine places to number two, although that didn't stop the band from having a lovely party on a barge that went past the Houses of Parliament that people assume is a foreshadowing of today's licking of the Queen's arse, but is in actual fact a recreation of the opening credits of the current series of That's Life. But no matter, because this is the real number one, and by God, we're going to treat it as such, aren't we? yeah completely yeah Mm. and what would have been different if officially this had got to number one yeah and been accepted as such i don't think much would have been different there'd have been a bit more fish shaking but that's about it isn't it yeah i kind of presume that the way it played out this this underdog status that was conferred upon this single Mm. um you know which is a single bought out by a major label you know by by a band who had multiple labels interest this is all perfect for mclaren Mm. you know 
all of it. And I think it's crucial to, I think, to realise that even by the time this record came out, that reaction of kind of appalled recoil that we see among some music fans, and certainly the moral majority towards punk, that's never going to be shared by the commercial record industry. The music business is not thinking this must never happen again. Mm. It's thinking this must and will happen again, and we have to be in on it next time, you know. So... You know, it changes that. For the music press, this also sets something up about, about around being a pop critic. This needs to be a profit to see things coming. You see that a lot in coming years. Mm. But it needs pointing out, why does this get to number two? Why does this get to number one? Mm. It's because it's a giant fuck you to the Jubilee and a more general fuck you to the future, yeah. partly. But it's also selling because it's a great pop record. Yes, it is. It fucking is. It's possibly the Pistols' best single. Mm. There's other Pistol songs I prefer, mm. but um, it's the best single, I think, because it's all about Johnny. You can see him singing and snarling and spitting yeah. every line. And this is obviously, you know, 50 years before he's back in Jacob Rees-Mogg. But, you know, mm. the lines are fucking great. The lyrics are amazing. There's a ferocity that perhaps it, in pop hadn't been heard since the early days of Sweet. And that yeah. kind of glam racket kind of feel to it really helps mm. too. So it, it, it just needs stating, yeah. I don't think the ind- the industry have to show, oh, some elements of the industry anyway have to show, oh, this is awful. They're already thinking, how can we be in on this? Yeah. And, and and it's just an undeniably great pop record, I think. Let's say what Tony Blackburn has to say about the single. <laughs> it is disgraceful and makes me ashamed of the pop world. But it is a fad that won't last. We DJs have ignored them. And if everyone else did, perhaps they would go away. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's the relaxed mistake. Like, we're not playing the most talked about record. So if you want to hear it, you jolly well have to go out and buy it Mm. to find out what all the fuss we've made is about. Yes. Someone should have told him there was already a song with this title. Yeah. It's confusing, isn't it? I was thinking about how funny it is that the Sex Pistols were not only one of the most over-discussed bands of all time, but also one of the most misunderstood, Mm. right? as though they are obscured rather than illuminated by all that discussion, right? But in fact, that's kind of perfect because one thing people get wrong about the Sex Pistols is to suppose that they were meant to have any coherent meaning, Mm. right? Because both on the highfalutin art school theory level and on the actual level of songwriting and performance, the point was chaos, Mm. but not some rock and roll fantasy right Mm. chaos as a genuine simultaneously destructive and constructive force right which involves a lot of heavy serious ideas and a lot of plain silly buggers and people can't always tell what's what like americans listen to the end of anarchy in the uk and they hear i want to be anarchist get pissed destroy and they think pissed means angry Mm. the whole point yeah is that it doesn't and that's a very deep misunderstanding yes and it's peculiar that a band that were absolutely all about simplistic shock tactics and sensationalism and stripping things down should turn out to be so much more complex than most other groups yeah but that's partly why pop music is so interesting you know and it seems to me that all these years later the people misunderstanding the Sex Pistols are the people who imagine them to have been one thing or the other, like virtuous or wicked, 
or left wing or right wing mm. or constructive or destructive or subversive or a money-making scam because of course they were all these things yes and that was the whole point and in fact now that the dust has settled and covered the sex pistols themselves mm. what is most valuable about these records and about the band is the expression and the reflection of that chaos and the horrific accompanying churn of anger and resentment and mm. egotism and self-loathing, nastiness and innocence and destructive rage and an unforgivable cuntishness and unforgettable goodness. Mm, yeah. Everything that human beings actually experience and how they actually behave in an environment of enforced poverty, hopelessness and anguish in which they're loathed, disrespected ignored spat on and then blamed for their own predicament right mm. this is not an earnest student activist type record which wants to make a constructive point on a polarizing topic mm. right it's not a gang of ideological warriors going into battle with this as their cry you know yeah. all puffed up with confidence in their own wisdom and their own moral rectitude it's mm. something much darker than that and something much more nakedly human than that yeah. i mean out of context you could mistake this as the granddaddy of all those stupid records that people do now like let's get a song called do a shit in your own eye boris johnson <laughs> yes, as the yeah, christmas yeah. number one you know what yeah, i mean yeah, yeah. but taken as a whole the sex pistols despite the occasional lapse into sloganeering were the opposite of that kind of glib smug approach you know they mm. weren't meant to be your best mates they weren't meant to be your wise older brothers yeah you weren't even meant to think they were cool particularly you know they weren't there with a useful lecture they were a horrible mess of contradictions and, and yeah. entirely informed by the experiences of being a bright but uneducated working class kid in the stinking ultra-violent london of of the 70s mm. and not only do they not have a coherent message they ridicule the very concepts of coherence and easy yeah. communication and yeah. that's what's great about them that's the whole fucking point yeah yeah the chaos and contradictions are the whole point of the pistols they sound like the last band you'll ever need yeah. in a way that there's something kind of i don't know i wouldn't say millennial how can i say they're like lollards or something there's <laughs> yeah, yeah. the world feel to their stuff they're an impossible band in the best best way mm. yeah and you're right because the way the tabloids reacted to this I mean, the two big baddies of this month and the previous month are the Sex Pistols and Idi Armin. <laughs> Maybe they should have got him in instead of Ronnie Biggs. That would have been fucking brilliant. <laughs> but the way the tabloids were reporting the Sex Pistols at the time, it was as if they were threatening to start rocking the Queen's fucking big pram and then climb up on it and do a shit on it. Yeah, yeah. Tabloids were absolutely furious with them for uh, queering the pitch of the Jubilee. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, like, it's why now they come out with all this stuff about... You know, oh, actually, I like the Queen, or oh, actually, I like Jacob Rees-Mogg, or it's, you know, yeah. <laughs> like John Lydon sat in LA drinking tea out of a Union Jack mug, you know what I mean, mm. cheering on Brexit and yeah. Donald Trump. It was something people didn't get about Lydon. People recognised that his instinctive intelligence and sense of mischief mm. is the authentic 
artistic selling point of the band, mm. right? This is what makes them different to like Slaughter and the Dogs or you know, mm. Chelsea or Stiff Little Fingers. But they don't get how this could have happened to John Lydon and how he could have ended up like that. But the mm. point is, this intelligence of his was never based on the possession of information, mm. right? It wasn't based on great political or geopolitical understanding or mm. knowledge. That's not how he thinks, right? Yeah. The reality of Brexit or Trump informs what he says about Brexit and Trump to about the same extent as the reality of the Cold War informed holidays in the sun, mm. i.e. not very much, mm. You know, he just sees a still lake of smugness and he wants to throw a brick into it. The only difference yeah. is that his experience of life these days is unrecognisable from what it once was. So yeah. the rocks are coming from another direction. Uh, he's the Andy Kaufman of pop, isn't he? Oh, what, yeah. what can I do to wind people up this time? Yeah, 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 yeah. Keep me bit. in the spotlight and earn me a bit of money. And the Pistols are really the last band he's in that actually capture any glee at all i mean when you think about the the three records he's going to make soon with pill mm. the, such a completely different kettle of fish although a similar kettle of fish in yeah. a way but there it's all pretty much despair yeah um, um the, the pistols capture that last moment of glee and we have to remember yeah you, you know so many people rejecting this record and so many people throwing up their arms about it the charts do not reject this record no I, I, in a way you know and and the ki- i'm not going to say the kids the kids <laughs> but even if top of the pops and radio shuts out this record what we have here i mean uh, perhaps i'm putting too much on this single uh, itself oh we could talk about this single for fucking hours mate i, I think one of the things that's in undervalued about punk and I'm not saying punk was great for the record industry necessarily, but punk doesn't just revitalise alternative music or rock music. It kind of revitalises the charts. Yes. Look, look at the charts. Look at what we've seen in the rest of this episode. Everything else that's happening in charts, quite a lot of it is, is you know, bands are not caring about singles much anymore. They're kind of promo things for these old dinosaurs. Mm. So it's not just that punk leads to post-punk and new pop and pretty much the next decade of music. I think it brings back an interest and a focus on the seven inch single as a form yes and that focus on smashing the charts so you know it had loads of positive impacts this single just hangs over this episode of top of the pops like an upside down christ on an anarchy t-shirt doesn't it <laughs> when did you actually hear this single for the first time oh that's an interesting question i mean i suspect it would have been several years after 77 mm. yeah i'm nine years old when this comes out and I didn't hear it. Um, Trevor Dunn, when he was a DJ on Radio Nottingham, he played it once when it came out before the bands kicked mm. in. But that would have been in Radio Nottingham's John Peel slot, so I wouldn't have heard it. Didn't have an older brother or sister. None of my mates had any older brothers or sisters. Yeah. So you just hear about this song that was just so fucking scurrilous and evil and yeah, yeah. you were just desperate to hear it. Yeah. It went around on our playground that it was a cover version of the National Anthem, <laughs> but with more belches and farts in it. Yeah, yeah. Then the lyrics came out in the tabloid, so you just stare at them and try and work out what they meant, mm. how they'd fit into the song. And they're fantastic lyrics. Oh, they're fucking like amazing. It. But I, I think the two Pistol songs that anyone hears before they get to the album yeah. is probably This and Anarchy in the UK. Maybe yeah. pretty vacant if you're lucky. But of course as soon as i picked up never mind the bollocks which i think i probably did around about 83 84 you know it's bodies and holidays in the sun that really fucking got to yes. me uh, in a big yes. big way 
Yeah. You should never, with the pistols, underestimate the production on these records. It's fucking great from Bill Price. Mm. It's such a big, big ass sound. Well, didn't Chris Thomas produce this album? Oh. Or was it the two of them? I think it was the two of them. Maybe Bill Price engineered it. But the sound's fucking fantastic. Um, yeah. Absolute explosion yeah. in a guitar factory, but it, it, yeah. it's great. This is one of the great pop singles of 77. Uh, yes. Even if the charts don't want it, even if BBC and Radio 1 don't want it, um, no. and, and IBA don't want it, it's one of the great pop singles of 77. Yeah. Taylor, when did you hear it for the first time? The only Sex Pistols song I'd ever heard was Friggin' in the Rigging. Yes. Because somebody brought it into school yes. on a little yeah. tape player. Obviously, that was quite popular. Yeah, Rugby Club Pistols. Yeah. <laughs> I was old enough when punk was around to hear all about it. Yeah. And too young to hear any of the music. So. Yeah. I yeah. just carried it in my head, yeah, that it, it was this uh, this incredible, terrible, subversive, dark thing that was like actual Satan, you know. <laughs> this is around the same time as the video Nasty's Panic as well. And yeah. two things happened around the same time. Started going around my mate's house and watching horror films on pirate VHSs. Yeah. And a mate of mine got Nevermind the Bollocks and started playing it. Yeah, oh and my God. to find out at the same time that everything... I'd read about popular culture in my mum and dad's first of the sun, and then when we class hopped Daily Mail, mm. um, was bollocks. It was yeah. all just lies. Yes. It was all wrong. Yeah. And the, in fact, these video nasties were just hilarious, stupid horror films with people yes. having their rubber arms cut off and a load of red paint shooting <laughs> out. And this Ex Pistols album was fucking brilliant. Yes. Yeah. It's like, what can, you know... And actually, they weren't this pure force for evil that went around stamping on kids' toys and popping their balloons and, you know, <laughs> no, spitting on old ladies. There's a strangely vintage morality to it. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it would have been 1981-82 for me when a mate who was babysitting for a bloke who had the first video recorder on the street got hold of the great rock and roll swindle. You wanted to hear it and you couldn't and you were desperate to. Even years after the event, it's, you know, it was essentially the clockwork orange of singles. God yeah. Mm. Queen. yeah, yeah. And it's also the first time that the world's been introduced to the Mark King of the 70s, Sid Vicious, who's, uh, <laughs> whose bass proficiency threatens to bring a funk edge to the band. <laughs> I mean, him replacing Glenn Matlock, that's what really did for the Sex Pistols, isn't it? It is. <laughs> it is. They did what... How many songs from Nevermind the Bollocks did they write after Matlock left? Is it two? Mm, something like that, yeah. I think it's Holidays in the Sun, which is ripped off the jam, which yeah, tells you how far, yeah. you know, even though it's arguably their best single, I think, mm. and Bodies, which I think is Steve Jones had written already. Um, yeah. So possibly the best two songs on the album. But, yeah, they weren't going anywhere without mm. Matlock. But I mean, it's funny you mentioned Body. Bodies provided as close to punk rock as I'd get, in a sense. In that, you know, that thing of your parents coming in saying, "What is this fucking filthy?" Well, what is this Mm. filth you're listening to? (laughs) Bodies was the one. You know, my parents would have said, "Fucking filth." (laughs) Well, yeah, but Bodies was the one. When you crank the volume on that, you were you were playing with fire because (laughs) it just did feel like that when you first heard that track. You couldn't quite believe what was coming out of his mouth. Mm, um, yeah. Because we heard these things in a pre-hip hop age, in a way, mm. and you know we're just not used to all of those undeleted expletives. <laughs> so yeah. bodies was just, a, and, and and of course bodies illustrates perfectly exactly what we've been talking about with regards to pistols contradictions. Could I get on board with that message? What is the fucking message? Mm. It, it, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. you know it's a really problematic record, but that's precisely what makes pistols so always thrilling. Yeah. We'll always love the pistols. We'll never love the clash. I don't think. Mm. What it's really about is disordered horror. 
Yeah, the, yeah. The, it's a red herring. The fact that it's about this all that. This is what worries me, right? For all the progress we've made in various areas of society in other ways we've gone nowhere right we were talking about after we went through that period in the 90s where the royals were distrusted and disliked and everyone mm. was saying is this the end for the royal family we're just basically back where we were in 1977 yeah and what worries me is the way the sex pistols are now remembered yeah because yeah. their inherent instability and madness is the hardest concept to process for a lot of people today, especially young people who are just discovering the sex pistols, right? Mm. Because the fashion now is to think in terms of good and evil. Mm. And what you have to do, the purpose of your life is to perfect yourself or at least declare yourself perfect so you can then rain down infinite condemnation on anyone who falls short of your own standards right mm. regardless of any difference between their experience of life and yours or you make allowances for certain things and not others based on a political checklist right and this is all fine when the question is you know should you be a fascist or something like that uh, where the answers really are that binary but it's a fucking terrible way a horrifically terrible way to approach anything more complex than that e.g humanity Right, mm. which is why the Sex Pistols, when they appear in modern culture, they are always rewritten or reimagined and always oversimplified. So you either stick them on a T-shirt and wear it with 400-pound sunglasses <laughs> so you can be cool, or you reduce them to your own level of complexity, like that fucking ridiculous TV series that's just been on, where they're angelic agents of progressive social change you know because it's a ridiculous middle class rewriting of of the truth yeah. because really the key moment in the sex pistols brief musical career or the moment around which everything else revolves is that bit in holidays in the sun where the music goes haywire yeah. and johnny rotten shouts i don't understand this <laughs> bit at all yeah mm. and they didn't often express this directly in a musical way because compared to Subway Sect or The Fall or even Buzzcocks, they were basically a boring heavy metal band who couldn't play fast. And a little of them goes a long way, i.e. you listen to 10 minutes of the Sex Pistols, they sound like the best group who ever lived. Listen mm. to an hour of the Sex Pistols, they yeah. sort of don't. No. Um, but it's right there. It's all right there. It's about what happens to people under pressure. Yeah. Is chaos, right? We're not into music, we're into chaos. Yeah. Um, and that's why they're, quotes, real in ways that make no sense to these people who still sit there trying to interpret bodies or looking at them, <laughs> hmm, this does not compute, you know. Well, no, most people's lives and minds are not simple or simplistic, and it's a fundamental misunderstanding of... And in fact, a fundamental inability to comprehend the kind of darkness and yeah. confusion and emotional violence that is the engine of this music and this band. Yeah, yeah the darkness is absolutely crucial. I mean, it, it, it's like, you know, obviously with the platitudes this year. Wins. Sorry, there was that usual campaign, you know, to get God Save the Queen back in the charts. And I think mm. it got to 42 or something like that, <laughs> showing really that people aren't that interested. But, you know, it's a complete misreading of this record. If you listen to the closing lines, you know, no 
future and England's dreaming. If you mm. see that as a prescriptive didactic thing, you're misreading the spiritual pessimism of this record in a sense because, yeah. you know, he's saying no future in England's dreaming. The way Lydon puts it across, you get no sense that he feels there will be an end to England's dreaming. He, he's kind of, you know, he's sure that that fate dreaming of a bullshit Britannia will carry on forever and that's a crucial component of why the Sex Pistols are such a simultaneously impossible and confusing band Mm. and that's precisely what makes them so good it's so telling that in DOA the punk film Mm. When God Save the Queen comes on, it cuts to a scene of a really tatty-looking school playground in London, and the camera pans across all these 70s kids who are showing off and doing Fonzie thumbs up, and just the words, no future, no future, no future for you, flash up. And it's like, oh, man, that still hits me in the gut, that does, when I see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, there are far more scurrilous songs knocking about about the Queen. I mean, Eric Burden and Ward did a cover version of Paint It Black in 1970 where Burden starts going on about giving the Queen a screaming orgasm and then a few years after this we get the Queen gives good blowjobs by Peter (laughs) and the Test Tube Babies good old Peter and the Test Tube Babies but this one it's because it's so fucking impossible for tabloid hacks of 1977 to decipher yeah exactly exactly you know and they say oh you know you say fascist regime you're saying the Queen's a fascist and all this kind of stuff and they come back with saying well you know if this government wasn't a fascist regime we'd be able to say those words and not get banned so yeah think about it man yeah a, a yeah. working class kid like Leiden can only be one note to these people you know he can only mean one thing at one time he can't summate contradictions he can't summate what it is to be in the crossfire mm. of all this both bullshit from the no. past and also thoughts about the future he can't do that he's not allowed to do that by the tabloid press and so no. when they look at the lyrics they, they yeah they don't decipher them they take them at surface value yeah no, that's absolutely yeah. that's the that's the thing about Lydon that, that so many people got wrong. That and also what so many of his fans get wrong, the idea that like he should be some sort of fount of wisdom and so the sort of stuff he says now is like some sort of betrayal. It's like he wasn't a public intellectual. The point is he was an awkward no. bloke whose mm. circumstances once rendered that awkwardness meaningful. Um, and now they don't. That's the price of success. It always has been. So how would Top of the Pops have done this if they'd have allowed it on? If they'd have been forced to play it, well, how would they have done it? Oh, God, legs and coat. But <laughs> yes. Just as chess pieces. <laughs> or, or swastikas on legs. I have no idea how they would have done this. I mean, we're shy of inviting the Pistols into the studio. I think they basically didn't expect to get invited onto, you know, like no. Lift Off or any of those programmes. They just didn't <laughs> no. bother. I think it would have been a blank screen and no music <laughs> for two and a half minutes. Which, of course, McLaren would have loved. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so the following week, God Save the Queen dropped two places to number four, by which time John Fruin decided to count Virgin Shop's chart returns again, oh, really? which was nice of him. The follow-up, Pretty Vacant, got to number six a month later, and they finished 1977 with Holidays in the Sun getting to number eight in October before it all went wrong in America and Johnny Rotten got the fuck out of it. And in October of 1980, John Fruin resigned as managing director of WEA due to differences of opinion between him and the shareholders on matters of policy and absolutely nothing to do with the recent broadcast of the World in Action episode, The Chartbusters. <laughs> 
which focused on the distribution of Judy Zook satin tour jackets to record shops in order to fiddle the chart return box. Shame on him. He ain't no human being. (laughs) So in its place, we get the officially designated number one single, The First Cut is the Deepest by Rod Stewart. We last covered the king of the Ramadan number ones in chart music number 13, and this single is the follow-up of sorts to the re-release of Maggie May, which got to number 31 in December of 1976, and the actual follow-up to his cover of Get Back, which was taken from the soundtrack of All This and World War II, which got to number 11 in the same month. It's actually a double A side featuring a cover of Crazy Horse's 1971 LP track I Don't Want to Talk About It, which featured on his 1975 LP Atlantic Crossing, and this, a cover of the 1967 Cat Stevens song, which P.P. Arnold took to number 18 in May of that year, which had not only appeared on Stewart's 1976 LP A Night on the Town, but was also the B side of Get Back in Certain Countries. Despite both sides being already in the public domain, they were released in April as a stopgap while Rod was putting together his next album, Footloose and Fancy Free, and entered the chart in late April at number 48. The following week, it soared 35 places to number 13, then leapt up 7 places to number 4, nudged up 2 places to number 2, and finally deposed free by Denise Williams to assume pole position on the summit of Mount Pop, his fourth number one in the UK so far. This is its fourth week at number one and has somehow managed to hold back God Save the Queen from its rightful place. So here's the fifth showing of the promo video featuring Rod grappling with an acoustic guitar. Oh, God. Rod's been in the news this week, chaps. Uh, He's made a rare visit to the UK to see the England-Scotland match and in tomorrow's Daily Mirror is the headline, Star Rod pitches in to repair Wembley. Soccer-loving rock star Rod Stewart had two upsets when Scotland beat England at Wembley. He was angry when rampaging Scots ripped up the turf as souvenirs, and he lost a gold necklace given to him by girlfriend Britt Eklund. But fortune smiled on Rod and Wembley yesterday. Rod discovered that the necklace had been found, and he sent a donation towards repairing the pitch. He said, I just wanted to apologise on behalf of the fans who were carried away by all the excitement. Fuck's sake. Very magnanimous of him. Yeah. (sighs) I nearly fell asleep watching this, man. Mm. The thing is with Rod, unlike, say, Mick Jagger, Rod writes himself into his songs, I think, and into the songs that he chooses to cover as well. Yeah. You know? Yeah, he's like the Carpenters. A lot of his songs are cover versions. Yeah. And I always picture the the songs that he performs with almost with him as a central character. You know, with Jagger, you can never really find, quite find Mick Jagger in his songs, in a way. But no. but it's more a sort of dazed reflection of his surroundings and his milieu. But with Rod, when he sings his great songs, like Maggie May or You Wear It Well, I don't know about you, mm. but I'll picture him, you know, with his daddy's cue and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. there's a really simple issue of believability about The First Cut is the Deepest. It, it's kind of vaguely believable as a Cat Stevens song, because Cat was in his disgraceful partying years at that time. The P.P. Arnold version's great. And yes. also the the Norma Fraser uh, reggae version is is a real doozy as well. But but mm. Rod, I'm I'm just not buying it. 
And by this time, I'm yeah. not buying into that kind of slightly damaged young boy thing. He doesn't sound hurt. He sounds cynical. Uh, yeah. And this song sounds like a tactic. Yeah, yeah, telling someone he's going to try and love again. How many times have you said that this week? <laughs> well, he, he's on. getting too old to be pulling these kind of lies out. And the fact that it's mm. an absolute dreary, shit-fest, plodding dog of a recording with these horrible mm. harps on it. Um, it's not as utterly fuck-awful as You're In My Heart or something like that, but it, but it's down there. And it, and it feels mm. and sounds lazy, Really? Yeah, and the tables have turned now, haven't they? Because Rod, the former super lad of the 70s, he's now cast as a villain of the piece. The tax exile holding the new generation down with his reconstituted off Absolutely. He's the enemy. The, the, the yes. whole thing feels lazy and cynical. I don't want to talk about it. Is from Atlantic Crossing, which is two years old. This is from A Night on the Town, which is mm. one year old. Yeah, who the fuck's buying this? Exactly, four fucking weeks. Mm. Um, I have no idea who, who's buying it. It is lazy. He's changed the lyrics a bit from the P.P. Arnold version because he couldn't remember them, I think. Right. This is Rod at his most successful. This is a big yes. smash. But I think he always benefits from a bit of roughness around him. So mm. when he's backed, as he is here, by the best session men and the best arrangers and all that bollocks, he just kind of yeah. sounds soft. I yeah. like the rough and ready lot, you know, which is essential. Mm. His kind of raspy voice, it needs a bit of a raspy setting. Yeah. And although he looks great from the waist up in this video, mm. although I don't like his diamante shark tooth combination necklace. I mean, the promo video is 70s video cliche number three, the fake Top of the Pops performance <laughs> yeah, on, a, on a stage too big <laughs> and expensive for Top of the Pops. Yeah. You know, he's on his own with an acoustic guitar with no strap in some... I noticed that they were non-flared great trousers so you know there is a progression well sort with those trousers from the waist up he looks like a kind of pretty glam rock star but from the waist Mm. down he's wearing these horrible shiny grey trousers that look very Burton's yes I would have hated this anyway in 77 as being slow and boring but if I knew that simply the fact that he's number one it's just not cricket you know he cheated Well, he didn't yes. cheat. I can't blame him, I guess, but mm. I'd hate it even more, yeah. We've mentioned before that Rod Stewart is ugly sexy by the standards of the mid-70s, and it's it's pretty much a straight fight between him and David Soul as the girly lust object of 1977. But oh, with his head in a jet engine bouffant, <laughs> he, he looks like the sort of woman who keeps getting stopped by the West Yorkshire police and, <laughs> and be forced to listen to a tape recording of Wearside Jack and, <laughs> and then asked if they've been in a car with him. <laughs> Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I find this record and video with its strange focus on bottoms and man dressed as a lady, I find it to be in deplorable taste and it's my policy to ignore it on this podcast. (laughs) Uh, Won't be getting any kind of airplay or attention from me, then maybe it'll go away. Yeah, that guitar's getting right in the way, isn't it? You You know he wants to collar the mic and emote into it, but with no strap on the guitar, it means he has to keep hold of it and he he hasn't got the courage to do uh to do an ashley ingram <laughs> so he just ends up holding it and halfway through he does this massively awkward transfer of the guitar to behind his back <laughs> you know as if his little sister's just come into the bedroom and he's terrified that she's going to put it about that rod thinks he's a pop star yeah and then he turns around so he can pretend to play an electric guitar solo on his acoustic and he starts giving it some absolutely appalling arse action doesn't oh, it? oh god yeah 
Yeah. It's like when Father Dougal portrayed mid-period Elvis in the all-priest stars in their eyes look-alike competition. I remember watching, maybe not this episode, but one of the episodes on which it featured with my mum. And when he turned around and did that, I can still see my mum tutting and, and saying, oh, look at him with his little rabbit arse. Massively disapproving. And that's who Rod is to me now. Little rabbit arse. Yeah, the music playing while he does that should not be the first cut is the deepest. It should be do, 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 No, fuck him and fuck this record, to be honest with you. Mm, having said that, though, the first cut is the deepest. Johnny Rotten's going to know all about that in a few weeks' time, isn't it? Poor soul. Ouch. Ouch. The following week, the first cut is the deepest. I don't want to talk about it. was finally dislodged from the number one spot by the hardcore new wave sound of Lucille by Kenny Rogers. <laughs> the follow-up, You're In My Heart, got to number three for three weeks in October, November, while his new LP entered the chart at number three and stayed there for two weeks. He'll have a few more decent songs in him, but these aren't they. No. Boom. Yeah, that's the number one sound from Rod Stewart. Thank you very much indeed for watching Top of the Pops. We're going to play out with Emerson, Lake and Palmer. See you on Saturday. Seaside special, Top of the Pops next week. Bye-bye. Tone still exiled on the fringes, thanks us for looking at him on the telly for a bit and then shows his appearance on Seaside Special before throwing us at the studio lights as we're treated to fanfare for the common man by Emerson, Lake and Palmer. We covered ELP and this single with the same fucking people (laughs) in chart music number 47. It entered the chart a fortnight ago, then soared 23 places to number 25. And this week, it's jumped another eight places to number 17. So, can anybody manage one more squeeze of this teabag? <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what. Ooh. ELO and ELP, has there Ooh. ever been a Top of the Pops featuring two groups so close alphabetically? Ooh. I bet not. Mm. Also, I don't like how when you type ELP into YouTube, it auto-completes as Elpen Musk. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, isn't, there isn't even an Elpen Musk. What are they? I don't get it. Were they Tories, ELP? <laughs> Do we know? Because it seems inconceivable that they weren't somehow, right? It's it's hard to pin down, but some music just feels Tory at a fundamental level. And it's not it's nothing to do with the classical pretensions or the attempts at hybrid, which even in 1977 would be a very old-fashioned idea of Toryism. Mm. Because you listen to, like, the aforementioned Soft Machine, mm. for instance... And they're not exactly playing music for the people, but you can sort of tell that they're mm. commies, right? If you have a feel for the time yeah. and place and how things worked in that culture, all the signifiers are there. And you understand that this bizarre, difficult, uncommercial music, which does whatever mm. it wants, should be the work of adherence to a, a philosophy of repression and enforced egalitarianism. Mm. Because it sounds unworldly and academic and antisocial but also idealistic 
Whereas ELP sound like they're all about personal gain yes. and glory. Uh, and tax avoidance. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like they've put themselves at the head of a meritocratic elite, you mm. know, and yet they don't understand that what they're actually doing is terrible for everyone except themselves. Mm. Yeah. Uh, no wonder Jim Davidson was a fan. <laughs> that Tory aspect of ELP is most successfully crystallised, I think, on the, on the sleeve to their 1978 album. Right. It's one of my favourite record sleeves ever. <laughs> the album's called Love Beach. Right. Just go Google it. Just go look at the front cover, because it, it's exactly what Taylor was just talking about. It's horrible obviously um because it's elp but it's them three basically on a beach with shirts on all pretty much unbuttoned to the waist with big chunky medallions and it's hugely aspirational oh i'm looking at it now it's a very expensive cna advert isn't it indeed it's totally grotesque it's what happens when prog completely detaches itself utterly from the counterculture Mm. and this is where it ends up and that's what you can hear in this music as well and another way uh, in which they're worse than soft machine and more Tory, is that their music is monolithic and intractable, right? You can't do anything with it. It just tries to do its thing to you. Yes. The reason I'm talking about Soft Machine, the other day I was listening to Soft Machine's album Seven, very much from their later open university mm. spod rock period. And it's not all of it to my taste, but I was listening to the track Carol Ann, which is actually a kind of limpid jazz instrumental with a synth on it. But you hear it and you think, oh, this sounds like the theme tune to a slightly melancholy, bittersweet, late 70s or early 80s sitcom if you listen to it on time-stretching hallucinogens, <laughs> which it really does, by the way. If you listen to it, that's exactly what it sounds like. And I'm not aware of any ELP music which is that open mm. to the imagination or the idea of potentially being anything other than just what it is, right? They're the musicians, and you mm. will listen to them, and you yeah. will be in no doubt. They're more totalitarian than the totalitarian. Mm. I mean, I've spent most of my life avoiding Emerson, Lake and Palmer. The, the two things that stick in my mind is the documentary Message to Love about the Isle of Wight Festival, when uh, there's all this hippie anarchist mentalness going on, and then all of a sudden they pitch up with loads of cannons, yeah. and they immediately strike the opening chord, and it's like, oh my God, here comes the 70s, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and then the episode of Blue Peter in 1975, when Carl Palmer pitched up to uh, show off his new drum kit, which he commissioned British Steel to make for him out of stainless steel, and then he got it engraved with foxes and voles and badgers. And, you know, I was only six, but I knew even then that badgers aren't rock and roll <laughs> you know, the sweet wouldn't do that like a lot of the records on this episode of top of the pops it, they it very neatly illustrates why the record that isn't featured on this top of the pops is you know so needed yeah i mean i, I don't like being too harsh on anyone who ended up committing suicide mm. except hitler but fucking hell keith emerson started off sticking knives mm. into a hammond organ to see what yeah. kind of noise it made you know like a keyboard pete townsend but The difference is Townsend was disrespecting his equipment, partly for show and spectacle, but also because it made a statement of frustration and nihilism and the inadequacy of pop music and a personal inadequacy to express everything which needed to be expressed Mm. through the usual channels, right? Whereas Emerson was doing it 
for show and spectacle, but also to place himself above the instrument. It's like, I've mastered this, and all there is now, the only place left to go is to stick some fucking knives in it. I don't know if that was his conscious thought, but looking at what he did later, that's Mm. what it looks and feels like. And then when you take him out of the marquee club and put him in a stadium with that extra space to fill with his virtuosity seemed to validate him again and keep him happy musically whereas you put Pete Townsend in a stadium and he just got more Mm. desperate and despairing because it broke his link with the audience which didn't matter to LP because they weren't about two-way communication with the audience even in theory this is a recital you should consider yourself lucky to be there with your barbiturates and your Mm. bottle of red wine sat in a football stadium Mm. in the snow yeah this is a band that have just bought out two albums called works Mm. volumes one and two i mean (laughs) so the following week fanfare for the common man leapt another nine places to number eight then spent two weeks at number three then nudged up to number two held back from soiling the peak of pop mountain by so you win again by hot chocolate the follow-up all i want is you failed to chart and this remains their only sullying of the uk charts <laughs> and that pop craze youngsters is the end of this episode of top of the pops what's on telly afterwards well bbc one kicks on with Part 8 of Royal Heritage, the documentary series where Hugh Weldon noses through all the rammel that the monarchs of England have been given or nicked off some foreigners. This week, he's rummaging down the back of Queen Victoria's knicker drawer. After the 9 o'clock news, David Frost has a bit of live chit-chat on the Frost programme, then we're taken over to the embankment to witness the denouement of today's licking of the royal arse. With Michael Barrett as your MC, Raymond Baxter on a motor yacht which was used in Dunkirk, and Richard Baker commentating on a fucking massive fireworks display. (laughs) Then they round off the night with John Timpson and Dennis Toohey trying to remind us that other things are going on in the world in the current affairs programme tonight only to be interrupted by the Queen and her husband going home and waving at folk from a balcony oh she does she does it so well (laughs) she does a great job I had a look at the telly for today and I love how BBC One's entire primetime schedule is just wall-to-wall royal arse washing Mm. apart from Top of the Pops and a David Frost interview with David Irving. Wow. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> a disgraced yeah. charlatan who should be in jail interviewing David Irving. <laughs> oh, shit. That actually is the Have I Got News For You joke formula, isn't it? Mm. Fuck, you know, so lazy. I'm sorry. No, Taylor. <laughs> BBC Two have just come out of Newsday and continues its season of Ealing Cinema with a Gaumont newsreel from April 1942, followed by the 1942 Tommy Trinder film The Foreman Went to France. Then it's a special report from the world about us about the declining population of the African elephant. Then it's the drama series Sea Tales, Late News on 2, the highlights from the tennis, and they finish off with John Williams playing Cavatina in Music at Night. 
ITV eventually gets round to this week. Then it's an extended hour and a half news at 10 in order to fit in all the Royal Rammel. And they finish up with Cyril Fletcher and Bob Price in Gardening Today, closing down at midnight. So, boys, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? Um, I think I'll be talking about the Stranglers. It's quite an exciting performance, mm. that... Demis Roussos always going to be talked about, and probably mm. the Wurzels, let's be honest. Yes. Yeah, the terrible truth is that it would probably be the Wurzels. <laughs> Bob Marley of the Whalers, take note, that could have been you. <laughs> what are we buying on Saturday? Um, Wurzels, definitely. <laughs> I mean, from now, Honky, oh, I actually quite dig. Uh, Pistols, Gladys and Jacksons. ELO, oh, God, Sex yeah. Pistols. Bob Marley, if by this point the theoretical me had progressed to puffing on a a crooked, leaky spliff that's 99% silk cut, (laughs) plus a millionth of a microgram of horrible black plastic soap bar. I miss soap bar. Yeah, me too. Sprinkled unevenly through it around the the back of the chippy (laughs) in the garages, you know, coughing and bug-eyed. Irie, deep meditation. At the age of five? I said if. (laughs) (laughs) And what does this episode tell us about June of 1977? They made you a moron. (laughs) I think it does tell us a lot about how punk rock must have seemed so exciting. Mm, And threatening. It's not that mainstream entertainment uh, isn't speaking to kids about their lives or anything. You know, the words will speak to all of us. Mm. But kids don't really have a problem with mainstream entertainment, I don't know. I I just think it's when pop seems barely tolerant of kids at all, being even part of it. And much of the pop music we get given here is very grown up Mm. and very adult and very slow and very boring. And and kids want energy. And it is coming, but it needs bearing in mind, I think, in 77, when we're looking back. Punk is something I still think that you have to be looking for for mm. if you want to be into it you know yeah. it's not on the telly and it's not on in your living room much no. so even though there's hints here you know you could successfully put the stranglers away as a novelty almost shock rock act at this point mm. it's not gate crush the mainstream in any way but every single thing on this that isn't by uh, black americans in a way or black jamaicans is proof of why we needed it and that brings this episode of chart music to a close usual promotional flange chart-music.co.uk facebook.com slash chart music podcast reach out to us on twitter at chart music t-o-t-p money down the g-string patreon.com slash chart music thank you taylor parks yeah god bless you neil kulkane as ever a pleasure Al. my name's al al who al fucking need em. that's who <laughs> <laughs> Sharp music. Yeah, right on, baby. Are you going to uh, vocalize on this tune? Well, not exactly me. Well, who then, little brother? Prince. Okay, well, where is this cat? It's not a cat, it's a dog. Wow!
size of houses, your own customized life force. The world is your oyster. Oh no, Bruce doesn't like oysters. But he likes sausages. <laughs> okay, what is this? Can he do it or can't he? Well, yes he can. So, what went wrong? It's not all his fault, it's just that every time somebody says that word, he says it as well. What word? Sausages. <laughs> Has he done this kind of thing before? Oh yeah, he's even been on the telly. And I suppose he's been on the mantelpiece too. Come on, what do you take me for? Who would be crazy enough to have a talking dog on a TV show? Well, really great stuff there. And so, the nationwide special Jubilee message. Can you lift the pigeon out, Frank? Well, I'm going to get uh, Ken Seddington to do that because he's the expert. It's his pigeon. Right, as he's doing. So, let me just remind you that our royal flight of pigeons took off exactly a week ago today when one of the Queen's own birds flew out of Buckingham Palace on its way to the Royal Pigeon Loft near Sandringham. Other pigeons took up the message, adding to it as they flew around the country, from Norwich to Newcastle, then on to Edinburgh, back down through Manchester to Cardiff. And there was actually some pretty awful weather on the way, I might say. And this fine bird here is the last of the relays. She took off from Cardiff yesterday and fluttered into a pigeon loft near the studio just before our fair began. And these, I'm unrolling them now, see if you can remember them. These were the key words in our message before today's bird arrived. Airborne, the tribute, nationwide, our... And of course now, with Windsor Girl's contribution here, uh, unstrapped from her leg... The verse is complete. The final verse of Nationwide's Jubilee message reads, Affection and pride, full-blossomed but unseen, now are revealed in homage to our Queen, with palpitating heart and beating wings, our final messenger, his tribute brings. Well, there we are, stirring stuff to complete our keyword message to the Queen from the length and breadth of Great Britain. Airborne, the tribute, Nationwide, our affection. And now, let's get out and about again. Let's go over to the English and Welsh border at Chepstow Castle. Folks come down from London with all their fancy tricks. Ah, we got a trick or two. We've got milk and we've got wheat. We've got our wheat of eggs. Out is real goodness. Wheat's our lovely wheat of eggs and finds the taste just grand. Just got the country nourishment, good things from the land. You're not just Danzum, you got brains too. Weetabix, have you had your daily wheat? Oh, When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.